Chapter 17. A Treatise on Economics. Nationalökonomie came off the press in May 1940, just in time to survive the collapse of its publisher, only to be buried under the avalanche of the war. Many of the copies Mises sent to friends and colleagues never reached their destinations. Mises took it with some humor. I suppose the Nazis used them as fuel. The book survived only because its English language successor, Human Action, drew incomparably more attention from readers all over the world. But it was in Nationalökonomie that Mises first presented the entire system of thought that he had developed during more than thirty years of intense study. Human Action, a treatise on economics, and Nationalökonomie, a virtually identical in general architecture. There are a few substantive differences between the books, but these differences pale in comparison to the differences that separate both of them from all similar works. In the present chapter, we will therefore quote human action wherever possible. In human action, Mises placed a greater emphasis on refuting positivism, whereas in Nationalökonomie he had refuted, in particular, Spann and Marx. Moreover, in human action, he added a chapter on general probability theory. And he expanded the conclusion of Nationalökonomie into a comprehensive seventh part of human action that dealt with the social and cultural significance of praxeology. He had planned an American edition early on and had anticipated modifications of his text to accommodate the particular background of his American readers. The typical economics textbook was then, as now, just an amalgamation of incompatible bits of theory. Mises' treatise presented social laws as one coherent whole, and it drew an encompassing picture of social reality in a step-by-step -step manner, moving from the most general phenomena to the most specific. It was social philosophy in the best sense. Mises understood the importance of a full treatise. A book of smaller scope and size could not put the various ideas in context. Mises had to educate his readers before he could convince them. An essential task in the age of interventionism, in which the average citizen was constantly exposed to pro-government propaganda. Replying to a reader, he once said, "I try to answer the questions you are asking me in my books. A book is, in fact, a letter written to all one's friends, to those the author has already acquired, as well as to those he hopes to acquire in the future." But Mises did not have exaggerated confidence in the power of the written word. In a 1957 letter to a friend from Mexico, he expressed his wish to discuss very soon the theoretical problems that this friend had raised in his previous letter. A personal meeting would be necessary, because a thorough discussion of those problems can, in writing, only be done in the form of a book, and the written word can never replace the spoken word. The system in an overview. In the introduction, virtually identical in human action, Mises set the agenda for the book. The treatise would present the system of economic science in the light of two central problems that had been neglected in all previous works in the field: epistemology and value theory. This emphasis demonstrates, in turn, the crucial importance of Grundprobleme for the development of Nationalökonomie. He then offered his system in 751 pages, organized into six parts. Now, all his previous discoveries could appear in their correct context, along with the new elements that he had developed during his Geneva years. Part one deals with the features of human action that exist under all conceivable conditions of action. After a first chapter in which he gives an initial characterization of action, 
emphasizing in particular the distinction between behavior and action, Mises deals with the epistemological problems of the science of action. Chapter 2. A fine point to notice, the treatment of epistemology came after the definition of action, because science and epistemology are themselves instances of action. Another fine point, in human action Mises adopts the pragmatist definition of truth, that which works in practice, and maintains this definition throughout all later writings. He then turns to a more detailed analysis of action, chapter 3, in which he argues that phenomena such as exchange, price, costs, success and failure, and profit and loss are not given only in the context of a market economy, but are features of human action in general. They are categories of action. In chapter 3 he also deals with the categories of means and ends, and of preference. Mises did not follow the terminology of the older Austrian school in speaking of value. Instead he used the term preference, which better conveys that the category of action is rooted in human choice. This terminological decision certainly helped to avoid confusion, especially since Menger, the father of Austrian value theory, had emphasized that value had nothing to do with human free will. According to Menger's principles, economic science studies the relation between man's needs and the economic goods necessary to satisfy those needs. In Walras's Elements, as well as in the mainstream of the 1930s and 1940s and up until the 1980s, economic science was essentially about prices and quantities traded on the market. But in Nationalökonomi, the true object of the science was understood to be human action, and in particular, choice. In another noteworthy passage of Part 1, Mises presents for the first time the law of diminishing marginal utility as a praxeological law. It has nothing to do with the psychological phenomenon of satiation. Rather, the law concerns the simple fact that larger supplies of a homogeneous good can serve more ends than smaller supplies. Yet, these additional ends are, by virtue of the very fact that they are additional ends, less important than those already served with the smaller supply. Here, Mises departs from all other economists, most notably from Wieser, who had adopted Gossen's psychological interpretation of the law. Mises draws a sharp line between praxeology and psychology, and he emphasizes the ramifications of this in other important passages of the book. We will take a look at some of these below. In part two, our author deals with those features of human action that come into play whenever an individual interacts with other individuals. Later in the book, he analyzes the particularities of the three fundamental types of social systems, the market economy, part four, socialism, part five, and the hampered market economy, part six. He also restates the theory of society that he had presented in socialism, but this time in its proper context. In socialism, an economic and sociological analysis, the theory was presented not in the first part, which dealt with fundamentals, but in one of the subsequent parts that dealt with particular problems of socialist orders. He stresses the Ricardian law of association and the crucial role of reason in shaping human society. In part three, he completes twenty years of intellectual assimilation of his 1920 essay on the impossibility of economic calculation in socialist commonwealths. In some 35 pages, he finally offers a general theory of economic calculation. What is more, he presents it in its proper place, namely before turning to the analysis of any concrete system of human cooperation. Parts 4 to 6. 
Of course, he had anticipated this architectonic necessity in the essays on value theory he wrote in the late 1920s. But it is one thing to stress the difference between valuation, preference, and calculation in a general argument. It is quite another to apply this insight in concrete analysis. Part 4 on the market economy is over 400 pages, more than half the book. Here Mises restates a good number of the theories he had developed in previous works, the theory of monopoly prices, the theory of money and credit, his famous business cycle theory, the theory of wages, and the theory of the harmony of interests of all market participants. But rather than simply repeating himself, he presents thoroughly revised versions of his previous thoughts. He expands the monopoly theory he first developed in socialism, placing special emphasis on the discussion of Marxist monopoly theory. He presents the theory of the harmony of interests in an entirely new formulation and rejects the Anglo-Saxon theories of Keynes and of Robinson and Chamberlain in perfect competition. In the theory of money, he brooks no exception to the rule that political modifications of the money supply are unwarranted from an economic point of view, and, finally, he integrates his business cycle theory with interest theory, a subject he had never addressed before in writing. Besides interest... The central novelty in his analysis of the market economy was his emphasis on the role of the entrepreneur. Mises carefully distinguished between entrepreneurs as those who take successful action in an uncertain world and entrepreneurship in the sense of a fundamental economic function, the bearing of risk under uncertainty. It is this economic function that gives rise to the specific income component of profit and loss. It was one of the great contributions of Nationalökonomie to clarify the role of this entrepreneurial function in the workings of the market economy. Yet Mises felt he could not achieve this without a somewhat roundabout exposition. To define entrepreneurship, it is necessary to give a proper definition of profit and loss. But for Mises, this was impossible without a clarification of the nature of equilibrium and its role in economic science. He therefore saw himself forced to start Part 4 with a somewhat basic chapter dealing with the methods necessary for the discursive analysis of the market economy, with various equilibrium concepts in particular. Only then did he feel that the ground had been laid to explain the nature and significance of entrepreneurship. In Part 5, which deals with socialist societies, Mises does not restate all the main findings of socialism, rather he concentrates on the centerpiece of his refutation of the socialist program, the impossibility of economic calculation wherever the means of production are collectively owned. Thus, Part 5 must be considered an extension of Part 3. Mises discusses the schemes of socialist calculation developed in the 1930s, most notably in the Anglo-Saxon world. He refutes the idea of generating prices through an artificial market, and also contests the notion that mathematical economics could overcome the calculation problem, even theoretically. In Part 6, he delivers a far more comprehensive and detailed discussion of interventionism than he had in his essays from the mid-1920s. The general line of the argument remained the same. Interventionism is counterproductive because it does not attain the professed ends of its authors. Nationalökonomie featured entirely new and important contributions. Even in those places where Mises restates his older doctrines, he has revised them, often substantially. It was therefore highly unusual for Gottfried von Haberler to claim a few years later, in a confidential evaluation for Yale University Press, which considered commissioning a translation of the book, that it contained hardly anything new.
Anti-Psychologism Mises's exposition of economic science differed decisively from all modern authors in that it drew a sharp line between praxeology and psychology. This has remained a defining feature of the works of his disciples. Mises did not contest that the psychological background of a person, his worldview, knowledge, conscious, motivations, subconscious urges, and so on, have an immediate impact on his behavior. Neither did he ignore the important psychological problems that his friend F. R. Hayek began to stress in those years, in particular that of knowledge acquisition. Mises's point was that there were also laws of human behavior that exist in complete independence of these psychological dispositions. For example, in Chapter 4, Mises discusses ends and means, scales of values and scales of needs. He does not deal with the question of how or why people select ends and means, or how or why they have certain values and certain needs. He argues that in every human action we do use means to attain ends, and that needs and values can be ranked. Murray Rothbard later argued that as a consequence of the mere fact that people rank their choice alternatives, it follows that demand curves must slope downward to the right. Mises made no such inference. He was skeptical about the use of graphical methods in exact analysis. He did accept them as pedagogical devices. In Chapter 15, The Market, he points out that consumers are sovereign because their buying decisions steer the market. This is obviously true, irrespective of what consumers buy or the reason why they make these purchases. Therefore, he does not deal with these questions. In Chapter 16, Prices, Mises states that the number of market participants determines how narrow the margins are within which prices are determined. Yet this implies that the number of market participants has no influence on how prices are formed. Irrespective of the number of market participants, market prices are always determined by the decisions of marginal buyers and sellers. Thus, all prices can be explained as a result of the mere fact that market participants prefer one good A to another good B. Praxeology is the science of these laws. It examines the ramifications of the mere fact that a man makes this or that choice. Considering the relationship between a choice and its consequences, praxeology examines the suitability of different means to attain particular ends. In praxeological analysis, the ends are given, not in the sense that human beings cannot choose them or that the choice of the right end is not problematic, but in the sense that the choice of ends is outside the scope of this particular science. Mises would later discuss the irrelevance of Homo economicus for modern economics in human action. He concluded that theorems concerning commodity prices, wage rates, and interest rates refer to all these phenomena without any regard to the motives causing people to buy or to sell or to abstain from buying or selling. With respect to the knowledge of market participants, Mises emphasized the fact that the individual market participants are not equally well informed. Yet even if they all had the same information, they would appraise this information differently. As to equilibrium, he stated again and again that the market never reaches such a state, that it is a mere mental construct, the only function of which is to analyze profits and losses. That is, the equilibrium construct is needed to explain a particular component of price spreads. It is not required to explain prices, wages, interest, commodity prices, as such. Consequently, in Mises's view, equilibrium is not the right benchmark for the evaluation of the market. 
to critics of economic science who complain that the market never produces a perfect balance between different goods and services, Mises replies in two steps. First, he points out that this fact of imbalance does not refute economic doctrine, because economic science explains any state of affairs as it results from the fact that consumers make certain valuations. Second, he observes that the relevant benchmark for the market is government intervention, and because government officials are not supermen, one cannot make the a priori assumption that entrusting them with the maintenance of the market will bring improvement, as the analysis of government interventionism shows the very opposite is the case. Capitalism and liberalism are rational. In Socialism and Liberalism, Mises had argued that human society was founded on the basis of the higher physical productivity of human cooperation as compared to individuals acting on their own. This was the crux of the classical liberal social philosophy and the cornerstone of the political program of laissez-faire, Manchesterism. In Nationale Economie, Mises set out to contrast this social philosophy with competing worldviews. He stressed that economic analysis had given a purely fact-based account of the origin of human society. The scientific theory, as developed by the social philosophy of 18th century rationalism and liberalism and by modern economics, does not resort to any miraculous interference of superhuman powers. Every step by which an individual substitutes concerted action for isolated action results in an immediate and recognizable improvement in his condition. The advantages derived from peaceful cooperation and division of labor are universal. They immediately benefit every generation and not only later descendants. For what the individual must sacrifice for the sake of society is amply compensated by greater advantages. His sacrifice is only apparent and temporary. He forgoes a smaller gain in order to reap a greater one later. No reasonable being can fail to see this obvious fact. When social cooperation is intensified by enlarging the field in which there is division of labor, or when legal protection and the safeguarding of peace are strengthened, the incentive is the desire of all those concerned to improve their own conditions. In striving after his own, rightly understood, interests, the individual works toward an intensification of social cooperation and peaceful intercourse. Society is a product of human action, that is, the human urge to remove uneasiness as far as possible. He then went on to point out the larger cultural and philosophical significance of this discovery. The historical role of the theory of the division of labor, as elaborated by British political economy from Hume to Ricardo, consisted in the complete demolition of all metaphysical doctrines concerning the origin and to the operation of social cooperation. It consummated the spiritual, moral, and intellectual emancipation of mankind inaugurated by the philosophy of Epicureanism. It substituted an autonomous rational morality for the heteronomous and intuitionist ethics of older days. Law and legality, the moral code, and social institutions are no longer reserved as unfathomable decrees of heaven. They are of human origin, and the only yardstick that must be applied to them is that of expediency with regard to human welfare. A few years later, Josef Schumpeter pointed out that the social analysis of the classical economists had its roots in medieval scholasticism. St. Thomas Aquinas and his followers had pioneered methodological individualism and utilitarian justifications of social institutions. By contrast, divine law and omnipotent government were Protestant inventions. Thus, the economists had explained society as a human creation, 
designed and implemented by cooperating individuals to satisfy individual needs. In contrast, alternative approaches such as universalism and collectivism stipulated that society could be defined independently of individual action. To the collectivists, society is an entity living its own life, independent of and separate from the lives of the various individuals acting on its own behalf and aiming at its own ends, which are different from the ends sought by the individuals. Mises went on to point out that the conception of society has a natural conclusion. Then, of course, an antagonism between the aims of society and those of its members can emerge. In order to safeguard the flowering and further development of society, it becomes necessary to master the selfishness of the individuals and to compel them to sacrifice their egotistic designs to the benefit of society. What is needed, therefore, is a definition of the proper interests of society thus conceived. Mises observed that science was at a loss to provide such a definition. As a consequence, all these holistic doctrines are bound to abandon the secular methods of human science and logical reasoning and to shift to theological or metaphysical professions of faith. Mises emphasized the epistemological dimension of this problem. The essential problem of all varieties of universalistic, collectivistic, and holistic social philosophy is, by what mark do I recognize the true law, the authentic apostle of God's word, and the legitimate authority? For many claim that providence has sent them, and each of these prophets preaches another gospel. Equilibrium, Profit and Loss, and Entrepreneurship It was through the writings of Karl Menger and Eugen von Böhm-Barwerk that Mises had come to understand the market economy as a rational social order in which all factors of production are geared toward the satisfaction of consumer wants. Not only the allocation of the production factors, but also the incomes of the owners of these factors ultimately depended exclusively on their relative contribution to the satisfaction of human wants. All values, all prices, as Frank Vetter had put it, depend on a daily referendum in the market democracy. The market is a democracy where every penny gives a right of vote. A few pages later, he states, So each is measuring the services of all others, and all are valuing each. It is the democracy of valuation. But in none of his predecessors did Mises find a satisfactory account of the process through which the structure of production was brought in line with consumer preferences. His fellow Birnbarwerk seminar member, Josef Schumpeter, had brilliantly shown how entrepreneurs drive the market. According to Schumpeter's theory of economic development, entrepreneurs are innovators who constantly interrupt the smooth operation of an inert economy. Schumpeter had a point. Innovation does play a central role in the market economy, but how does this fit with the Mangerian picture of the market economy as a rational social order? Was there a contradiction between the Schumpeterian notion that entrepreneurs reap profits for innovation, and the Mangerian insight that all incomes depend on consumer wishes. In Nationalökonomie, Mises reconciles Schumpeter with Menger. From Schumpeter, he adopted the idea that entrepreneurs are the motor of the market process, but they cannot earn a profit for innovation per se, only for innovations that improve the satisfaction of consumer wants. Entrepreneurs constantly adjust the structure of production to what they expect will be the future preferences of consumers. The different entrepreneurs act in effect as advocates for different consumer needs. Based on their estimates of what they expect to obtain for an imagined product in the future, they go to the factor markets where they compete with other entrepreneurs, bidding up prices for the available factors of production, workers, and material supplies. 
This pricing process determines the incomes of all factors of production, and it ensures that only the most important investment projects, important in terms of future consumer spending, will be realized. The driving force of entrepreneurship is the profit motive. Profit is the specific remuneration a person receives for bearing uncertainty. In the market economy, entrepreneurs act with due caution and responsibility because they are personally liable for any wrong decisions. Loss is the punishment for unsuccessful entrepreneurship. Profit and loss are together the measure of entrepreneurship. Are all businessmen entrepreneurs? Are all entrepreneurs businessmen? If not, how could entrepreneurs be distinguished from regular businessmen and other market participants? Mises answered these difficult questions by defining entrepreneurship as a social function, namely as the function of assuming responsibility for the uncertainty of the future. The entrepreneur in Mises's theory is not a person, but a role played by people, and it is not at all limited to businessmen. Ultimately, anyone can be an entrepreneur to the extent that he assumes the repercussions of uncertainty. Profits and losses do not only determine the income of businessmen, but also of wage earners and capitalists. They always come mixed with specific factor incomes such as wages and interest. One of the great problems Mises had to solve in this theory was to give a precise definition of profit and loss. In particular, he had to distinguish profit and loss from interest. His solution was that profit and loss were the results of human error. In other words, profits and losses can only exist in situations of disequilibrium. In contrast, money interest ultimately springs from time preference and has nothing to do with whether the market participants make good or bad decisions. Money interests exist both in general equilibrium and in disequilibrium, whereas profit and loss exist only in the latter case. But then this line of argument makes it necessary to clarify the precise meaning of general equilibrium, as well as its role in economic analysis. Mises argued that general equilibrium, which he called the stationary economy, stationäre Wirtschaft, in human action he called it the evenly rotating economy, is a purely methodological device. It is an imaginary construct, Gedankenbild, that has no counterpart in the real world. Its only purpose is for the definition of profit and loss. Consumer sovereignty and interest. In Nationalökonomie, Mises finally delved into interest theory, the primary research area of his revered teacher Bumbalek. In his classes at the University of Vienna in the 1920s, Mises had frequently dealt with contemporary interest theories. In those years, he had also planned to write a paper on the subject, but there had always been other projects that seemed more important. In Geneva, he was finally at leisure to fill this gap. He started lecturing on capital and related problems in the winter semester of 1936-1937. By then, Mises must have made his mind up about these questions. Bimbalek had initiated the Austrian tradition of defining the phenomenon that was at issue in interest theory. He argued that the interest rates paid in the context of credit operations are in fact a secondary aspect of a larger phenomenon. The primary aspect of this phenomenon was given in certain price differences that could be observed on the market. The starting point for Bimbalek's theory was the common observation that successful business was characterized by a positive spread between the sum total of the prices paid for its factors of production 
and the sum total of prices received as proceeds for its products. Entrepreneurs earned more money by selling their products than they spent on the factors of production that brought these products into being. This phenomenon raised a fundamental question of whether the entire spread between selling proceeds and cost expenditure can be arbitraged away through entrepreneurial competition, or whether at least part of this spread could never be eliminated. In other words, is there a part of it that contains a pure interest component? And if so, what is its cause? Bimbalek's great achievement was to formulate the problem of interest theory as a value problem, a question of demonstrated preference between goods, interest results from human choice and exchange, rather than being caused by some factor outside of human action. As the result of preference in action, interest reflects a fundamental value inequality, the choice of a more valuable alternative over a less valuable one. Observable interest rates manifest an inequality between the value of products and the total value of the corresponding means of production, including weighting or the use of capital. This way of putting the problem departed sharply from previous approaches, such as the interest theory of Karl Menger, which were based on the premise that there was a fundamental equality between these two values. In Menger's view, interest was the value of a component part of the factors of production, whereas Bernbarbeck saw it as a value differential. But where did such a value differential come from? According to Bernbarbeck, Present goods have in general greater subjective value than future goods of equal quantity and quality. The American economist Frank Fetter later coined the term time preference to designate this phenomenon. It is because of a time preference for present goods over future goods that factors of production which will yield products in the future are less valuable than the corresponding quantity of otherwise equal products existing here and now. Bernbarek emphasized that time preference is only the proximate cause of interest. The ultimate cause is something even more fundamental. He famously argued that time preference is itself caused by two psychological dispositions. One, that current needs are usually less well satisfied than future needs. And two, that human beings tend to underestimate future needs. He also argued that time preference is caused by the higher physical productivity of more roundabout methods of production his famous third cause of time preference. Mises rejected Bernbarek's psychological explanation of time preference. Psychology, Mises argued, could never establish that time preference was an element of the very nature of human action. In some actions, the psychological forces that Bernbarek described were at work and led to a preference of present over future goods of the same kind. But in other instances, the very opposite was the case. Bimbalek himself had admitted this point, which is why he held that time preference existed only in general, but not in all cases of human action. Mises also criticized Bimbalek for having failed to develop a truly praxeological theory of the period of production. The Bimbalekian view of the nature of time preference had two related shortcomings. First, it was difficult to reconcile with the fact that values and prices are manifested in human choice. If choice is free, how is it that future values by their very nature, or at least as a rule, stand in a determinate relationship to present values? Second, and more importantly, the Böhm-Bawerkian approach was in conflict with the theory of subjective value. His view of time preference concerns the value differential between homogeneous present and future goods, but the very fact 
that two goods exist at different points in time automatically makes them heterogeneous goods. Bumbarek himself admitted this implicitly when he emphasized that the values of present and future goods is liable to be different because they are intended for a service of a different set of wants. The second point is devastating for the old time preference theory, for one cannot even make claims with respect to present and future goods of the same quality without contradicting oneself. Moreover, as can be seen from Bumbarek's equivocal description of the time preference phenomenon, which stresses that only, in general, our present goods preferred over identical future goods, he did not assert that time preference was universally positive. Neither did Irvin Fisher and Frank Fetter think that this was the case. They even argued that time preference could be negative. In the hands of Mises' predecessors, then, time preference theory was a mere assertion that a determinate relationship between the values of future and present goods of the same kind existed. None of its champions proposed a tenable explanation for this supposed relationship other than the intuitive reference to the visible facts of the market, that the selling proceeds from products were higher than the expenditure on the corresponding factors of production. But these are the very facts to be explained by interest theory. They cannot themselves be their own explanation. How did Mises solve these problems? He asserted on a priori grounds that time preference is, at all times and places, positive. Human action, by its very nature, involves a preference for sooner rather than later fulfillment of one's needs. Thus, Mises asserted, contra Bombarek, Fetter, and Fisher, that time preference is not the result of the psychological dispositions of man, but of the temporal nature of action. Years later, Mises nicely summarized this point in private correspondence. Time preference is not a psychological assumption but the effect of the physical and chemical structure of the universe in which man lives and acts. It refers to the fact that in order to be alive in March, a man must first survive the month of February. If the phenomenon we call time preference were not to exist, people would only consume what is subject to speedy decay. Other things they would always only save and invest as the outcome of such a behavior would in their eyes mean a greater yield than the result of investing them for a shorter period. Mises had not so much clarified the phenomenon that his predecessors had in mind when they used the term time preference, but had instead given a complete restatement of the theory. When Bombarek, Fetter, and Fisher used the term time preference, they referred to an observable value differential between two physically similar goods existing at two different times. But when Mises used the term, he referred to a counterfactual value differential between two alternative uses of one and the same good. Time preference concerns the value differential between a present use of a good and an alternative future use of this good that could only have been realized had a different choice been made. When I use a good now rather than later, I demonstrate that I prefer to use the good now rather than later, and this in turn necessarily means that the value of its present use is higher for me and the value of the use I might have made of it in the future. Like Bernbarbeck, Mises believed that time preference was only the proximate cause of interest. But rather than seeing the ultimate cause in certain psychological dispositions of the human being, he followed Frank Fetter and Franz Kuhl in arguing that the ultimate cause was the necessity of consumption. The fact is that human beings cannot survive if they do not consume. Hence, there must be some time preference in human action or the human race would perish. 
This does not mean that time preference is the only factor determining human actions. It means that in order to survive, human beings must at some point prefer shorter production processes to longer ones, even though the longer ones would be more physically productive. Mises argued that one would always choose the longest production process if one could disregard the need for survival through time. It is the need to survive that prompts the acting person also to consider the passage of time and to prefer, at some point, sooner results to later ones. Consider three alternative fishing processes. The first one leads to catching one fish at the end of one hour. The second to catching ten fish, but only at the end of one day. And the third to catching one hundred fish, all of them at the end of a week. Assume we observe a person pursuing the production process, leading to a catch of ten fish at the end of a day. Mises explains, the person did not pick the one hundred fish alternative because his time preference was stronger than the additional gain he would have gotten from the longer process. He does not want to wait a week. The only reason he picked the ten fish alternative at all, rather than the one fish alternative, is that in this case the attraction of the additional gain was strong enough to overcome his time preference. Let us highlight the significance of this explanation within the overall theoretical framework of Misesian economics. Consumption here appears as the root of all economic phenomena. Karl Menger and his disciples had argued that consumer choices directly determine the prices of consumers' goods, and that indirectly they also determine the prices of producers' goods. Now, time preference too, and with it, the phenomena of capital and interest appear to be rooted in consumption. The great attraction of this explanation, at least from Mises's point of view, was that it did not stress any psychological dispositions of man, but relied on the fundamental fact that there can be no human action without consumption. The consumption theory of time preference thus seamlessly integrates the theory of capital and interest into the general theory of prices. In the field of interest, as in the broader market process, the consumer is sovereign. Business cycle theory restated. In light of his theory of interest, Mises now clarified the relationship between interest and changes in the quantity of money. The Austrian Misesian theory of the business cycle asserts that intertemporal misallocations result from inflation-induced reductions of the interest rate. But what was the precise meaning of reduction? Mises did not mean to assert that simple changes of the interest rate would induce a business cycle. The fact that today's interest is lower than yesterday's does not, by itself, mean that a misallocation has occurred. In his theory of money and credit, Mises had based his analysis on the Mixellian distinction between the natural rate of interest and the money rate. But this distinction was untenable in light of Mises's work on economic calculation and on the non-neutrality of money. There is no such thing as a natural rate of interest defined. As the rate of interest that would prevail in a barter economy, and even if there were such a natural rate of interest, it would still be irrelevant for the analysis of a monetary economy. Money is not just a veil over a barter economy; it affects all economic relations, prices, incomes, allocation, and social positions in an economy using money are completely different from what they would be in a society with no common medium of exchange. And so the interest rate in a monetary economy is necessarily different from what it would have been in the same economy if the market participants had decided to forego the benefits of money. Even if one could hypothetically compare natural and money interest rates, which is not the case, 
it would not follow that intertemporal misallocations would ensue whenever the natural rate was higher than the money rate. In Nationalökonomi, Mises gave a new exposition of his business cycle theory. He came up with a new benchmark to identify pernicious reductions of the monetary interest rate. The relevant benchmark was no longer the Wixellian natural rate that would exist if the economy were a barter economy. It was rather the monetary interest rate that would exist in the absence of credit expansion. Any increase in the supply of credit on the market will reduce the interest rate, but if the increase comes from printing paper money or banknotes rather than from savings, then the artificially lower interest rate falsifies the entrepreneurial profit calculus. In light of the decreased interest rate, a great number of business projects appear to be profitable and are launched. But the material factors of production necessary for the physical completion of the greater number of projects do not exist. Credit expansion does not mean expansion of the real factor endowment of the economy. It merely means expansion of the money supply through the credit market. It follows that it is physically impossible to sustain the new structure of production that resulted from the credit expansion. The boom must eventually end in a bust. Mises stresses that the boom is not a phase of overinvestment, but of misallocation. There is too much consumption and too much investment at the same time. Update of the Socialist Calculation Debate Mises does not believe that the argument in favor of socialist calculation had made any progress. But the new pro-socialist arguments provided an opportunity for further elaboration from his side. He distinguished four types of proposed solutions to the problem he had pointed out in 1920. The first candidate solution seeks to perform economic calculation in terms of labor time a la Neurath. But this approach cannot work because of the material factors of production and the heterogeneity of different types of labor. The second candidate parallels the first in that it seeks to unearth a substitute for money prices as a medium of calculation. Only here the proposed substitute is not labor time but utility as in Wieser's theory. In his rebuttal, Mises points out that human beings cannot measure utility but only rank it. The utilities of units in different sized supplies are necessarily unequal. Because of this lack of homogeneity, they cannot serve as units in a calculus of value. According to the third proposal, socialist communities could create an artificial market by ordering the plant managers to behave as if they were employed in capitalist firms. The idea was to combine the benefits of a price system and social control through government-appointed managers, but without creating bureaucracy and monopoly. Such schemes had become fashionable during the 1930s, and by the time Nationalökonomie was published, they were achieving the status of a new orthodoxy that would survive half a century. One of the new theoreticians, the Polish socialist Oskar Lange, thought some compensation for Mises might be in order, given that it was his powerful challenge that forced the socialists to recognize the importance of an adequate system of economic accounting to guide the allocation of resources in a socialist economy. Lange therefore proposed that a statue of Professor Mises ought to occupy an honorable place in the great hall of the Central Planning Board of the Socialist State. No socialist state was generous enough to follow up on this suggestion, but the University of Ratzlaw created a statue of Oskar Lange and preserved it into our day, surely as a monument to the perennity of his message. Generations of students were taught that socialism was, in theory at least, a viable economic system, 
Some authors even went so far as to argue, statistics in hand, that the Soviet economies of Eastern Europe were superior or about to become superior to the capitalist economies of the West. See in particular the various editions of the most important Western textbook of the post-war years, Paul Samuelson's Economics. Up to the very last edition that appeared before the collapse of the Soviet Empire, Samuelson stated, The Soviet economy is proof that, contrary to what many skeptics had earlier believed, the socialist command economy can function and even thrive. This notion evaporated in 1989. In actual practice, market socialism had never played a big role in the Eastern Bloc. Some intellectuals were allowed to discuss the calculation problem and the market socialist solution, but in practice there was central planning, not any form of competitive pricing. Significantly, in the early 1960s, the Soviet professor Yevsey G. Lieberman received worldwide attention with his proposals to steer production with the help of price incentives. Needless to say, Lieberman did not address, much less solve, the problems Mises had pointed out in 1922. Mises himself commented on this newest fad of economic planning in his Observations on the Russian Reform Movement. The fall of the Berlin Wall opened everyone's eyes to the stark reality that 70 years of socialism had created nothing but misery, pollution, and slavery. The world learned the hard way what it could have learned in 1922 from a readily available book. In socialism, Mises had analyzed the idea of market socialism even before any socialist had thought of it, and he had already identified its Achilles heel, moral hazard. Artificial markets would make managers irresponsible. Some of the benefits of successful management would still be private. The increased reputation and career advancement of successful managers, but all of the costs of mismanagement would have to be borne by the citizenry at large. As a consequence, the managers of the state would take on excessive risks. They would squander society's capital. Eighteen years later, in national economy, Mises did not miss the opportunity to note the irony that, according to this proposal, the market economy was such a bad thing that it had to be reintroduced through the back door as soon as the new socialist regime is established. He went on to chastise the champions of artificial markets for narrow-mindedness. The problem of the allocation of resources is not primarily a managerial problem within each plant. It is a problem of choosing where to place available capital, which of the existing plants should be expanded, which ones should be cut back, which new production sites should be established. These decisions lay in the hands of capitalists, entrepreneurs, and speculators, and it was out of the question to extend this scheme of the artificial market to them. Restating the analysis of moral hazard along the lines given in socialism, Mises argued that playing capitalists would be completely irresponsible. No risk would be too high for the make-believe capitalists, because they themselves would hardly bear any negative consequences. Such a system would be neither socialism nor capitalism. It would be no system at all. It would be chaotic. He then turned to the fourth scheme, according to which socialist societies should use the equations of mathematical economics to solve the problem of economic calculation. Here Mises restates the argument he had presented in his 1938 French-language article of the same title. Those mathematical equations describe a state of affairs that is already in equilibrium, but not the concrete steps through which any equilibrium could ever be reached. It was an error to suppose that one could calculate the equilibrium state with data taken from an economy that is not in equilibrium. It was another error 
to believe that acting man, for his present-day calculations, needs to know the evaluations and appraisals that would obtain in the equilibrium state. He went on to conclude that this fundamental conceptual problem made it superfluous to deal with the practical problems of central planning that Pareto and Hayek had raised. A pure cash balance approach. National economy and human action completed the project Mises had started in 1912 with his treatise on money. In certain crucial respects, he decisively improved upon his earlier exposition of monetary theory. The author of National Economy is a better monetary theorist than the author of the theory of money and credit. In his biographical recollections, Mises is somewhat diffident on this point. He merely says that his work from 1940s had completed the great initial project of integrating marginal value theory with the theory of money. Some years later, he used the harsher term misstatements to characterize the shortcomings of his early work. To a German correspondent, he wrote, You cannot avoid going astray, entgleisungen, if you take money out of the total context of market phenomena and deal with it separately. I have experienced this in my own case. The market process is an indivisible whole. One cannot subdivide it into pieces. My theory of money has reached maturity only in human action. The keystone of the mature theory concerned the central importance of the cash balance approach, which alone would explain money prices in terms of human action rather than in terms of mechanistic metaphors such as the velocity of money. Mises now stressed that the demand for money was truly a demand for cash balances. The value of the cash balances was not simply borrowed from the value of the goods against which they could be exchanged. This was the view he championed, at least in one crucial passage in Theory of Money and Credit. There was an independent source of value in the services that these cash balances rendered in providing liquid purchasing power. His later theory was already present in the first edition of his Theory of Money and Credit, but it was presented side by side with other statements taking the opposite point of view. Nisi developed the cash balance approach to the demand for money starting from Menger's article Geld, Handwerderbuch der Staatswissenschaften. One possible source of Mises' second thoughts on this question was a short book that Edwin Canaan had published at the end of the First World War, Money, Its Connection with Rising and Falling Prices. In his 1942 lecture in Mexico City, Mises stressed that the individual demand for money was in fact identical with the individual's cash holdings and referred the audience to page 83 of Canaan's book. Mises also radicalized his stance on the usefulness of expansions of the money supply. In theory of money and credit, he held that monetary expansion might be needed to accommodate greater growth, at least under plausible circumstances. From 1940 onward, he categorically rejected this notion. All benefits that might result from monetary expansion were now presented as being strictly ephemeral. They had no systematic positive impact, quite to the contrary. Part 6. Mises in America Chapter 18. Emigre in New York Mises knew that it would be hard for him to find a suitable position in the United States. Fortunately, he had no idea just how hard. He was thoroughly out of step with positivism, or as he called it, pan-physicalism, which had begun to shape the development of American economics during the past two decades, and which at the very moment he arrived on American shores was being promoted with large grants from the Rockefeller Foundation, among others. And his political views were, of course, also highly unfashionable. In the land of the free, the very cradle of radical laissez-faire policies, 
the philosophy of the founding fathers of the American Republic was all but dead in 1940. A few years later, one correspondent summed up the situation. Dickens, Carlyle, Coleridge, Charles Kingsley, Charlotte Bronte, Byron Hood, The Song of the Shirt, Elizabeth, Barrett Browning, and a host of others are still remembered and read today by millions, while the works of Adam Smith, Malthus, Ricardo, McCulloch, and Mill lie undusted except by scholars. The contemporary American intellectual world was deeply anti-capitalistic. How could a man like Mises integrate himself into such an environment? Arrival in New York On August 3, 1940, the ship docked in New York City. Mises had not been there since 1931 when he had attended a conference of the International Chamber of Commerce in the midst of the Great Depression. In that year he had come as a distinguished representative. Now he arrived almost empty-handed. Fifty-eight years old, he had to start his life anew. The worst year of his life lay ahead. Friedrich Unger had booked them a room, and Alfred Schütz was waiting for Ludwig and Margit at the dock. Their happiness upon seeing him was short-lived. Schütz had the unpleasant task of delivering a letter from Robert Calkins, the dean of UC Berkeley, who told Mises that the school had no budget to hire him. They could raise some money in the form of a stipend, but this would be modest, and Calkins would therefore understand if Mises chose to accept a more attractive position elsewhere. A few days later, Howard Ellis wrote from Berkeley, thanking Mises for sending a copy of Nazionale Economie and wishing him good luck. And that was it for Berkeley. Machloup wrote from California, where he had met Dean Calkins, and recommended that Mises get in touch with the Rockefeller Foundation regarding a position at UCLA. In many other cases, the Foundation had facilitated the transition of emigre scholars by co-sponsoring chairs for them. This, Machlou believed, should be no problem in the present case. Mises thus spoke to his friends at the Foundation, and they gave him the green light by August 15th. All hope was now on Machlou to work something out, but, to Mises' great disappointment, the attempt failed. What should they do now? Ludwig and Margit decided to stay in New York for the time being, where many of their European friends and acquaintances had also found refuge under similar conditions. They had already found suitable accommodation in a hotel. The next step was incomparably more difficult, finding new sources of income. Without the job at Berkeley, and with much of his assets frozen in Europe, Mises could count the days until his money would run out. He hoped to find academic employment in New York or elsewhere, but there was not much of a job market for economists. A few years later, the GI Bill would create a panoply of new positions for professors in colleges and universities, but in 1940 there were only a few full-time positions available. It is true that the federal government had started hiring economists for New Deal agencies, such as the National Resources Planning Board, and after the United States entered the Second World War in December 1941, federal employment became a boon for economists. Roosevelt signed the GI Bill in 1944. The bill provided funds to send returning soldiers to colleges and universities, thus keeping them off the labor market. It cost the American taxpayers some $14 billion between 1944 and 1956. In 2003, the federal government employed more than 3,000 economists, or about 15% of all members of the American Economic Association. Peter Klein has argued that, due to these circumstances, the Second World War radically changed the outlook of American economics profession, which turned statist. 
but Mises had already been found unsuitable for government employment in the First World War in his native Austria at a time when he was far less infamous as an opponent of interventionism. Imagine Mises in the U.S. office of Bryce administration working under the young John Kenneth Galbraith, or with Milton Friedman in Columbia University's statistical research group working out the technical details of the withholding tax that Friedman had just invented. Friedman restored his honour through late repentance, sighing, Truly, the road to Leviathan is paved with good intentions. Many European expatriates, among them many former Mises students and associates, such as Fritz Machlup, Oskar Morgenstern, and Abraham Walt, were accepted into wartime government service, but Mises had to go private, or he would go nowhere. During the 1930s, U.S. universities had absorbed many communist and social democrat economists from Germany. For example, Emil Lederer, Adolf Loew, and Edward Heimann found employment at the Graduate Faculty of Political and Social Science, New School for Social Research in New York, and Karl Landauer became a professor at Berkeley. To get into the private market for economists would take time, however, and time he did not have. It is true he enjoyed an excellent international reputation as a theoretician, but he lacked demonstrated experience in the American economy, and he was about to turn fifty-nine. I've already passed the age limit, wrote Mises in a letter to Mahloup dated August 7th, 1940. This alone cannot have been a decisive obstacle. Richard Schuller, some ten years older than Mises, found a position at the New School for Social Research. Margit called on Mahloup for help, stating that her husband was deeply depressed. He is able to serve and fight for an idea, but not for his personal destiny. Nevertheless, he had to find the job. He used his old contacts to arrange talks at various organizations in New York. On November 7th, for example, he addressed the banking seminar of Columbia University's School of Business on the problem of post-war reconstruction of Europe. Published in Trusts and Estates, January 1941, the publishers of Trusts and Estates distributed some 3,000 copies over and above our usual circulation to leading educators and economists as well as institutional investors. Two weeks later, he gave a presentation on his contributions to economic theory before the New York University Department of Economics. He lectured at Princeton University on December 19th and, at the turn of the year, attended a meeting of the American Economic Association in New Orleans. The NYU address was eventually published as My Contributions to Economic Theory, Planning for Freedom and 16 Other Essays and Addresses. The Princeton invitation came from Morgenstern, in New Orleans, Mises met Erwin Fischer and his German assistant Hans Corzen. And on February 11, 1941, he gave a talk to the exclusive Accountants Club of America in the parroquet suite of Manhattan's Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The invitation came from John T. Madden, the dean of NYU's School of Commerce, who also told him that for the first time ever, the club had consented to pay a honorarium, $50. The subject of the talk was post-war economic conditions in Europe. The club did not seem to be under the spell of academic economists, for it advertised for the talk by pointing out that Mises, although one of the leading economists of the world, is noted for his practical viewpoint and his ability to express himself in terms intelligible to the layman. Mises produced the usual result in his audience. One participant recalled that it was the clearest, soberest, and most thought-provoking analysis that I have heard, and arranged a follow-up meeting with Mises to continue the discussion. His other presentations produced similar results. The vigorous intellectual from Vienna impressed his audiences, but none of these appearances led to anything resembling a contract. 
the situation was desperate. However, one good side effect of these activities was to make him better known among like-minded intellectuals and businessmen. Of course, Mises also saw direct contact with ideological allies and potential allies. The most important case in point was Henry Hazlitt, 1894-1993, who a few years before had written a very favourable book review of socialism, stating that Mises had written an economic classic in our time. Hazlitt later recalled how they met in New York. Sometime in 1940, I got a telephone call. The voice on the other end said, This is Mises speaking. As I've told many of my friends since, it was as if someone had called and said, This is John Stuart Mill speaking. I had referred to Mises as a classic, and you don't expect a classic to call you on the telephone. Anyway, that led to our acquaintance. It was August 1940. Hazlitt had a weekly column in The Times, and a few months later he brought Mises on board. Hazlitt might well have been Mises's first close American friend. Benjamin Anderson had moved to Berkeley, and Zilligman had died in 1939. During the first years in the New World, Mises in his social life could rely largely on friends and acquaintances from the Old World. Manhattan had become the nexus of European opposition elites trying to survive the war years on the American side of the Atlantic. Politicians, academics, artists, entrepreneurs and bankers whose lives were not secure on the Nazi regime had chosen New York as their safe harbour. Marianne Herzfeld, who spent the war years in London, asked Mises to extend her greetings to all her friends in New York, and said, There are, I think, about a hundred people there whom I would like to see. Naturally, most of these people had a bourgeois or upper-class background, and many were Jews. Ludwig and Margit were certainly amazed when they discovered how many friends, colleagues, students, and even relatives had found their way to Manhattan. The Ungers, the Geiringers, the Schülers, the Kleins, the Kalliers, the Fürths, the Schützes, the Hullers, Erik Wöglin, Felix Kaufmann, Emanuel Winter, Emanuel Winternitz, Robert Michels, Engel Janosi, and many others. In fact, Mises could have resumed his old private seminar. All of its members were in New York City. Even his Vienna family doctor was there. Many other people, among them his closest friends from Vienna, had not made it. During the coming months and years, News of their terrible fates made it to New York. Emil Peels and his wife died in the German concentration camp. Their last sign of life was a letter Peels wrote in 1943 to his sister Frida Becher von Rudendorf. Chosen, the Peels and Mises had often skied together in the Austrian Alps. In July 1946, Mises wrote to Otto Friedländer that the terrible fate of Peels had deeply shaken him. Ludwig Bettelheim Gabilon was first separated from his family and forced to reside in a mass residence in Vienna. He was later deported and never seen again. Newspaperman Richard Scharmatz met Bettelheim on the eve of his deportation. Scharmatz survived the war in Vienna because he was married to an Aryan wife, but they lost all their material belongings. Victor Gretz had died after the Anschluss, and only his wife Emmy had managed to emigrate to the States. Ewald Pribram and his wife had committed suicide when they could not leave Belgium. Ewald's brother Karl had made it to Washington, where he continued his career in international organizations. There was still no news from Margit's daughter Gita, and the Miseses went through months of apprehension about her fate. By April 1941, however, they knew that she was secure in the company of Louis Rouget's stepson and on her way to America. By that time, Margit's mother too resided in New York. Mises established contact with Austrian political expatriates. After about a year in exile, he became more formally involved in the work of various Austrian exile organizations, 
which mushroomed after the United States entered the war in December 1941. From the beginning, Mises was often asked for help by friends, acquaintances, and often people who only knew him indirectly. In many cases, there were former students or employees who had no records from Europe. He patiently wrote letters of recommendation and certificates of class attendance, and in some cases this was instrumental in providing them with a job. For example, Henri Bund, Otto Ehrlich, Bert Hoselit, Karl Kapp, Leon Köppel, Rudolf Löbel, Edmund Silbener, Louise Sommer, Walter Zultbach. He also tirelessly wrote letters of support and made other efforts to help those who had not yet made it to the safe haven of America. For example, in the cases of legal historian Hermann von Grimeisen and of Paul Montou and his family. The letters that Machlup and a few others wrote for Mises did not bring the desired result. He must have started to envy Hayek, who wrote from London of business as usual, or almost. Although the German planes have become a nuisance during the last week or so, and there is of course a small chance that one may be hit by a stray bomb, one gets very soon used to this, and it does not really affect normal life. We are comfortable, and I am carrying on with my work as always, and if things do not change very much indeed, there is no reason why this should not go on. In the same letter, Hayek confidentially announced his plan to leave the country at some later point on a foundation grant for work in the United States. Jacob Viner was involved and had promised help. At one time he lamented the risk of destruction of his books through firebombs. These risks were not inconsiderable in an empty house, with nobody on the spot to put out a firebomb, which, if one gets there promptly, is the easiest thing in the world. Mises, too, would have had the nerves to live under occasional bombings, but he could not live indefinitely without income, and his funds were running out. He had some money in the United Kingdom, revenue from the sale of his books, which could keep him going for some more weeks or months. Hayek managed his bank account in England, but wartime foreign exchange controls made it impossible to transfer these sums out of Britain, and it was only a matter of time until it would become impossible to withdraw anything from the account. It was, however, possible to export commodities, and thus Hayek entered the book merchant business. He withdrew the money from Mises' account and started buying precious books, among them a first edition of The Wealth of Nations and two sets of the complete works of Jeremy Bentham, which he then forwarded to Mises through Habler in Harvard. This would certainly not have been efficient in normal times, but under the circumstances it was the only way to get any money out of the country. They used this device at least until 1948, because the United Kingdom maintained a regime of foreign exchange controls, even in the post-war period. National Bureau of Economic Research The New School for Social Research had absorbed many social scientists from Central Europe, and even some of Mises' associates, such as Richard Schiller. Mises never received an offer. Hayek received one in August 1940, but declined, out of loyalty to his colleagues at LSE. Eventually, it would once again be the Rockefeller Foundation that would fund Mises. Joseph H. Willits, who at the time headed the Foundation's Social Sciences Division, signed a $2,500 grant to the National Bureau of Economic Research to put Mises on its payroll for one year, starting December 15, 1940. The stipend was less than a third of his salary in Geneva, but given the circumstances, Mises would have been satisfied to find anything at all. Berzun observes in those years that professional salaries in American universities reached the not very dizzy height of nine or ten thousand dollars a year, and then added the following remark, 
the lower depth of the profession's earning power are painful to think of and undercut any irony. For instance, in 1940 there were 433 junior colleges whose salary scale ranged on average from $1,572 to $2,130 a year, and 177 teachers' colleges, for which the figures are $2,433 and $3,600. Fritz Machlup's starting salary at the University of Buffalo in 1935 had been $6,500. Mises's contacts with other NBER economists seem to have been ephemeral. He ran a seminar at NBER's hillside offices but found it uninspiring. To Hayek, he wrote, My seminar is going on. Last week M and L took part. I think that their impression was that it is still far below the Stubenring standard, but everything takes time. It turned out, however, that he did not have the time to build up a group of permanent participants, as in Vienna. All of the attending students were quickly absorbed in government jobs. The war years were a strong growth period for the federal government, which hired thousands of young graduates all over the country. During the first year at NBER, Mises continued to write in German, which few or none of his colleagues could read. He must have thought he would one day return to an academic position in Europe. But was there any real chance that this could happen? When he arrived in New York, this might have been his plan and his hope. But the prospect grew ever dimmer over the course of 1941. His manuscripts were translated into English. The NBER officer responsible for handling publication matters, a certain Martha Anderson, also tried to find a translator for one of his book manuscripts. Probably the original German manuscript of what was later published as Omnipotent Government. In November 1941, Anderson proposed Max Eastman for the job. Eastman was a New York journalist, who had already translated Das Kapital. Mises replied that he would like to meet Eastman, and might have done so in Eastman's home in March 1942, but no professional relationship would come of it. Dark hours and new plans. The money from the Rockefeller Foundation was not enough to live on and in 1941 it was almost all the income they had. He had never known such destitution. His family had not been wealthy, but they had always been comfortable, had always had help in the household, but now they could barely pay for a restaurant or for tickets to the theater or opera. Margaret started training as a secretary. Even more depressing was the ideological state of affairs in the very countries that were at present the bulwark against international communism and national socialism. Things had deteriorated considerably since his last trip to the States in 1931, when progressive interventionism was already at a previous high point. In the years of Roosevelt's New Deal, the political gospel preached from the press and the pulpits had shifted yet further to the left. The Soviet Union was now held in high regard, and communistic schemes were discussed seriously, while the free market was derided as an atavism of an unenlightened past. It was only a matter of time before the United Kingdom and the United States would become fascist or communist or some variant thereof. Was this a future worth dying for? Without hope for the future, was it worth living in the present? Where were the voices of dissent, except for a scattered few, like Henry Hazlitt and Lawrence Fertig? Where were the economists, with enough backbone to resist the Keynesian temptation, the very embodiment of statist longings? How long could his disciples hold out, insecure as they were, in their status as emigres? 
It was at this point that Hayek, to whom he must have confided his desperation, reassured him that he need have no fear about my becoming converted to Keynesianism. Though for Hayek, too, the future looked bleak. I agree entirely with what you say about the horrible state of economic thinking here and in the USA, that at the present time, when one can at least have some hope for the immediate future, the long-run outlook should be so dark is really dreadful. He went on, I'm trying hard to show to people how this present trend leads inevitably to economic decay and fascism, and I shall follow up my pamphlet with a more popular booklet, probably in one of the Sixpenny series, on which I am now working apart from the larger book, which is slowly progressing. Three months later, Hayek reported the publication of his first article on the influence of scientism on social thought. Mises did not believe he could contribute to turning the tide. His career was in a deep slump. He was completely at odds with the prevailing scientific fashions in the United States, and he saw no way to have any impact on public opinion. Ironically, one factor that barred him from reaching an audience through his writings was that U.S. publishers strictly aimed at the mainstream. The greatest champion of capitalism could not make himself heard, because in a world dominated by the statist ideology, his books did not seem profitable enough to enjoy the support of commercial publishers. He wrote to Hayek, I've been very busy these last months in writing my posthumous works. I do not believe that it will be possible for me to publish anything other than small articles in periodicals. To Mahloup he wrote, I do not know why I am working, but I've been very productive. Mises reached an absolute low point in April 1941. Margit had been ill since early March, her flu and sinus troubles, to the point that she could not even bring herself to keep up her diary. Mises, usually extremely discreet about his emotions, lamented in a letter to Hayek, Margit is not yet totally recovered. The thing seems interminable. It was also quite impossible to cheer her up, because she was still anxious about the fate of her daughter. Thus, he was left alone with his sorrows and apprehensions. He had left Switzerland because he refused to depend entirely on the goodwill of one party, the Swiss government. But in the United States he fared no better. All his money came from the Rockefeller Foundation, which made it clear to Mises what his status was now. While left-wing lunatics and the cranks of the imaginary science of quantitative economics received lucrative contracts with a new school of social research, Mises had to live on the equivalent of a post-doctoral stipend, and he was made to understand that even this amount was not meant as a compensation for his service to economic science, but as something between a pension and charity for an old man who could not get along otherwise. Mises was not a man to attach too much importance to material things. He once told Margit that, if she was after riches, she had married the wrong man. But neither was he the type of intellectual that Ayn Rand depicted in her novel Atlas Shrugged, the libertarian philosopher who in dire straits would descend stoically from his chair at the university to work behind the counter of a small town burger joint. Had Mises ended up flipping hamburgers, his heart would have broken. And what would have happened to economics, the Austrian school, and human liberty if Mises had had to give up intellectual work? He had not yet published a single piece written in English. He had not yet encountered even one of his later famous American students. He had left the world of a revolutionary treatise on economics that nobody could read during the war, and which nobody would care about when the war was over. Mises would have remained an important figure in the history of economic thought, but the laissez-faire Austrian school would never have come into being. 
These darkest days were not without some good news. Even though it may have seemed insubstantial at first, Henry Hazlitt had brought Mises in touch with the New York Times, and in March 1941 Mises wrote his first editorial. Apparently, this was his only editorial in 1941. In the spring of 1942 he published three further editorials, all of which dealt with the crucial logistical problems of Germany's war effort. In 1943, then, he published the last four editorials which dealt primarily with problems of post-war reconstruction, especially monetary problems. For each of these articles he received $10. In May 1941 he took part in the meetings of a group closely associated with the Austrian-American League. The group included Dietrich von Hildebrandt, Richard von Schüller, Raoul Auernheimer, Erich Hula, and Otto Kallier Nierenstein. The front man in the league was von Hildebrandt, but the organizational driving force was the secretary Otto Kallier, who had probably brought his cousin Mises on board. In June 1941, Mises and other members of this group formed the Austrian Committee to promote the independence of Austria after the end of the war. Leadership lay apparently in the hands of Richard von Schiller. Most members of the committee were at least sympathetic to the prospect of re-establishing a monarchy in Austria. This alone would have been a decisive stumbling block for the cooperation of the committee with Austrian expatriates of republican convictions, especially with the Social Democrats. They still could not agree on the fundamental principle of Austrian independence. They still pursued the old Anschluss agenda, this time without Hitler. Ernst Hall pointed out, that until 1945 the expatriate leadership of the Social Democrats avoided making any statement that could have been interpreted as a commitment to Austrian independence or to the existence of an Austrian nation. Planning for after the war still occupied a prominent place in Mises's work. On May 20th, 1941, he reported to Young that he had made good progress on his research project, a study of the social and economic problems of Central and Eastern Europe which Mises hoped could serve as a basis for post-war reconstruction in this region. He said he would start writing it soon, and he must have finished it by mid-July, when he sent out copies to friends and colleagues. In this 43-page memorandum, Mises restated the political and economic case for the establishment of an East European Union with a strong central government growth through free trade and laissez-faire, response to the problems of linguistic minorities, and protection against the three mighty neighbors. The new plan differed from the proposals he had made in early 1938, in that the proposed Eastern Democratic Union, EDU, was to include not only the countries in the Danube Basin, but virtually all of Eastern Europe, including the territories that in 1933 formed the sovereign states of Albania, Austria, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, Danzig, Estonia, Greece, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, and Yugoslavia, as well as large parts of Prussia. The proposed new political entity would thus cover 700,000 square miles, with about 120 million residents using 17 different languages. Through the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., Mises sent copies of the July version to Hayek, and in May 1941, Mises probably gave a lecture at Yale discussing his plan for an Eastern European Union. In another paper that he had finished writing by the end of May, he pointed out that his plan for an Eastern Union would complement similar ideas for the establishment of a Western Union. This approach, the formation of political blocs, as they in fact eventually came to be established after the Second World War, NATO in the West and Warsaw Pact in the East, 
was more promising than the approach of the League of Nations in the interwar period, which consisted in providing for the lack of a peace ideology by the establishment of a bureau and a bureaucracy. He went on, It is the general belief today that the sovereignty of the small nation has proved its impracticability, and that they have to disappear as independent states. This is true under present conditions. Even the United States must be reckoned among these small nations. I believe that the only thing which the Western democracies can do is to form a union for defense. I do not see any other reasonable solution for the post-war problem than a closer political and military union between the menaced democracies. The great weakness of his own plan was that it, too, was mute on the question of the peace ideology that could provide for the political and economic integration of Eastern Europe. Some ten years later, Mises implicitly confessed this in private correspondence with Salvador the Maduriaga. The late spring of 1941 greeted Mises with a most welcome opportunity. He happened to meet again with Senor Montes de Oca, a high official of the Mexican Treasury and executive president of the Banco Internacional, whom he had known from his days with the International Chamber of Commerce. Luis Montes de Oca was a hard-nosed businessman and a great admirer of Mises' work. As early as 1937 or 1938, he had invited him to visit Mexico City for a series of lectures, but Mises had not accepted the invitation. It must have been a most pleasant surprise for both of them to meet again in good health in Manhattan, and Montes de Oca instantly renewed his invitation. Mises should come for two months to Mexico. It was the first true sign of recognition in eighteen months. Mises was happy, and Margaret was happy that her husband was happy. Mises and Montes de Oca also discussed the project of translating Mises' socialism into Spanish. Montes de Oca proposed to do the translation himself from the French edition, when Mises praised this edition for its accuracy and style. Montes de Oca did not read German. He also proposed a concrete price for the rights to the Spanish edition, $200 a month's salary for Mises at that point. All this was very good news, and as soon as his Mexican friend departed, Mises set out a syllabus for his projected visit to the National University of Mexico. He proposed eight lectures in English on the economics of capitalism, socialism, and interventionism. Moreover, one lecture in French on the gold standard and managed currency, and also two seminars, one dealing with money and banking, the other with the part played by economic and social doctrines in political controversies of today. He sent these proposals to Montes de Oca on June 12th. A few weeks later, Ludwig and Margaret left Manhattan for a long vacation in New Hampshire's White Mountains. They traveled by train on July 16th and arrived on the same day at their destination, Glen House in Gorham, New Hampshire, at the base of Mount Washington, the highest peak in northeastern America. Almost every day they hiked in the mountains. On the first weekend, he briefly returned to New York City. On July 21st and 23rd, he lectured at NYU's School of Commerce on the economics of government regulation of business. Although Mount Washington was a much-visited site, Ludwig and Margit were by themselves as soon as they were far enough away from the roads. Many hundred cars pass our place every day, as all people are eager to glance five minutes at the peak, to take a snapshot and to rush away, wrote Mises to Hayek on August 14, 1941. The scenery of the White Mountains reminded them of the Alps, just the setting he needed to renew his strength, as in Europe he had needed to spend one month each year in those mountains. In the serenity of defiant rocks, cool air and wide views, 
where sky and earth held court in splendid majesty, he too could elevate his mind again above the material circumstances into which great events had catapulted him. Here he considered again the big picture and his place within it. It was probably here that Mises resolved himself to begin a new life in the United States, to become a citizen of the country, and to continue the fight for liberty from American soil. Margaret must have been extremely pleased to see her husband regaining energy to such an extent that he climbed most of Mount Washington's 6,288 feet. Near the end of their stay at Glen House, more good news came with the publication of the Atlantic Charter on August 14th. The U.S. government seemed determined, after all, to support the United Kingdom in the war and to create a post-war order based on liberty. Mises also felt greatly relieved by the Russian entry into the war against Germany. The holiday had come just in time. After the United States entered the war, vacationing was seen as unpatriotic, and the Miseses abstained from it. Back in New York, he threw himself into work with new verve. From now on, things would improve in his life, slowly but steadily. In early October, he and Margaret moved into the apartment where they would remain for the rest of their lives. It was subject to rent control laws. Margate had found the three-bedroom apartment at 777 West End Avenue in Manhattan. Mises continued to work for a few weeks on the proposal for the establishment of an Eastern Democratic Union. By October, he had completed the memorandum, one of the first pieces that he himself had written in English and which contained his political testament for Eastern Europe. Mises' thoughts now turned to America. To Hayek, he wrote, as I do not want to increase further the collection of my posthumous works, I am writing now in English. I hope that I will succeed to finish within a year a volume dealing critically with a whole complex of anti-Orthodox doctrines and their consequences. He went on. Your essays on the counter-revolution of science are the most valuable contribution to the history of the decay of Western civilization. I hope that you will pretty soon publish the whole book. I am, however, rather sceptical in regard to the practical results of our endeavours. It seems that the age of reason and common sense is gone forever. Reasoning and thinking have been replaced by empty slogans. A few days ago, Alvin Hansen delivered a lecture on post-war economic reconstruction. The old stories about full employment, scarcity of foreign exchange, the need for foreign exchange control and planning, more self-sufficiency, etc., he did not even mention the problem of capital shortage. He seems to believe that taxing the rich would make it possible to maintain the pre-war standard of living of the masses. Two centuries of economic theory were in vain, as they could not kill the mercantilistic prejudices. The audience, many ex-members of the Verein für Sozialpolitik, expressed full agreement with the lecturer. While they made preparations for the trip to Mexico, another piece of news made Mises' day and gave him hope for the future. On December 8, 1941, the United States declared war on Japan after the Japanese raid on Pearl Harbor. The Americans were finally in business. Nothing could save Hitler now. A few months later, Mises wrote to a friend, a German Protestant minister in Massachusetts. Of course, the war is a very unfortunate thing, but you are quite right. It was inevitable, and it has to be fought to the end. It is necessary to establish a new order where people who break the peace have to be treated like those who resort to violence within each country. Mises seems to have fallen back into what in more sober moments he called the dictatorship complex. He blithely assumed 
that the institutions entrusted with the new order would use their enormous power only for those purposes of which he, Mises, approved. In his monetary thought, he had overcome this error, most notably in the context of his eventual rejection of the gold exchange standard. The American entry into the war prompted various Austrian personalities to join forces and create more formal organizations to prepare the reconstruction of Austria after the war, which, they were sure, would end with an Allied victory. Already in anticipation of the event, and prompted by Roosevelt and Churchill's Atlantic Charter, Richard von Kudenhofer Kalergi, a close ally of Otto von Habsburg, had submitted a petition to the U.S. government for a separate treatment of Austria after the war. Mises signed the petition along with many other leading Austrian expatriates. After Pearl Harbor, the Austrian committee assembled in several meetings during the month of December to discuss how to proceed. After a meeting on December 13th, Mises prepared a one-page manifesto that outlined a political post-war order in Austria that would be based on the principle of individual liberty. The paper probably resulted from the discussions of this meeting. Mises wrote it, but did not sign his name. In any case, the document enthusiastically welcomed the Atlantic Charter as the constitution of a new community of all free people, and it expressed a wish for an independent Austria after the war. According to the most important stipulations of the document, the new Austria would be a state of freedom and democracy, even though the question of the concrete form of state, parliamentary democracy, monarchy, etc., was explicitly left open. Moreover, the new Austria would not insist on the title of a sovereign country, because sovereignty was no longer consonant with the spirit of the time, but would instead seek integration into an Eastern European Union and a new League of Nations. But the Austrian Committee was but one of many similar groups that started popping up, and Mises was also a member of Austrian Action, a group led by Ferdinand Count von Chanin. It was clear that an effective representation of Austrian interests in America was impossible under these conditions, and the leaders of the various groups decided to join forces. In early February 1942, Mises, then in Mexico City, received a telegram with the invitation to join the newly formed Austrian National Committee. The telegram was signed by Walter Schusnick, possibly a relative of the last Chancellor of Free Austria, and Hans Roth. In 1941-1942, Schusnick was the driving force behind attempts to bring a group of mostly Jewish refugees from Austria, who had been stranded in Lisbon, to the United States. Mises was in touch with Schusnick throughout the war. Mises accepted membership, though he could not personally appear at the founding meeting in Manhattan, where his colleague Erich Hula represented him. Six Weeks in Mexico the trip to Mexico late January to March 1942 by far surpassed their expectations. They were treated with the highest respect. Hotel reservations had been made at the local Ritz, and Mises found an audience prepared for and receptive to his message. He started lecturing on January 14th and finished his program by February 20th. Besides his course at the School of Economics, which he taught in English, he also gave two lectures in French at the Independent School of Law. The course at the School of Economics paid eight hundred U.S. dollars, and for the lectures at the law school he received fifty U.S. dollars. The same files from which this information comes contain his very detailed lecture notes. At that point, he probably did not yet feel quite comfortable speaking in English, which allowed for a detailed reconstruction of the matters he dealt with. The course only attracted some eight to fourteen students. Still, Mises thought it was a great success. The audience was, of course, small, as the students mostly do not understand foreign languages. 
Montes de Oca attended each session, but Mises had particularly animated discussions with Senor Eduardo Hornedo. Margit stayed in and around the hotel, and in the evenings Ludwig joined her and often took her out. They also spent many evenings at the home of Montes de Oca. At these meetings Mises again and again expressed his pessimism about the future, and again and again his Mexican host protested that it was not too late to start a fight for liberty and sound economic policies. Montes de Oca was indeed firmly convinced that the best place to start this fight was Mexico. He had made Mises a job offer by correspondence even before his Austrian guest had left New York. The Bankers' Association and the Chamber of the Mining Industry, two of the three most important Mexican business associations, were interested in hiring Mises for an extended stay as an economic adviser. Mises wrote back that the offer was very flattering and tempting, and that he was anxious to get more detailed information about the functions which it is expected I would fulfill. Six weeks later, Montes de Oca replied with a firm offer. According to his proposition, Mises would become the head of the economics department of the two business associations, with sufficient personnel to assist him, and at a comfortable monthly salary of 1,000 Mexican pesos, a lunch for one person, at the Ritz cost three or four pesos. He would also be teaching courses and seminars at any department he wished, at the National University of Mexico and at the Colegio de México, and he would be free to take up other paid teaching assignments. The offer was for three years and could become effective any time. Mises would not even have to return to the United States after his upcoming visit. This was a great temptation. Had the offer come a year earlier, Mises would probably have accepted it on the spot, but he had since made new plans. Was his future not in the United States? Montes de Oca tried to bring Mises to an early commitment by correspondence, but his Austrian friend remained steadfast. He would first pay a visit to each of the two business associations before making a decision. Upon his arrival in Mexico City, Mises conducted very wide-ranging talks with his Mexican hosts. He even started to write a couple of words in Spanish, and at the request of his hosts began working on a memorandum analyzing Mexico's economic problems. In the course of the next few weeks, he perused the statistical yearbooks of the country and became acquainted with other literature on Mexican conditions. He read the press to the best of his ability and led many discussions with his host and other people. Slowly, a more concrete picture of Mexico became clear to him, which he later described in a letter to Hayek. Mexico is a country without industry and very short of capital. The soil is in the greater part of the country very poor. The result is that they have to import wheat and maize. Mises meant what Americans call corn, but the rulers, generals, trade union leaders, and pink intellectuals intend to start industrialization by ruthless confiscation of capital. Neither this attitude nor its effects differ from conditions in other countries, but really amazing is the fact that there are some people, of course a small elite only, who have a very keen insight into the problems involved, and try to educate the intellectuals. Then Mises went on to compare this Mexican elite very favorably with the small group of economists who, according to Hayek, resisted the trend toward government omnipotence in Great Britain. Speaking of his Mexican hosts, Mises said, You cannot find such men in other countries. Contrary to your statement in the Nature article, everybody in this country advocates all-round planning. Sir William's ideas, published in the London Times a few days ago, all economists, businessmen, and pressure groups sympathize with. They are convinced that current events have demonstrated in an irrefutable way the superiority of the post-office system, 
People do not learn anything. They despise theory, and they interpret facts from the point of view of their errors and prejudices. Sir William is Lord Beveridge. Still the fact remained that Mexico was a very poor country, and that the forces of reason were weak. Luis Montes de Oca must have sensed that Mises was not exactly enthusiastic about another Chamber of Commerce career, and brought up the prospect of a research organization under Mises' leadership, a private institute of the social sciences. This was much more to the liking of his Austrian guest, and when Mises departed, he promised that he would write a paper for Cuadernos Americanos, a journal managed by one of Montes de Oca's associates, as well as a short memorandum on the establishment of an institute of the social sciences as a basis for further deliberation. He complied with this request after his return, and wrote two memoranda, one concerning the general aspects of the venture, the other concerning more concrete institutional aspects of the proposed institute in June 1942. The Austrian National Committee Ludwig and Margit returned to New York in March. A letter from Machlup had arrived, informing them of another unsuccessful attempt to secure a suitable job for Mises, this time at Rochester. The chairman of the department had told Mahloup that he should be ashamed to approach so distinguished an economist as Professor Mises with the smallest salaries at our disposal. Fortunately, the Rockefeller grant to NBER had been extended, though apparently not without resistance. Mises applied for the extension in December 1941 based on a six-page report on his research activities in the previous year. The extension was not confirmed until mid-February, but it is possible that the delay was the result of his trip to Mexico. For the next few months, Mises took an active role in the meetings of the newly constituted Austrian National Committee. As he said on many occasions in private discussions and correspondence, he was extremely pessimistic with regard to Europe's future. You can't have a reasonable state of affairs with unreasonable people. I do not believe that a member of the Hitler Youth, or of the equivalent groups in Italy, Hungary, or so on, can ever turn to at honest work and non-predatory jobs. Beasts cannot be domesticated within one or two generations. But true to his motto, this was no reason for him to step back in resignation. On the contrary, he threw himself into work preparing post-war policies and he encouraged his correspondents to do the same. Mises contributed several memoranda dealing with the principles of post-war reconstruction, Entwurf von Richtlinien für den Wiederaufbau. The Austrian National Committee was a creation of Otto von Habsburg, who had the ear of the American administration, and turned out to be the common denominator for the feuding groups of Austrian patriots. Otto delivered an excellent diplomatic performance during the war years that eventually prompted the Allies to re-establish an independent Austrian state after the war. A decision to this effect was made at a conference of the foreign ministers of the United States, Britain, and Russia in October and November 1943 in Moscow. Otto's success also boosted the monarchical principle. For years the leaders of the legitimist government had been the most ardent champions of Austrian nationhood. The movement had been suppressed before 1933 because Austria's neighbours and its former war enemies had threatened with diplomatic and military sanctions in case of attempted restoration. When the suppression stopped, the legitimists very quickly gained political ground. By 1938, Otto von Habsburg had been nominated honorary citizen in 1,540 out of 4,400 Austrian cities and towns. 
He must have at least toyed with the idea of re-establishing his dynasty after the war, and many devoted followers, as well as the usual careerists who sensed an opportunity for political windfall profits, encouraged him to pursue this strategy. These circles of Austrian expatriates generally refer to Otto von Habsburg as His Majesty Kaiser Otto, and called him Imperial Highness. Mises himself would continue to use this title in correspondence with Habsburg long after the prospect of a restoration of the Austrian monarchy had faded. In the heated days of the Second World War, many Austrian expatriates were betting on a political return of the Habsburg dynasty after the war. Mises's former colleague at the University of Vienna, Heinrich Graf von Degenfeld, was one of the staunch supporters of a monarchical restoration on legitimist grounds. In mid-April 1942, Habsburg asked Mises and a few other men for their detailed opinion on some forty to fifty questions concerning strategic and tactical problems that Habsburg confronted in his double capacity as the leader of the Austrian National Committee and of the House of Habsburg. Mises put this job on the front burner and answered the questionnaire within a week. Only one part of Mises's confidential report survived, the one in which he comments on the conditions under which a restoration could be achieved. Mises wrote that there was no contradiction between national self-determination and a monarchical regime, provided that the monarchy was established by a free referendum. This point of view reflected the Polish heritage of its author. Poland had, in fact, had an elective kingdom from 1573 to 1795. The aristocratic parliament, the same, elected the king by unanimous vote. But Mises did not base his argument on historical precedent. Rather, he argued that only an elected monarch enjoyed a secure basis for his reign, enthronement on the basis of legitimist claims, against the will of the people, could not last. It was likely to be resisted and eventually overthrown. As an alternative approach, Mises sent along the memorandum containing his proposal for the establishment of an Eastern Democratic Union. The Austrian National Committee united all Austrian right-wingers and provided them with political representation in Washington, D.C., in the person of Egon ranshoven Wertheimer. One success of this group was the proclamation of Austrian Day on July 25, 1942, by twelve state governors, and U.S. Secretary of State Cordell Hull declared that the United States government had never recognized Hitler's annexation of Austria. This dissociation of German villains and Austrian victims would remain the one common position of the various Austrian right-wing expatriate groups throughout the war, and here they achieved a clear success. The expatriate Social Democrats never wavered from the agenda of a greater Germany. Mises took part in a plenary meeting of the Austrian National Committee on April 22, 1942, and a month later he was elected to a subcommittee on post-war reconstruction. In June 1942, he also took part in a subcommittee on foreign policy, where it appears that he had a major impact. The first sessions discussed and drafted a Declaration of the United Free Austrians, based on the December 1941 manifesto of the Austrian Committee. In contrast with that document, however, the declaration asserted that Austria had been coercively taken over by the Nazis, and that it was therefore under de facto occupation by a foreign army. The declaration also de-emphasized integration into international political federations and emphasized the concept of sovereignty. Most important, the declaration avoided the question of which form of government Austria should adopt after the war. According to the earlier manifesto, the form of government should be determined through the deliberation of a national assembly. But the declaration was mute on this point, 
because a monarchist faction under the leadership of Mises' former colleague Count Degenfeld wished to maintain the option of a legitimist foundation for a future Austrian constitutional monarchy. For the time being, the compromise was good enough for Mises and other Republicans. The important thing was that some agreement be reached as a basis for the rest of the agenda. Mises outlined this agenda in an Aktionskalender, a project schedule he seems to have circulated within the committee. According to this schedule, the next step would be to enter negotiations with two left-wing groups of Austrian expatriates to support a common declaration. Then the results should be published and further negotiations started, this time with the Czechs and the Poles, and then with other nations that Mises recommended for an East European Union. Finally, there would have to be negotiations with bankers and businessmen to address the issue of financing the first few months and years of the new state. But it did not come to pass, and apparently Mises gave up active participation in the committees and did not even attend a dinner in honour of Otto von Habsburg's 30th birthday on November 20th, 1942. Working the committee must have convinced him that he had no future in Europe. The old continent was ravaged by war because it had been in the firm grip of statist illusions. The expatriates who were making plans for post-war Austria were entirely under the same spell. It is true that they despised National Socialism, but they did not despise Socialism per se. Each of them had his own little scheme, and invariably all of these involved the state running the country. Many years later he wrote in correspondence, As the Bourbons of the Restoration, many Austrians have learned nothing and forgotten nothing. Among the few groups who showed any interest in his analysis of the necessity for and the problems of a post-war Eastern European Union was the Socialist Central and Eastern European Planning Board, an organization that envisaged a post-war federation among Czechoslovakia, Greece, Poland, and Yugoslavia. These must have been his feelings in 1942 as well. New Friends The honorarium for the Mexican lectures supplemented their income and things looked far rosier in 1942 than they had in their first year in the new country. But the financial situation was still bleak, with no permanent source of income and Ludwig's retirement fund frozen in Austria. On December 18, 1942, he reported on the activities of the year and applied for another extension of his research grant. He also tried to convince MBER to finance a large-scale research project to elucidate the origins of modern totalitarianism. He planned a comprehensive seminar with people like Roger, Röpke, Hayek, and others. The project did not materialize, but his research grant was extended in January 1943. Mises even received a two-year extension under the same conditions as before. It was a normal policy of the Rockefeller Foundation to subsidize the integration of European emigre scholars into American universities for about two years. Thus, Mises could be happy to obtain twice as much support. However, it was to be the very end of their cooperation. The second year's bonus was a not-so-subtle goodbye. The Rockefeller Foundation's Willits made it clear, and MBER's Carson made it even more stark, that this extension would be the last one. Meanwhile, Willits was on very good personal terms with Wesley C. Mitchell. Fortunately for Mises, he had found a more amenable source of support independent of the Rockefeller Foundation, the National Association of Manufacturers. 
NAM leadership opposed the New Deal and other statist projects, these men were determined to prepare a counterattack, starting a large-scale campaign to educate the American public about the benefits of what they called the free enterprise system. NAM needed intellectual leadership from people who were conversant both in the world of business and in the world of ideas. By February 1943, they had discovered what they were looking for in the person of Ludwig von Mises. Many years in the Vienna Chamber of Commerce had accustomed him to dealing with businessmen and to communicating effectively his economic and political insights to this audience. Just when the Rockefeller Foundation made it clear that they were no longer interested in supporting the Austrian economist, NAM immediately stepped in and offered to hire Mises as a consultant starting today. Mises became a member of the Economic Policy Advisory Group. He later became a member of NAM's Economic Principles Commission and of its Advisory Group on International Economic Relations. The contract provided for an annual honorarium of $3,000, which was 20% more than what Mises earned at NBER. The contract was extended on an annual basis. In the 1944-1945 period, Mises' honorarium increased to $3,600. His taxable income increased to almost $6,100 in 1943 and almost $7,100 in 1944. Mises worked closely with NAM Secretary Noel Sargent, who in 1943 commissioned a study from him on international monetary reconstruction after the Second World War. By the fall of the year, Mises had written a 68-page memorandum on the subject in which he advocated a return to the gold standard and criticized reconstruction plans that Harry Dexter White and Keynes had made in preparation for the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference. A few months later, he took part in an NAM-sponsored expert meeting to discuss the Keynes and White proposals. The group included Rufus Tucker from General Motors, Princeton Professor Edwin Kemmerer, and Mises' old acquaintance Albert Hahn, who became a good friend during their years in Manhattan. By June 1944, Mises had prepared another memorandum, this time on Monopoly. Probably this is the manuscript that was published posthumously as Monopoly Prices. A few months later, he addressed two advisory committee luncheons on the West Coast. At that point, he had already acquired a solid reputation through the publication of Bureaucracy and Omnipotent Government in the same year by Yale University Press. Accordingly, he was presented as the most eminent and uncompromising defender of English liberty and the system of free enterprise which has reached its highest development here in the United States. He addressed the local NAM chapters in San Francisco, October 18th, and Los Angeles, October 25th, and met such excellent men as Leonard Reed, Orville Watts, and R.C. Hoyles. Reed had invited Mises for a lecture on behalf of the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce. He had learned about Mises's NAM-related trip to the West Coast through their mutual friend Walter Zulzbach. The encounter with Leonard Reed was a fateful one. They may have met a few years earlier, shortly after his arrival in the United States. Reed later recalled such a first meeting in 1940, at which he had been much impressed by the purity of Mises's opposition to any government power beyond the minimum necessary for the preservation of domestic peace and the market. Mises had reportedly attended a party in Reed's home. Earliest extant correspondence started in June 1943, when Reed asked Mises whether he would be ready to give lectures in the framework of a business education campaign. Reed invited Mises for dinner to his house 
on October 19th or 20th, 1944. One of the other guests asked Professor Mises, All of us will agree with you that we are headed for trouble times, but Dr. Mises, let's assume that you were the dictator of these United States and could impose any changes you think appropriate. What would you do? Reed clearly recalled the answer. Quick as a flash, Mises replied, I would abdicate. Mises had remained in touch with Reed through correspondence. He may also have been on Reed's mailing list and received one of the 1.5 million copies of Reed's four-page pamphlet, Why Not 1900? A reaction against FDR's proposed legislation to seize all annual salaries in excess of $25,000. Reed had argued that there was no objective reason not to seize all salary in excess of the national average salary, which happened to be $1,900. Reed was a self-made businessman who had spent the greater part of his career as an executive with various West Coast Chambers of Commerce. He had the good luck to manage the Chamber of Palo Alto in 1928 when that city's most prominent resident was elected President of the United States. Reed organized a sort of pilgrimage for 700 Californians to Washington, D.C. and caught the eye of Herbert Hoover's entourage. His career was made. He moved on to even higher positions within the larger network of California Chambers of Commerce, and eventually became general manager of the world's largest chamber of commerce in Los Angeles. By that time, he had become a champion of laissez-faire capitalism, had published his first book, A Critique of New Deal Economic Policies, and had for many years managed the Western School for Commercial Organization Secretaries. Once in his new position in Los Angeles, he hired V. Orville Watts, a professor of economics who had been a popular instructor at the Western School. Watts was a disciple of Harvard professor Thomas N. Carver, who had lectured for Reed's Western School for commercial organization secretaries in the 1930s. Watts took over from Carver when Carver's honorarium became unaffordable for Reed. Watts thus became the first economist ever hired by a U.S. Chamber of Commerce on a full-time basis. Together, they fought the New Deal rather effectively organizing many courses and other educational conferences throughout California. Mises' lectures were part of this effort. On the evening of Tuesday, October 17th, one day before his NAM luncheon talk, Mises gave a lecture to the Rotary Club on credit expansion and depression, and that same evening addressed an audience at the Santa Ana High School on the causes of the war. Mises stayed as a guest at the home of R.C. Hoyles, who published the predecessor of the present-day Orange County Register. Several weeks before the talks, the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce and the Register started promoting the event through articles and columns, and it turned out to be a success. Reed in particular was much impressed by what he had seen and heard. A year later, he would move to New York and eventually establish the mother of all libertarian think tanks in collaboration with Mises. The association would last for the rest of Mises's lifetime. The alliance with NAM, in contrast, did not last long. Mises continued to advise NAM, co-authoring a two-volume study on the American individual enterprise system, which was published on April 1, 1946. The book was part of a large-scale NAM campaign, aiming at the abolition of the wartime Office of Price Administration. The campaign succeeded, and the office expired, but so did Mises' contract. He continued to serve on NAM's advisory group on international economic relations, but resigned at the end of 1948, when NAM became increasingly agnostic on the question of inflation and its consequences. 
The final straw for Mises was, when NEM started championing the view that increased productivity was the proper antidote to inflation. Many years later, he got another contract on the NAM staff, starting January 1954 for $6,000 per annum, plus $2,400 expenses. At about the same time he began his work for NAM, Montes de Oca wrote from Mexico City that he had made good progress in the preparation of the International Institute of the Social Sciences. He now asked Mises to submit a list of prospective permanent professors and some indication of the salaries they would require. Mises replied that Walter Zulzbach, Alfred Schütz, Louis Rouget, Jacques Ruff, and he himself, all European expatriates living in New York without American citizenship, would be available for permanent employment in Mexico City for an annual compensation of some $6,000 per head. This was a fairly generous salary, and proved to be a major stumbling block for the establishment of the Institute. But in early 1943, everything seemed possible. A group of first-rate intellectuals with classical liberal pedigree was at least potentially available, and another group of men was interested in financing the venture. Moreover, there was a plan. Louis Rouget would be invited to the University of Mexico City for a series of lectures. Mises was to prepare a study on Mexican political-economic conditions, which Montes de Oca had commissioned for his Banco Internacional, and Montes de Oca continued to work on a translation of socialism. In planning for the future teaching staff of an institute in Mexico City, Mises had also brought up the names of Plant, Machlub, Rapar, Röpke, and Robbins. It is not clear whether these were the only names he suggested, or if they were the only ones Montes de Oca mentioned in his reply. Mises had drafted a longer list of prospective staff, permanent and temporary, and also a short list of the subjects to be taught. The staff included Machlup, Habler, Nurske, Sulzbach, Vögelin, Petter, Schutz, Auger, Kelsen, Hula, Ruff, Modell, Hayek, Robbins, Plant, Hutt, Wiese, Einaudi, Rapar, Striegel, Heckscher, and Bulkwell. The main subjects to be taught were one, economics, two, history and critical analysis of socio-economic doctrines in the last two hundred years, three, constitutional history since 1776, four, economy and social history since 1750, and five, modern public finance. He also made one last attempt to win Lionel Robbins over. In early 1943, he invited Robbins to come to New York. Robbins combined his scientific authority and personal network with great organizational skills and an unusual ability at clear and convincing expression in spoken and written language. The fate of Britain and thus of Europe depended on where he weighed in. Mises sought to get him out of his Cambridge and London milieu, to breathe the fresh air of liberty. But Robbins never came to New York. Instead, he became a champion of the British interventionist government. There is no surviving correspondence between December 1935 and early January 1943. And then it was Robbins's wife, Iris, who wrote, thanking for a Christmas parcel with sweets, chocolate, lemon juice, and more, that the Mises had sent. Two days later, her daughter Anne wrote too, and on January 25th, Lionel himself also renewed their correspondence. Mises eventually delivered the study on Mexican economic conditions to his Mexican friend when the latter came to New York in December 1944. Montes de Oca was now eager to have an epilogue for the forthcoming Spanish edition of socialism. He had still not given up on the Institute of Social Sciences, although another problem besides the salary question had so far prevented any progress. Most of the prospective permanent and temporary teaching staff 
Robin Plant, Mahloub Zulzbach and others, who were by then employed in war offices of the French, British and US governments and were either unable or unwilling to leave until the war was over. Montes de Oca invited Mises to return to Mexico City as a visiting professor during the year, but Mises declined because he planned to apply for US citizenship in August, five years after his arrival, and sought to avoid any complications that might result from a trip abroad. Mises's social integration into the cosmopolitan milieu of New York accompanied a more general integration into American society. One sign of adjustment was the change of Mises's manners, which became less formal in his dealings with friends. During 1942, when he wrote a series of editorials for the New York Times and other journals, Henry Hazlitt felt comfortable enough addressing his Austrian friend to leave behind the differential Professor Mises in favor of Dear Ludwig, July 1942, and later Dear Lou, December 1942. In April 1945, he made another important and lasting acquaintance when he started correspondence with Philip Courtney, at the time the vice-chairman and treasurer of Couty, the perfume company. Mises wrote to congratulate Courtney on a paper in which he had criticized Keynesianism. Courtney, who already knew Mises's work, wrote back, saying there was no person in the world whose opinion I value more than yours and that he hoped to meet him soon at dinner with their mutual friend André Morois. Mises had met Morois at Louis Rouget's apartment in New York City. The dinner at Morois's apartment probably took place on May 21st or 22nd, 1945. On a professional level, however, Mises's integration proceeded more slowly. The essential reason was his unwillingness to trade away his convictions for social acceptance. By 1944, he was a member of the New York Overseas Rotary Fellowship, which meant nothing to him. He found the meetings extremely boring, and after a short while stopped attending them. He also had some access to the national press through Hazlitt at the Times, but quickly ran into confrontations. A case in point is a letter to the editor of the New York Times published on January 3, 1943. Here Mises explained that mere organizational devices would not make for world peace after the war. In particular, he rejected the idea that some new version of the League of Nations would make international relations better than they had been in the interwar period. Only a radical change in political mentalities and social and economic ideologies toward the classical liberal position could make the world safe for peace and prosperity. The letter provoked the editor of Barons to solicit similar pieces from Mises, but this cooperation was not fated to last very long. Mises contributed only one article on Big Business and the Common Man, which was published in February 1944, and only after sharp protestations from some associate of Barron's. The essential point under contention was whether or not Mises had exaggerated in claiming that the inventive spirit was absent in Russia. Mises wrote, As far as I know, the best that the Russians have achieved was imitating foreign models. The major attraction of their exhibitions at the World Fairs in Paris and in New York were imitations of American agricultural implements and of Ford cars and tractors. Their planes and tanks were not original. Today they are fighting almost entirely with lend-lease material. Incidentally, I want to remark that Germany also contributed very little to the improvement of weapons. The iron ship, the armored ship, the torpedo, the submarine, the plane, the machine gun, the tank came from England, France, and America. The German general staff mistrusted the airplane and the tank and tippets, before the First War, belittled the U-boat. 
The Zeppelin is a genuine German invention, but it is both commercially and militarily impracticable. The cooperation with barons ended soon after. Similarly, Mises's integration into professional organizations of American economists suffered a setback. Just when Fritz Machlup joined the AER editorial board in October 1943, Mises felt he had to stop further cooperation with the journal. What had happened? He reviewed books for various journals, focusing on works dealing with post-war reconstruction in Europe. Two of these were invited reviews for the American Economic Review, and the AER had published a rejoinder by a certain Alfred Braunthal to the first of the two reviews, without giving Mises the opportunity to respond. To Mises, this was a clear sign of discrimination. Writing to Machlup, Mises said that he was no longer prepared to contribute to a periodical whose editors failed to comply with the principles of literary decency for partisan consideration. They should rather send their books directly to Mr. Brauntal or other comrades. Five years later, he wrote in similar fashion to the dean of the School of Business Administration of the University of Buffalo, referring to your letter of May 11th. I am sorry to inform you that I have no suggestions to offer for the program of Econometric Society. Yours very truly, etc. American Citizen Mises had applied for citizenship at the earliest possible date, August 1945, and on January 14, 1946, he became an American citizen. He renounced his title of hereditary Austrian nobility, but kept the name Ludwig von Mises as a nom de plume. One of the first things he did was to get in touch with his old employer to reclaim the retirement funds that he rightfully owned, but which had been denied to him in an August 1938 letter from a Nazi official. He was told he was entitled to a monthly payment of 953.95 shillings starting May 1st, 1945. The money was transferred to his old bank account in Vienna. Foreign exchange controls were still in place, however, and Mises could not transfer the money to an American account unless he provided an authorization from the Nationalbank. Did he ever think about returning to Vienna? He did not. Mises was still in touch with some pre-war acquaintances, for example with Karl Brockhausen and historian and writer Richard Scharmatz. He had Idaho publisher J. H. Gibson send them care packages. Gibson owned Caxton Printers Limited in Caldwell, Idaho. His brother was the noted American colonial historian Lawrence Henry Gibson. He made his money as a commercial printer and with an office supply company. The profits he invested in his hobby, publishing literature he personally liked, such as libertarian conservative books, for example, Albert J. Knox's Our Enemy, the State, 1935, Garrett Garrett's The Revolution Wars, 1938, and Erich von Kunnelt Ledin's Liberty or Equality, 1952. Mises first met him in January 1947. Gibson spontaneously offered help for those Mises thought deserved support in the hard post-war years. Mises named three Austrians, Brockhausen, Schamatz, and Friedrich Köhler, his longtime attorney in Vienna, and three Germans, Passau Eugen Fink, a professor of philosophy in Freiburg and former assistant to Edmund Husserl, and Karl Hagedorn, an attorney in Hamburg and friend of Margit's family. The next year, Gibson repeated his offer, and did so once more in the spring of 1953. Mises then brought Gibson in touch with Eric von Kunnelt Ledin, who became another author of Caxton Printers. In a letter dated October 25, 1952, he enthusiastically endorsed Kunnelt Ledin's Liberty or Equality, as well as three of Garrett's books. 
He also took care of the surviving mother of Ludwig Bettelheim Gabilon, who had died at the hands of the Nazis. Still, Mises did not use the opportunity to visit Germany or Austria. Both countries were still occupation zones, and access required special permits. From correspondence with Schamatz, he knew that Vienna was in even worse shape than after the First World War, and this time lacked the leadership to prevent the rampant socialization of the entire country. As Schamatz wrote, many Austrians had been looking forward to Allied victory, from which they expected liberation, quite literally. Instead, they got even more government regimentation than before. Even the so-called liberal professions were now coerced into state-controlled organizations. And as in the worst years of the war, the population lived on food rations, the only difference being that the rations were smaller and that the food coupons could not always be redeemed. But Mises's disinclination to visit Vienna also had another source, as he wrote to his friend Karl Brockhausen, a former professor of constitutional and administrative law at the University of Vienna, I do not yearn for an encounter with the mob who applauded the massacre of excellent men. Ich sehne mich nicht danach, dem Pöbel zu begegnen, der bei dem Niedermetzeln ausgezeichneter Männer Beifall gekratscht hat. Borkhausen brought this issue up in later letters, too, asking Mises where he had received his information. In a letter dated July 4th, 1949, Borkhausen, more than 90 years old, said he was about to look into the accounts of Nazi war crimes. It is not quite clear who Mises had in mind. The good-hearted Borkhausen tried to convince Mises that this severe judgment was not borne out by the fact. There had been no lynch marks in Vienna. In early March 1940, Mises had declared his readiness to contribute to the reconstruction of our devastated, verwistetus Austria. Clearly, the early use of such vocabulary made it difficult to keep pace with the subsequent devastations. But by mob, Mises probably meant men such as Hans Meyer, Ottmar Spann, Sprick, and Nadler, who had actively supported the Nazi takeover of Austria and yet were once again in positions of influence. Mises did eventually make his way back to Vienna, but only to visit. Chapter 19. Birth of a Movement If Mises ever had any illusions about the state of the American mind before he came to the United States in 1940, he had certainly lost them by the end of the war. American public opinion was under the sway of statism, and the old American liberties were at an all-time low. As Mises wrote to a German correspondent, Unfortunately, one can become acquainted with the fruits of the planned economy here in the USA, too. Similarly to a promising young economist in Austria, he wrote that the American literature on economics was, if anything, worse than the European. There is a great enthusiasm for unbalanced budgets, deficit spending, low interest rates, and all sorts of regimentation. Those who dare to disagree are simply brushed aside as orthodox and reactionary. Mises to Reinhard Kamitz, in a letter dated October 18, 1946. Kamitz eventually became Minister of Finance and then President of the Österreichische Nationalbank. Mises respected him very much and paid him the following tribute about his time as a Minister of Finance. Under the most adverse circumstances, you have proved yourself to be a worthy successor of the two cleaners and to Böhm Barwerk. And on the same theme, the intellectual ravages caused by Keynesianism are very bad. For example, everyone here is delighted that national income has increased from $77.6 billion in 1940 to 161 in 1945. But the forces of resistance were slowly emerging. 
There was a seedbed of libertarian opposition, a network of leaders, thinkers, and organizers, some alone, others in small groups, who were preparing the counterattack. One historian has called these years the nadir of individualistic Jeffersonian thought in the United States. Yet the nadir was only in political practice. The thinking was no longer in disarray, but in the initial phase of a long-term resurgence. It is true that these thinkers and organizers were still scattered. They had only to find one another. There were journalists like Henry Hazlitt, Lawrence Furtick, Frank Chodorov, Suzanne LaFollette, Garrett Garrett, John T. Flynn, and John Chamberlain. There were writers like Albert J. Nock, Isabel Patterson, Rose Wilder Lane, Ayn Rand, and Felix Morley. There were organizers such as Leonard Reed, Frederick Niemeyer, and Lauren Miller. There were businessmen ready to sponsor educational ventures to promote laissez-faire policies, such as Jasper Crane, Harry Earhart, Adolf Kohlberg, Howard Pugh, Claude Robinson, Pierre Goodridge, and William Falker. And there were academics, such as Benjamin Anderson, H.J. Davenport, Fred Fairchild, Leo Wallman, Frank Knight, Henry Simons, and Ludwig von Mises. These men and women reversed the course of events in a mere fifteen years. They were not strong enough to rid America of its creeping statism, but they succeeded in slamming on the brakes and reorienting public debate. By the beginning of the 1960s, classical liberalism had risen from the ashes, and it had done so under the decisive impact and intellectual leadership of Mises. These fifteen years of his life saw a last great blossoming of his creative powers, which paved the way for a new liberty in the Western world. During this period, Mises's impact was amplified and deepened through several new organizations that rallied a hitherto disparate and unaware public around the banner of liberty. And for the first time in his life, Mises worked on a permanent basis with a group of students who had learned economic science through his writings. These first Misesians soon became even more coherent and radical advocates of laissez-faire than the master himself, something unprecedented for Mises. In his Vienna seminars, he had been in the awkward position of being more radical than his students. Libertarian Seedbeds Many Americans had grown weary of the New Deal during the second term of President Roosevelt's administration. More and more people realized that their president had brought about a revolution in the American system of government, but the majority gave FDR a third term. The president promised to keep America out of the new European war that would eventually turn into the Second World War. When Roosevelt went back on his word, the majority started to wane. The population still stood behind the commander-in-chief in a time of war, but the disenchantment with New Deal policies became ever more manifest. People started listening to critical voices, and these voices could now be heard everywhere. Isabel Patterson in The God of the Machine, 1943, and Rose Wilder Lane in The Discovery of Freedom, 1942, had delivered passionate and widely noticed indictments of the omnipotent state undermining individual liberty. John T. Flynn had exposed the socialist agenda and impact of the federal government's interventions in the Roosevelt myth, 1948, and As We Go Marching, 1945. In early 1944, Felix Morley, John Chamberlain, and Frank Hannigan founded the weekly journal Human Events. Their mission was to educate the American public about the uncomfortable fact that their federal government had been taken hostage by socialist and communist ideologues. The public also listened for the first time to the voice of two Austrian emigres. Mises came out with two books in 1944, Omnipotent Government and Bureaucracy, 
both of which were calculated to diminish the faith in the necessity and expediency of solving social problems with the brutal force of state power. And, in the same year, Friedrich August Hayek published The Road to Serfdom, the book that made him famous. Intellectuals held no monopoly on critical inquiry into the nature and scope of the Roosevelt government. Ordinary citizens, without any scientific pretensions, now rediscovered the old American virtue of distrusting their government. Wherever they looked, they found their worst fears confirmed, and now they not only noticed but also recorded and spread their discoveries. One example illustrates the situation. An entrepreneur from Houston running a small printing company had started wondering just how many federal agencies had actually been created under the New Deal. There was no ready reference for the information, so he decided to create one himself. He produced an alphabetical listing of all the agencies, the length of which must have been breathtaking, at least in those days. At first he had just printed a small number of flyers for his friends, acquaintances, and people on his local mailing list. The response was overwhelming. After a few months, he had sold almost 200,000 copies, and in each case it was the buyer who approached him. The most visible turning point for the fortunes of classical liberalism came on September 18, 1944. On this day, F. R. Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, appeared in the United States and met with huge and immediate success. Reader's Digest condensed the book and had more than one million copies distributed by the Book of the Month Club. Overnight, Hayek became an international celebrity. Nobody was more surprised by these events than Hayek and his publisher. There were four major factors to his unexpected success. First, Hayek did not come up with any new argument, but just gave a particularly eloquent and sophisticated presentation of a position that, before the war, had already found wide acclaim among the American public. The central argument of the road to serve them was, in fact, that increased powers for government would tantamount to reduced sovereignty for the individual citizens, and that total government control turned the citizens into slaves, regardless of whether the totalitarian state was fascist or communist. Second, the war years had dramatically accelerated this increase of powers of the U.S. federal government and thus raised awareness of and misgivings about this fact among the greater number of people. Third, again echoing other neoliberals, Hayek defended what seemed to be a pragmatic middle-of-the-road solution that appealed to the American mind. He emphasized that he did not advocate laissez-faire, but a new brand of liberalism. Fourth and finally, Hayek weighed in with the full authority of an academic economist who was well-known and respected in the United Kingdom, a fact that to the present day can arouse Americans' intellectual inferiority complex. For staunch defenders of liberty, Hayek's neoliberalism was, of course, far too soft on government. The positive program of the road to serve them left the government in control of economic life. The economy was still to be a planned one with the government in charge of all the planning. Hayek merely suggested that this planning be for competition rather than the detailed control of all market participants. This was a naive approach from any realistic political point of view, and some thought it was indefensible from an intellectual point of view as well. Commenting on Hayek's program, Frank Chodorov explained, How silly! and made it clear that he thought the program verged on intellectual cowardice. Mises was very happy about the success of the book. However, he too thought that Hayek had made his case in misleading terms. Hayek had singled out economic planning as the root cause of the various policies that threatened political and economic freedom. But there is no danger in planning per se. 
The real question is who should do the planning and how should the plans be applied? Should there be only one plan imposed by the power of the state on all citizens, or should there be many different plans made by each individual or head of household? Mises emphasized this crucial distinction in a speech delivered on March 30, 1945, to the American Academy of Political Science. He left implicit the fact that his speech was a critical review of Hayek's book. Mises' speech was first published as "Planning for Freedom." Together with a speech by Rufus S. Tucker, delivered before the same audience in a 24-page pamphlet, Economic Planning. Later, the essay was reprinted in Mises's book, Planning for Freedom. In correspondence with Edouard Meunier, a professor in Paris, Mises mentioned that he disliked the title and subtitles of the printed version of his talk. The French translation was published in 1947 in the Revue de l'Économie Contemporaine, under the title L'Interventionnisme et le Salaire. In a letter to Selma Fuller, Mises praises the virtues of road to serve them, but concedes the appropriateness of Fuller's critical stance on the book. The positive program developed by Hayek matters little when compared with these virtues of his book. However, it is a very comforting fact that your friends were shrewd enough to see the contradictions in his program. A few days later, on April third, Hayek arrived in New York to start a road to serve them lecture tour. It was the first time he saw his old mentor in America. The book and the lecture tour trumpeted the dawn of a new era. The sale of thousands of copies signaled to everyone that the American population still harbored strong affections for liberal ideas, and that these feelings had huge political potential. The most momentous initiative to exploit this potential was, we can see in retrospect, the decision of Leonard Reed to quit his lucrative position at the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce at the end of 1945 and to move to New York as an executive. Vice President of the National Industrial Conference Board, Reed sensed the potential for a huge interest in laissez-faire liberalism and its underpinnings in economic science, Alamises, and he understood that liberty had to be defended as an integrated whole, not in a piecemeal fashion with many concessions. But looking around in 1945, he was amazed to discover that there was not one institution to satisfy this demand for information, and certainly none ready to support or promote. Classical liberal scholars and students. Many years later, he summarized his discoveries in four points. Number one, the freedom philosophy wasn't issuing from any place on the face of the earth. Number two, there wasn't a magazine in the country that would take one of our articles. Three, there wasn't a book publisher that would take one of our books. Number four, just twenty-six years ago in 1945, there did not exist a consistent literature of this philosophy written in modern American idiom. That's how far down the drain this philosophy was. The National Industrial Conference Board was an educational institution, the purpose of which was to provide information about economic science and the functioning of the American economy to classroom teachers all over the country. Reed had been hired, along with Garrett Garrett and others, to establish a new nationwide educational program. The express purpose of the new program was to inform teachers, journalists, and intellectuals, the second-hand dealers in ideas, as Hayek called them. About the importance of individual liberty for economic prosperity and society at large, Reed's mission was to raise the necessary funds. Mises was aware of Reed's effort. When, in May 1945, he received a request from Mr. Allman, the vice president of the Fruhauf Trailer Company, inquiring what could be done in terms of organizational work to give the individual private enterprise way of living and doing business political leverage, Mises replied that friends of his were elaborating a plan for imminent action. 
He had probably talked again with Reed about his pet project, the establishment of a libertarian journal of opinion. Human events had been launched the year before, but Mises was not happy with its one-sided focus on anti-communism. The problem was not just the increase of government interventionism in the name of communist ideals. The problem was that the government intervened at all. A libertarian journal of opinion would have to educate the public about basic economic laws. The Long Visit at New York University One great limitation to Mises' effectiveness in spreading the gospel of liberty was that he lacked an academic base. Like most other champions of the free market, he frequently lectured to businessmen and other civic leaders, but he had no direct impact on future intellectuals who studied at the universities. It was quite often a frustrating experience for him. In a letter to Machlup, he wrote, Again and again various organizations invite me to refute Marxism and to the Union Doctrine, which are held to be identical, and as an aside also Keynes and Hansen, in a short paper that can be read in not more than thirty minutes, and which every high school graduate can easily understand. Refute Marx, but don't use highbrow terms such as value, dialectical materialism, average rate of profit, etc. Refute Keynes, but do not speak of the multiplier, of liquidity preference, etc. Unlike many of his former students and associates, Mises had been unable to obtain a suitable position at one of the major universities. Herbert von Beckenrath, Goethe's briefs, Gottfried von Habeler, Georg Halm, and Josef Schumpeter had obtained positions at Harvard. Machlup was at the new Rockefeller-funded University of Buffalo and Morgenstern at Princeton. Apparently, they were all unwilling or unable to get Mises into their departments. He had offers from smaller schools, such as the University of Rochester, but would not settle for second-rate institutions. At some point in 1944, some of his friends and admirers in New York took the initiative to provide him a visiting professorship at New York University. Led by Lawrence Furtick, an NYU trustee, these men eventually came to an agreement with NYU's Graduate School of Business Administration. The school would invite Mises to give an economics seminar, and Mises' salary would be from private funds. Nash mentions that Hazlitt and Reed were among those involved. Nash also mentions that Hayek's position at the University of Chicago was similarly subsidized out of private funds. It is not clear who, apart from Fertig, contributed to paying Mises' salary. It is, however, most likely that a major part of the money came from the Volcker Fund. Other potential donors were among the men who would later back the Freeman, in particular Alfred Kohlberg, importer, Jasper Crane, Howard Pugh, Sun Oil, Herbert Hoover, former U.S. President, W. Prentice, Armstrong Cork, W. F. Peter, Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railroad. This arrangement continued on a regular basis. Mises started his classes in February 1945. He was a visiting professor at NYU for more than 20 years. When he was looking for a job right after his arrival in the United States, Machlup had brought him in touch with New York University's Department of Economics. In November 1940, the department head, Spa, invited Mises to give a talk on his contributions to economic theory. Spa was slow or unwilling to follow up with a job offer, and Mises then accepted the position at NBER. Despite the humiliating circumstances, the seminar proved to be an enormous success. From the outset, it was not only attended by NYU business students, but also attracted a colorful group of personalities from outside, journalists, businessmen, writers, and students from other universities. In a manner reminiscent of Mises' seminars in Vienna, it became a rallying point for New York-based intellectuals interested in the scientific case for laissez-faire 
as well as a point of attraction for visitors from abroad. In Vienna, the Mises Circle would move from Mises's Kammer offices to Ancora Verde for dinner, then to the Café Künstler to continue the conversation late into the night. In New York, the participants in Mises's NYU seminar could follow the classroom session by joining their professor in Child's Restaurant, followed by the Café Lafayette. Seminar students such as Hans Zenholz, William Peterson, George Reisman, Israel Kurtzner, and Ralph Rako eventually formed, together with Murray Rothbard, the solid core of Misesians to hold out through the long libertarian winter of the 1960s and 1970s, thus enabling the breakthrough of Misesian ideas of the 1980s and 1990s. Mises inspired them to contribute to the great project of hammering out a systematic and encompassing libertarian philosophy a project that had attracted courageous and innovative thinkers from the time of the 16th century Spanish late scholastics to the time of the Manchester School. In retrospect, the result can only be called amazing. It is one thing indeed for students to follow the example of a passionate and encouraging teacher. It is quite another thing to actually produce anything of value. A surprising number of Mises' NYU students later became important scholars and even pioneers in economics, history, and philosophy. One example of the international significance of the seminar was the case of the Japanese students drawn to attend. Mises's pre-war work had been favorably received in Japan, and several professors from this far eastern country had taken part in his Vienna seminar. After the war, a correspondent from the Yasuda Bank wrote Mises that his Theory of money and credit had made a very strong impression in Japanese financial circles and is regarded most highly. Azuma was a student of Mitsutaro Araki, to whom Mises had already, in 1925, granted permission to translate and publish Theory of Money and Credit. Araki never completed the translation, but his student finished it in the early years of the war. When he wrote to Mises in 1948, the manuscript of the translation had survived the war years in a vault of the publisher. Azuma also kept Mises informed about intellectual developments in Japanese economics. The impact would increase when a Japanese edition appeared in May 1949, just in time to provide intellectual ammunition against the wave of Keynesianism that swept the country with the American occupation forces. Mahloup reported a few years later from a meeting with Japanese colleagues in Tokyo, There was a discussion of whether certain parts of your theory of money were already in the first edition or only added in the second edition. There were several present who were able to discuss this question. One classical liberal from Japan later recalled the chain of events in his country. The names of von Mises and Hayek are well known in Japan. The latter's road to serfdom was published during the war about the time when Japan started experimenting in state socialism. My own experience confirms completely the exactness of the professor's prognostications. When the war was over... We had to throw everything overboard, and I expected a return to free enterprise. Then a curious thing happened. The Americans arriving in Japan in the wake of the landing forces started putting into effect policies which were hardly distinguishable from state socialism. Leonard Reed and FEE About a year after the inception of Mises's NYU lectures, another institution would be established that would prove to be a pillar of the classical liberal renaissance and give further leverage to Mises's ideas. Leonard Reed had come to the conclusion that his engagement with the National Industrial Conference Board was a waste of time and money. One of the main reasons for his ineffectiveness was that the board was committed to a policy of hearing both sides. In practice, this meant, for example, 
that at the bi-monthly public conferences that the board sponsored at the Waldorf Astoria, both the champions of the free market and the advocates of government intervention were granted equal time to present their cases. Leonard Reed believed this policy was based on a severe misunderstanding of hearing both sides truly meant in the present context. In the words of his biographer, the other side was everywhere, in government, education and communication. Even businessmen had come to rely on government for restrictions of competition, for government contracts and orders, easy money and credit, and other favors. How do you present both sides when one side is all around you, preempting the public discussion, and the other side is barely audible in the deafening noise of the former? Reed thought any funds spent on yet another presentation of the statist view was money down the drain, and he felt he could not in good conscience justify this expenditure. At the end of 1945, he resigned his position and started visiting the donors to apologize. Mises continued to be invited to other NICB conferences. For example, on May 16, 1946, he discussed the subject of post-war interest rates with Woodleaf Thomas, a Federal Reserve economist, Friedrich Lutz, and Paul Samuelson. And on January 22, 1948, he took part in a symposium that dealt with the question, should we return to a gold standard? Here he met Philip Courtney. Among the other contributors were Albert Hahn and Michael Halperin. He was probably also instrumental in providing his friend Walter Sulzbach with a job at NICB in 1946 or 1947. One of them, New York City businessman Pierre Goodrich, encouraged Reed to think about setting up his own organization. Two months later, Reed established the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, which in July 1946 would move to the pastoral premises in Irvington and Hudson, several miles north of Manhattan, where it is still located. Reed mobilized substantial corporate backing for this venture. He had a full address book and was personally acquainted with many executives and owners of the large corporations, some of whom also joined FEE as trustees. The main activity of FEE was to send out pamphlets and letters explaining the freedom thesis to some 30,000 households. The number of 30,000 was attained by early 1949. Reed himself gave a great number of public lectures, and together with his other staff, he would soon start offering weekend seminars and other educational programs. The pamphlets and conferences brought students throughout the country in touch with the writings of Mises and other champions of classical liberalism. Mises himself was one of the first economists hired for lectures and seminars on FEE's premises and would eventually become its intellectual center for more than two decades. He was paid a uniform amount at regular intervals and therefore became, for technical reasons, tax laws, an employee of FEE in October 1946. It would be hard to overstate the significance of the appearance of FEE, Though its activities were not noticed by a large national audience, the very existence of this organization gave the scattered classical liberal forces focus and orientation. It gave them what they had not had since the heyday of 19th century liberalism, a home. FEE provided the material and infrastructure for an enthusiastic return to the ideals of the 19th century laissez-faire liberals. To the key question about the proper functions of government, FEE's Manchesterian answer was that government should be strictly limited to the prevention of aggressive force or physical violence. More importantly, it attracted young people interested in the intellectual case for liberty and ultimately brought Mises in touch with a self-selected group of students who were much more receptive to the political implications of his ideas than were many of the attendees of his NYU seminar. Several students he first met at FEE conferences 
Later joined a weekly seminar at NYU where Mises could go into much more detail. Last but not least, FEE provided some intellectual counterweight to the neoliberal orthodoxy that was about to emerge from the University of Chicago's economics department. In 1947 and 1948, respectively, Frank Knight and Henry Simons, posthumously, had published collections of articles making their case for a libertarianism that was so watered down as to be indistinguishable from social democracy. Other members of the Chicago School were Aaron Director and Milton Friedman. FEE's impact was, of course, comparatively minor, but without it, the Chicago School would have totally dominated the American free market scene. Frederick Niemeyer At about the same time Reed was setting up FEE in Irvington, New York, Mises made another acquaintance who would eventually turn into a long-term ally. In May 1946, Chicago businessman Frederick Niemeyer had finished reading Mises' Theory of Money and Credit, which prompted him to write to the author and inquire about any further writings of his on the subject. During the following months, Niemeyer read Omnipotent Government and other available English-language writings of the Austrian professor. He was the ideal reader for Mises. He had received his economics education in the early 1920s, then worked for a while as a field representative of the Harvard Business Cycle Index. He was well acquainted with the monetary thought that prevailed in the United States. The theory of money and credit, he found, was a radically different approach than the mechanical quantity theory, and he therefore had some difficulty to adjust all my thinking to your exposition. Part of the difficulty seemed to be the different use of terms, and Niemeyer then went on to raise questions about one of the crucial concepts of the theory, the demand for money. Mises agreed that the way he had put it, the demand for money being the demand for purchase and power, was ambiguous, and that a better way of putting it was to say that the market participants had a demand for cash holdings. He promised to revise his writings accordingly and to consider this point in his forthcoming treatise on economics. This exchange was the beginning of a long-lasting alliance, though never really more than a personal friendship. Neumeyer soon commenced to read other Austrian works available in English, in particular Bernbarek's Capital and Interest. Slowly he became a dedicated admirer of the Austrian school. He was also a dedicated Calvinist, and claimed, Bernbarek has gone as far beyond Adam Smith as Calvin did beyond Luther. Mises' agnosticism did not diminish Neumeyer's admiration for the Austrian economist, and it did not prevent Mises himself from cooperating openly and productively with Christian libertarians in America. In Austria, such cooperation was almost out of the question because the Christian socialist had pushed the Catholic Church into an intellectual dead end. Only outstanding personalities, such as Monsignor Zeipel, could overcome the socialist resentments against the liberal Mises. But in the States, things were different. A great number of the Protestant clergymen in America loved individual liberty and the free market and considered this love to result quite naturally from their Christian religion. Many of these men felt that Mises' theories were complementary to their faith. In correspondence with a high clergyman of the Church of England in Canada, who had read Human Action, Mises wrote, I fully agree with your statement that the Gospels do not advocate anti-capitalistic policies. I dealt with this problem years ago in my book Socialism. I furthermore fully agree with your proposition that one does not find in human action one word which is in opposition to the Christian faith. Mises enthusiastically welcomed the publication of the monthly periodical Faith and Freedom by Spiritual Mobilization, a Los Angeles-based organization, in December 1949. Of course, he knew very well 
that the majority of Protestant leaders championed some form of socialism or interventionism, and that while the Catholic Church valiantly fights communism, they did not oppose socialism. But these problems were outside of his field. I think that only theologians are called to deal with the issue. This was also the opinion of Frederick Niemeyer. One of the mainsprings of his motivation for spreading Mises' writings was precisely the complementary relation he perceived between laissez-faire capitalism and Christianity. Mises and Niemeyer probably met for the first time in late January 1948. Niemeyer then started thinking about why the Austrian School of Economics was not prevalent in the United States, and he came to the conclusion that Austrian works were not sufficiently well-known. In the fall of that year, he was ready to take action, relying in particular on his voluminous address book. I know several of the outstanding entrepreneurs in this country. I sit on some important board of directors. And at the end of January 1949, after several more encounters with Mises, Niemeyer came up with a plan. The idea was to set up a liberal institute under Mises' leadership at the University of Chicago. Niemeyer was a friend of the dean of the business school or at some other suitable university in the Chicago area. Niemeyer had already won over his associate Robert W. Baird and his friend John T. Brown, vice president of the J.I. Case Company. By May 1949, they had talked to several other businessmen in the area. At the end of April, the university had told Niemeyer that they would favor unrestricted gifts to be used with academic freedom which meant that the university would select the staff of the proposed Liberal Institute. Mises commented, Based on this slogan, academic freedom, the universities are boycotting all those economists who dare to raise objections against interventionism from another point of view than that of socialism. The question of academic freedom is today not, should communist teachers be tolerated, it is rather, should only communists, socialists or interventionists be appointed? But the resistance did not come only from within the universities. A few years later, and that much the wiser, Mises acknowledged the existence of another factor. One of the worst features of the present state of affairs is the misplaced loyalty of the alumni. As soon as somebody dares to criticize something concerning a university, all alumni come to the rescue of their alma mater. Then we have the spectacle of big business, defending the boycott launched by the faculties against all those who do not sympathize with interventionism, planning, and socialism. In any case, the plan for a Chicago-based liberal institute under Mises' leadership did not materialize, but Niemeyer and his friends probably had some influence in bringing Hayek to Chicago, and in the early 1950s he played a significant role in raising funds for Mont Pelerin Society meetings. Mises debates American libertarians. With the NYU seminar, FEE, and individual organizers and publishers such as Niemeyer, Mises enjoyed for the very first time in his entire life a truly congenial network of students and supporters. He had always been a respected scholar, but few of his readers and associates really appreciated the radical anti-statist gist of his theories. This held true in particular in the case of the neoliberals, who prided themselves on their pragmatic position and on their good sense in wanting to place the government to be in charge of creating competition. These men accused Mises of exaggerated logical argument in the intellectual battle for liberty. If this is a valid charge, then Mises was surely guilty. As one historian put it, he fought with a supreme logical rigor that even his friends sometimes considered excessive. An example of such a friend was Chicago professor of economics Henry C. Simons, who praised Mises as 
the greatest living teacher of economics and the toughest old liberal or Manchesterite of his time. But alas, he added, he is also perhaps the worst enemy of his own libertarian cause. Things were completely different in the circle of his new friends. Many of the new people who came to Mises through his NYU seminar and FEE were even more libertarian than he was. Suddenly it was Mises who on several occasions turned out to represent the more statist position in his seminar. American libertarians, such as Leonard Reed and R.C. Hoyles, placed great emphasis on the definition of political liberty in terms of non-initiation of force. After the publication of Human Action, for example, Hoyles criticized Mises in private correspondence for having admitted that public education can work very well in monolingual countries if it is limited to reading, writing and arithmetic. Hoyles saw this as an unnecessary concession. Public education, even if limited to the case under discussion, was unjustifiable. The fact that some people were compelled to pay who did not want to have their children taught, or who had no children, was teaching by example that the majority had a right to coerce the minority to pay for anything the majority wanted. If that is not the worst kind of government intervention, I do not know what intervention means. When you make this one concession, you are denying that our government is limited in what it has a right to do. It seems to me that intervention by the government is just the same thing as initiating force. Understand, I'm not opposed to the use of force to stop someone from initiating force, but the government has no right to initiate force. The only purpose of a government is to stop people from intervening in an unhampered market and to stop people from initiating force to make someone pay for anything he doesn't want to pay for. This perspective was entirely outside Mises' utilitarian approach to political problems. He believed that the question of who initiated force was politically irrelevant because one could hardly ever reach agreement on it. The only relevant question was whether the initiation of force was suitable to attain the end of the acting person, even if his action was somehow wrong from an ethical point of view. A two-sentence letter he sent some ten years later to an American correspondent a publisher in Wisconsin speaks volumes. I read your stimulating letter with great interest. As I see it, the main argument in favor of the capitalist system is that it has raised the standard of living of the common man in an unprecedented way. Another even more substantial point of disagreement between Mises and many American libertarians was the question of democracy. A few months after F.E.E. set up shop, F.A. Baldy Harper saw the need to write a four-page confidential memorandum defending Mises' views on democracy against the criticisms of Orville Watts, who had pitted democracy against American-style liberalism. Mises would also come to taste a particular American flavor of hostility to democracy in a 1947 exchange of letters with Rose Wilder Lane. Apparently they had met for lunch with Hoyles and others, and Lane had the impression that Mises believed they shared the same outlook on fundamentals. At the meeting she did not feel it was the right moment to start a discussion on the subject, but later wrote to him to set the record straight. As an American I am of course fundamentally opposed to democracy, and to anyone advocating or defending democracy, which in theory and practice is the basis of socialism. It is precisely democracy which is destroying the American political structure, American law, and the American economy, as Madison said it would, and as Macaulay prophesied that it would do, in fact, in the twentieth century. Mises did not even bother to address the issue, but observed that he never addressed people who called his writings stuff and nonsense, as Lane had done in a book review. According to Lane, Mises had fallen prey to the confusion of egalitarianism. She quoted Mises, 
It is obvious that every constitutional system can be made to work satisfactorily when the rulers are equal to their task. Thereupon she comments, Stuff and nonsense! The basic fallacy of Germany was in the lack of a rational political thought, and this book admirably displays that lack. And that was that for more than two years, after which the debate resumed on more civilized terms, probably because of Lane's friendship with Howard Pugh. Mises' basic objection to Lane was that she had misunderstood him. He had never advocated any concrete regime of parliamentary democracy. He merely stressed the fact that all political systems ultimately hinge on mass opinion. Mises' American friends disagreed, and the discussions and correspondence between them remained without conclusion. But the confrontation between the Austrian scholar and his American readers and disciples would be a driving force in the development of libertarian theory. Mises' student, Marais Rothbard, would eventually work out the radical implications of Misesian economics with great care, combining the non-initiation of force criterion with the typical Misesian focus on private property rights. Rothbard thus created the blend of libertarian economics and natural law ethics that continues to attract many intellectuals to this day. The new radical environment contrasted sharply with the mentality of Mises' old associates, who had been libertarians by Central European standards, but were moderate interventionists in an American context. A case in point was Fritz Machlup. In a 1946 letter to Mises, he asked his old master to bless his evasive way of addressing pro-Labour Union audiences. He wrote, I would like your advice. I must soon give a lecture for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce on monopolistic wage determination as part of the general problem of monopoly. The lecture is to be published and will probably receive more attention than suits my liking. If the lecture were to be presented in a scientific forum, I could go into the history of ideas and a particular mill and so forth. But for the chamber, I must be practical and political. I will have no choice but to say that monopoly wages are the only purpose of labor unions and that strong labor unions mean unemployment and inflation and lead to an authoritarian state. Can an honest man avoid such statements? Are there any alternatives? If it is politically unthinkable to outlaw labor unions, and I assume this is the case today, can one consider government limitations on private wage increases? I'm not thinking, of course, of a fixing of wages through the state, but of a general interdiction to increase wages by more than 10% in three years or something of this sort. Of course, this is entirely fantastic. Would it be smarter not to mention such makeshift solutions at all? They have no prospect of being accepted. Mises replied that he would tell the chamber, first of all, liberate yourself from false ideas, study economics, then go on to convince others. And he emphasized, I reject any outlawing or limitation of the liberty of association. No liberties shall be abolished, only coercion. Correspondence between the two men had already become quite infrequent and would cool even further. Their estrangement thawed before Mises's 80th birthday, but would sink to an all-time low by the mid-1960s. Planned Chaos Montes de Oca had already talked to Mises in 1943 about writing an epilogue to the Spanish edition of socialism. But Mises probably did not turn to the task before 1945. Until then, the rate of progress on the translation was unclear, and Mises may well have been wary of engaging in another task for Montes de Oca, who so far had not completed any of the projects they had discussed in 1942. Mises had not even received agreed-upon payment for a study of Mexico. 
the prospective Mexican publishers of socialism, asked for an epilogue dealing with the Soviet experiment, both because dealing with the question was interesting in its own right, and since it would bring the book up to date. Mises replied evasively, suggesting that the best solution would be to write a special introduction for the Spanish edition. In early January 1946, Mises finally received payment for the study on Mexico he had written in 1943. He also worked rapidly on the completion of the epilogue his Mexican partners had asked for. The typewritten manuscript was probably finished at the end of the month. Mises received $590 for the study. He finished the epilogue at the end of December 1945. In July and August 1946, Mises lectured again in Mexico City. In the last days of July, Hayek joined him. They also toured the Central Plateau and spent some days on Lake Chapala. On the tour, he also gave a talk in Guadalajara, August 27th. Montes de Oca acted as a translator to attract a larger audience. One purpose of Mises' visit was to discuss the long-standing project of the Institute for the Social Sciences. This prospect must have been put to rest on that occasion. The subject did not come up again in any subsequent correspondence. But another project now took on ever more concrete shape. Hayek was trying to rally classical liberal scholars on both sides of the Atlantic to establish an international scholarly society devoted to the promotion of individual liberty. He planned to set up a meeting during the next year and sought to secure Mises' participation. At the end of the year, Montes de Oca was appointed as the Director General of the Mexican Central Bank, the Banco de México. His group later invited Hazlitt, early January 1947, as well as Hansen and Habler for lectures, January 1947. Mises himself was invited again for August 1947 to give a series of lectures critically analyzing Marxism. Upon his return to New York, Mises learned that Henry Hazlitt had had to leave the New York Times. This was not the first time Hazlitt's politics forced him out of a job. In 1933, he had quit his position as literary editor of The Nation, which did not welcome his hostility to the New Deal. Leaving the New York Times was a serious setback, but Hazlitt immediately found a new position at Newsweek, where he enjoyed the same liberty of opinion he once had enjoyed at The Times. He would write his Newsweek column for exactly twenty years, until he had to leave once again for ideological reasons. Mises himself fared much better, and continued his visit at NYU, where he taught a course on currency reform in the spring of 1947. In the fall of 1946, Mises also met a substantial number of European economists, such as Jacques Ruff, François Perroux, Trick Verhoff, and others who had travelled to the United States and were lecturing at FEE and other institutions. One likely subject of discussion was Hayek's plan for an international society of classical liberal scholars. A conference at Montpellier. Exactly one year after the establishment of the Foundation for Economic Education in New York, another organization was brought into existence to provide a forum for the exchange and development of ideas from a classical liberal perspective. Unlike FEE, this organization did not have any permanent headquarters. It was conceived as a society of academic scholars, and it mainly consisted of annual meetings, which have subsequently taken place at different cities throughout the world. Most importantly, however, this society was founded in the spirit of neoliberalism, and ever since, neoliberal scholars, politicians, and journalists have represented the bulk of its members. The society was a follow-up to the 1938 Lippmann Colloquium that Louis Rouget had organized in Paris. This time, the initiative fell quite naturally into the hands of Hayek. 
who was well known on both sides of the Atlantic due to the success of the road to serfdom, and also because he was among the first Western intellectuals to renew contact with his continental counterparts after the war. For example, by January 1949, Hayek had already paid several visits to Austria. In these meetings, the idea of a libertarian association slowly emerged. Hayek certainly discussed the issue when he met Mises at the end of July 1946 in Mexico, but at that point, there was not yet any concrete plan. From Mexico City, he flew to Oslo, where Trig Wehoff organized a preparatory meeting to discuss rather vague plans for the establishment of a neoliberal association of European intellectuals. There, the plan for an Acton Tocqueville society must have taken shape. Mises had been in touch with Hoff prior to June 28, 1946. Hoff had written a libertarian manifesto during the war. He sent the manuscript to Sweden, from where an American diplomat was supposed to send it to Alfred E. Knopf in New York, but the diplomat never did so. Hoff learned after the war that this was because the diplomat found the manuscript undemocratic, which probably meant that it was too critical of the fundamental dogmas of America's war ally. Hoff had also come to an independent discovery of the impossibility of economic calculation in socialism. Mises had the highest opinion of the Norwegian economist. Hoff was one of the few contemporaries whose judgment of the problems dealt with in human action is of consequence. By the end of the year, he had found the necessary funds to sponsor the event from Swiss, through Hunold, and American Volker Fund sources, and he wrote a letter of invitation to some 50 persons for a 10-day conference in the Swiss Alps, at the foot of Mount Pellerin on Lake Geneva. Hayek was probably anticipating trouble with Mises. On the invitation letter to him, Hayek added a handwritten apology that he had not had the time to discuss his plan with him in any detail. His apprehension turned out to be correct. Mises went through the roof, writing to Hayek that he could not leave NYU in April, and that he abhorred the idea of going to Europe. I have seen enough decline already. At Hazlitt's request, he had written a four-page memorandum containing his observations on Professor Hayek's plan. Here he stated that many similar plans to stem the tide of totalitarianism had been pursued in the past several decades. He himself had been involved in some of these projects, and each time the plan failed because these friends of liberty had themselves already been infected by the status virus. They did not realize that freedom is inextricably linked with the market economy. They endorsed, by and large, the critical part of the socialist programs. They were committed to a middle-of-the-road solution to interventionism. At the end of the memorandum, he stated his main objection. The weak point in Professor Hayek's plan is that it relies upon the cooperation of many men who are known for their endorsement of interventionism. It is necessary to clarify this point before the meeting starts. As I understand the plan, it is not the task of this meeting to discuss anew whether or not a government decree or a union dictate has the power to raise the standard of living of the masses. If somebody wants to discuss these problems, there is no need for him to make a pilgrimage to the Mont Pelerin. He can find in his neighborhood ample opportunity to do so. In his letter to Hayek, he was more specific. I am primarily concerned about the participation of Röpke, who is an outspoken interventionist. I think... The same holds true for Brandt, Gideonze, and Eastman. All three of them are contributors to the purely socialist, even though decidedly anti-Soviet, new leader. Mises suggested that Hayek invite Montes de Oca and Velasco from Mexico, Maestri from Cuba, and Hayton from Australia. 
Still, Mises did not rule out his participation, but he did suggest a postponement of the conference until September. This turned out to be impracticable, though, and Hayek undertook another attempt to convince his old mentor in early February. He downplayed the significance of Brandt, Gideon's, and Eastman's connections to the new leader, mentioning that he himself had written for this magazine. But more importantly, he argued that the program of the conference was still quite open, and that the main purpose of the meeting on Lake Geneva and of subsequent meetings would be to win over especially those historians and political scientists who still harboured wrong ideas on a number of issues, but who were willing to learn. This seems to have been enough to convince Mises to attend, at Hayek's suggestion, he got in touch with the main sponsor of the conference, the Kansas City-based William Volker Fund, and within a week travel arrangements were made through FEE. It was probably the first time Mises personally got in touch with Harold W. Luno and the well-endowed Volker Fund. The contact would prove to be highly beneficial in the course of the next 15 years, until the fund was liquidated in the early 1960s. German-born William Volker, 1859-1947, had made a fortune with a home furnishing business he had established in 1882 in Kansas City. In 1911, after finally marrying at the age of 52, he became a philanthropist. He eventually established, in 1932, a private fund to protect his capital against the encroachments of the tax code, especially the new income tax of 1916. That may have been Volcker himself who approved the support of the Montpellier Society meeting, which took place some seven months before he died but it is more likely that this was already the decision of his nephew, Harold Luno, who became the director of the fund in 1944 and turned it into the principal sponsor of libertarian scholarship. Shortly after Volker's death, the fund moved from Kansas City to Birmingham, California. This must have been between April 1949 and June 1951. Apparently, Luno's main source of libertarian inspiration had been Lauren Miller, who from 1942 to 1944 had been an executive of the Kansas City Civic Research Institute, a Volcker Fund outfit, before he departed for the Detroit Bureau of Governmental Research, another source of funding of post-war libertarianism. The influence of the Volcker Fund radiated far beyond the United States. By the end of 1953, it paid the membership fees for virtually all non-U.S. members of the Mont Pelerin Society. The fund's cooperation with Mises was very close, especially after Luno hired former FEE employees Herbert and Richard Conwell. Liaison's officers were Richard Conwell and Kenneth Templeton. Herbert Conwell left the fund in November 1953 for a business job in Honolulu. Most other libertarian think tanks and funds have been perverted over time, turning away from their initial principles. The Volcker Fund escaped this fate. It was liquidated in the early 1960s, when its directorship fell into the hands of those who could not identify with the libertarian orientation of its founder. The Montpellier Conference started on April 1st, 1947, and lasted for ten days. Mises left New York on March 25th, curious to see Europe again after almost seven years. The meeting had only a minimal agenda, and left a great deal of leeway for the participants to determine the subjects they wished to discuss in the course of the next days. Mises and Reed, Harper and Watts from FEE, as well as Hazlitt and Davenport, Fortune magazine, represented the Manchesterite fringe of the meeting. Hayek, Friedman and Mahloub were neoliberals. People like Walter Eucken, Harry Giddens, Bertrand de Jouvenel, Frank Knight, Michael Polanyi, Karl Popper, Wilhelm Röpke and George Stigler were liberal social democrats. Maurice Allais and Lionel Robbins represented the far left of the conference. 
Allaire could not even bring himself to endorse the vague statement of aims that all other participants approved on April 8th. In his opening address, Hayek set the agenda for the post-war ideological reconstruction of the classical liberal movement. It involved, Hayek explained, on the one hand, purging traditional liberal theory of certain accidental accretions which have become attached to it in the course of time, and, on the other hand, facing up to some real problems which an oversimplified liberalism has shirked or which have become apparent only since it has turned into a somewhat stationary and rigid creed. As later developments would show, the concrete meaning of this program was one, to exculpate classical liberalism from certain widely held criticism. For example, that the policies it had inspired had led to mass misery. Two, to distinguish the modern liberalism from its laissez-faire predecessor. Some of the other scheduled talks, however, were more neo and less liberal. For example, the German economist Walter Eucken explained that anti-monopoly legislation was not sufficient to combat monopolies. Further legislative interference was needed in the field of corporate law, patent law, and trademark law. He championed two maxims of economic policy. First, although there was to be freedom of contract, this freedom was not to be allowed to limit in any way the freedom of contract of others. Second, monopolistic market participants should be forced to behave as if they were in competition produce the same quantities and sell them at the same prices that would prevail under competition. In short, Eucken dished up the same interventionist agenda that had already dominated the Lippmann Colloquium in 1938. At that time, Mises had been on his honeymoon in Paris, which might explain why his contributions to the discussions had been unusually tame. Nine years later, the honeymoon was over. He reacted with great determination and defended his laissez-faire position so vigorously that many years later his friend Lawrence Furtick still recalled the debate. Milton Friedman eventually concurred. Our sessions were marked by vigorous controversy over such issues as the role of religion and moral values in making possible and preserving a free society, the role of trade unions, and the appropriateness of government action to affect the distribution of income. I particularly recall a discussion of this issue in the middle of which Ludwig von Mises stood up, announced to the assembly... You're all a bunch of socialists, and stomped out of the room, an assembly that contained not a single person who, by even the lowest standards, could be called a socialist. Friedman did not specify what he meant by the lowest standards. In any case, while Mises was able to hold socialists in high esteem, the incident showed that he had little patience with socialists parading as liberals. The exchange between Mises and his neoliberal opponents set the tone in the Montpellier society for years to come. Wilhelm Röpke would later pay a friendly tribute to Mises, even though the latter made sarcastic comments upon the unenlightened spirit of so many of its members, including Röpke himself. Although the libertarians around Mises were a small minority, it was they who had the financial backing of the main American sponsors, such as the Volcker Fund, without which the society would quickly have died out in those years. As long as Mises took an active part in the meetings, therefore, it was impossible to move on to discussing the technical details of an approved government interventionism. Laissez-faire had made a comeback. It was not the majority opinion, but it was a debatable and debated political option, too much for some initial members, such as Maurice Allais, who soon left the society for precisely this reason. Possibly Allais' visit to FEE in October 1947 reinforced his concerns that the American libertarians were far too radical for his taste. Despite fundamental disagreements, the meeting was a success. On April 9th, some 40 participants established the Mont Pelerin Society and elected Hayek as their president.
Eventually, Hunold from Zurich and Aaron Director became secretaries. Eucken, Dukes, Knight, Rappard, and Rolf were elected vice presidents, and Hardy became the treasurer. Mises, Anthony, Gideon, Sir Iverson, Robbins, and Röpke became members of the council. On December 10th, Albert Hunold announced that Mises would soon receive a photo album with some 70 pictures of the conference as a Christmas present. Preparing the Counter-Revolution By March 1945, Yale University Press had decided to publish an American edition of Nationalökonomie. The idea of a simple translation was never really an option. All sides agreed to publish a revised edition. In June 1945, Mises still said the book was to be published in an American edition next year. For the next three and a half years, Mises worked busily on this project. The revisions were not to be substantive. Their primary purpose was to adapt the work to the intellectual background of his American readers. In this task, Mises benefited enormously from the experience of Henry Hazlitt and Yale editor Eugene Davidson, both of whom suggested many areas of improvement. For example, Mises now dealt with doctrines and policy proposals that had specific importance in the United States, such as the Georgist theory of land taxation. But he especially modified his discussion of the fundamental philosophical problems of the science of human action. For example, in his German book, Mises felt he had to refute Ottmar Spann's universalist economics in great detail. He now dropped this discussion almost entirely and focused instead on the refutation of positivism and the use of quantitative methods in economic theory. He added an entirely new chapter, the only chapter with no counterpart in Nationalökonomie, to discuss the basic problems of probability theory, which was at the heart of the quantitative approach that dominated economic analysis in the Anglo-Saxon countries. In this chapter, Mises seized the opportunity to build on and elaborate the works of his brother Richard, who had pioneered the so-called relative frequency theory of probability. Mises considerably simplified the axiomatic exposition of the theory and argued, without mentioning his brother by name, that the standard account was redundant. Beyond the scholarly aspect of this contribution, the correction of his brother was a sequence in a typical Austrian literary squabble. Twelve years earlier, Richard had ventured into the field of his elder sibling and claimed in one of his books that laissez-faire policies had no scientific merit. Now Ludwig struck back, by demonstrating what an elegant exposition of the relative frequency theory looked like. Human Action almost became Mises' first posthumous publication. In October 1948, he and Margit had a very serious car accident. But the couple survived, and Ludwig put the finishing touches on the book by the spring of 1949. He sent copies of the manuscript to receptive publishers and friends, among them Jasper Crane, who ran the Van Nostrand Publishing Company and whom he knew well through FEE. A neoliberal coup in Germany. The 1947 Mont Pelerin Society meeting was enough to satisfy Mises' curiosity about Europe and European scholars for quite some time. Europe lay in shambles. Even Paris was in rags. He did not even wish to think about travelling to Austria. All that was good and memorable about Europe was in the past. No need for him to return to the old continent just to witness the misery induced by those very statist follies he had spent a lifetime fighting. When he was invited to the next Montpellier Society meeting, scheduled for July 1949 in the Swiss town of Zelisberg, he declined. Apparently, he also declined an invitation to lecture at the University of Vienna in a U.S.-sponsored program in 1948. Fritz Machlup took part. But his American friends at the Volker Fund thought it was crucial to have him on board, lest the interventionists have a free hand. 
De Montpellier society provided American libertarians not only with some cosmopolitan flair, but it also put them in touch with a mass of intellectuals close to their cause that could not be found at home. Moreover, in one of the great ironies of history, liberal principles had just been applied with overwhelming success in Germany, and a thorough acquaintance with Ludwig Erhard and the intellectual leaders of the German reforms promised to be helpful for American libertarians in their struggle at home. Nobody in the States knew the reformers, and curiosity was great. There was no similar curiosity for Italy, where Luigi Einaudi, after leading three years the country's central bank, had just been elected Italian president. Prompted by the news from Germany, Leonard Reed asked Mises about Earhart. The reply. The only fact I know about Professor Earhart is that he is the chairman of the Economic Advisory Board. This council is moderately interventionist and opposes the radical new dealism of the German political parties and of the outright socialist British military government. It is possible that the board's firmness in this matter is an achievement of Earhart's uncompromising attitude and the persuasiveness of his exposition of the principles of true liberalism. The only way to find out, however, was to go to Europe and meet the man and his supporters. But from Luno's point of view, this would only be worthwhile if men like Mises could be brought along to give the meetings the right orientation. Through the intermediation of Herbert Cornwell and Lauren Miller, Luno urged Mises to attend this Sirisberg meeting. Mises acceded. It would be a second return to Europe after immigration. In March 1950 he said that he had been to Europe twice, but not to Austria. He left New York at some point in June, and then went to Zelisberg from July 3rd to the 10th. The meeting was supposed to deal in particular with questions relating to the labor market, but, as was to be expected, it was entirely overshadowed by the discussion of recent events in West Germany. In March 1948, Ludwig Erhard had been appointed the director of the economic administration of the British-American Occupation Zone. A disciple of the social-liberal sociologist Franz Oppenheimer, Erhard was unknown in the world of libertarianism, which was probably why he got the job in the first place. During the Nazi era, Erhard had worked for two economic research institutes. After the war, he became the Bavarian Minister of the Economy and also attended the private seminar of Mises' friend Adolf Weber, who in those days was probably the most Austrian professor of economics. Weber championed the theory of the market process and of consumer sovereignty that was virtually indistinguishable from Mises' views. It was probably under the impact of the discussions in the Weber circle that Earhart received the vision and inspiration for his reforms of June 1948. But the virtually unknown Earhart lost no time in setting out a liberal coup. Three months after his appointment, he made two bold decisions. Against the regulations of the British military government, he, one, abolished virtually all price controls, and two, introduced a new currency, the German mark. The very next day, the stores and shops were filled with merchandise. Businessmen had cut back production during the post-war years, and retailers held back commodities, reserving them for sales on the black market where higher prices could be obtained. This lamentable state of affairs had resulted from the Nazi system of price controls, which had made profitable production impossible, and turned the open market into a black market. The Allied occupation forces had maintained it at the behest of a small group of influential left-wing economic at the behest of a small group of influential left-wing economic advisers, for whom central planning and government controls were state-of-the-art. In those days, Walter Eucken, one of the intellectual leaders behind the Erhard reforms, wrote to Mises about the need for further deregulation. The German authorities with whom I am in constant touch try everything to this effect, but American economic policies in Germany are still essentially based on central planning. Erhard overthrew this system, thus 
creating the economic foundations of the Western Federal Republic of Germany, which came to be established in the fall of 1949. More than that, he had put into practice a classical liberal alternative to the Marshall Plan for post-war reconstruction. A few years later, the banking theorist Heinrich von Rittershausen speculated in private correspondence with Mises that Gemeinwirtschaft had laid a foundation for Erhard's success because all of the significant young people read it carefully during the twelve bookless years. A year before the Erhard reforms, on June fifth, nineteen forty-seven, U.S. Secretary of State George Marshall had presented his proposal for the economic reconstruction of Europe through the large-scale spending of U.S. tax money. In subsequent years and decades, the story of the Marshall Plan has been told and retold from the point of view of its sponsors, thus becoming part of modern welfare state mythology. High school students in all Western countries learn that Marshall Plan funded government spending, initiated a new phase of economic growth after the Second World War. In the cold light of economic reasoning, however, we can see that the Marshall Plan was, in essence, a scheme for postponing the bankruptcy of socialism and the welfare state. In private correspondence, Mises pointed out that the European countries had already nationalized railroads, telegraph, electric power, telephone, mines, and many factories. And he went on to add, they have already expropriated by taxation all higher incomes and cannot expect any additional revenue from pushing further the policy of soaking the rich. Thus, they want the American taxpayer to foot the bill for the deficits incurred by their glorified socialization policy. They call this scheme the Marshall Plan. In December 1948, when Leonard Reed asked him for his opinion of Earhart, Mises did not know the man. In the following years, however, he familiarized himself with the writings of Earhart and found that they closely reflected the opinions of his advisers. Cologne professor of economics Alfred Müller-Armack, as well as Wilhelm Röpke and Walter Eucken, during the 1950s, Mises realized. That the very success of Earhart's free market reforms was liable to be used against the market economy, because the reforms were sold in terms of interventionist rhetoric. He therefore honoured the German reformers with a lengthy comment in his most prominent book. The supporters of the most recent variety of interventionism, the German Soziale Marktwirtschaft, stress that they consider the market economy to be the best possible and most desirable system of society's economic organisation. And that they are opposed to the government omnipotence of socialism, but of course, all these advocates of a middle-of-the-road policy emphasise, with the same vigour, that they reject Manchesterism and laissez-faire liberalism. It is necessary, they say, that the state interfere with the market phenomena, whenever and wherever the free play of the economic forces results in conditions that appear as socially undesirable. In making this assertion, they take it for granted that it is the government. That is called upon to determine in every single case whether or not a definite economic fact is to be considered as reprehensible from the social point of view, and consequently whether or not the state of the market requires a special act of government interference. All these champions of interventionism fail to realize that their program thus implies the establishment of full government supremacy in all economic matters, and ultimately brings about a state of affairs that does not differ from what is called the German. Or the Hindenburg pattern of socialism. If it is the jurisdiction of the government to decide whether or not definite conditions of the economy justify its intervention, no sphere of operation is left to the market. Then it is no longer the consumers who ultimately determine what should be produced, in what quantity, of what quality, by whom, where, and how, but it is the government. For as soon as the outcome brought about by the operation of the unhampered market differs from what the authorities consider socially desirable. 
the government interferes. That means the market is free as long as it does precisely what the government wants it to do. It is free to do what the authorities consider to be the right things, but not to do what they consider the wrong things. The decision concerning what is right and what is wrong rests with the government. Thus, the doctrine and the practice of interventionism ultimately tend to abandon what originally distinguished them from outright socialism and to adopt entirely the principles of totalitarian all-round planning. Until the mid-1950s, Mises was apparently reluctant to even meet with Earhart. Röpke thought this was because Mises was under the influence of his closest German intellectual ally, Volkmar Muthesius, a sharp and relentless critic of Earhart's economic policies. Mises' reservations did not grow weaker through personal contact with representatives of the German Ordo school of neoliberalism. Quite the contrary. In private correspondence from the mid-1950s, he stated, I have more and more doubts whether it is possible to cooperate with Ordo interventionism in the Montpellier society. The site of the 1949 Montpellier society meeting was one of the legendary places of European libertarianism, the town of Zerisberg, located at the foot of a mountain of the same name. It was in the Rudliwiese, one of the adjacent meadows, that in early August 1291, Swiss patriots deliberated in secret meetings to prepare the overthrow of the regime of Emperor Rudolf, who had imposed a wide variety of new laws and taxes. The Montpellier Society convened more comfortably in hotel facilities, and not all of its participants were eager to overthrow the burgeoning new welfare state. Wilhelm Röpke, for example, was more concerned about defining a role for government in fighting against proletarianization. Karl Popper tried to do the same thing for the field of education and research. A New Yorker After a brief return to Manhattan, Mises went to Mexico City for the month of August to lecture at the Asociación Mexicana de Cultura. He and Margaret arrived on the night of July 29th, and he soon started his 12-session course on economic theory, seasoned with a survey of the past 200 years of European history and excursions into the history of thought. Among other things, he explained how Keynes was influenced by the German socialists of the chair and how he outdipped them in many points. The seminar participants enjoyed the privilege of receiving advance copies of Human Action. They stayed at the Ritz, and he received $1,500 for the seminar. During this trip, Montes de Oca delicately raised the question again of whether Mises would stay permanently in Mexico. Mises apparently replied that he now desired to stay in New York City because it has become the intellectual center of the present day. Montes de Oca would have left it at that, but a few months later he felt the need to raise the question yet again in writing. There has been what might be termed a movement among Mexican businessmen to invite you to become advisor for various business organizations, more or less in the capacity you performed this function in the Vienna Chamber of Commerce. After serious reflection, Mises again declined, referring this time to his advanced age, which would prevent him from acquiring a sufficient command of the Spanish language, but he emphasized that if he were twenty years younger, I would not refuse your kind proposition. And he also said that the invitation was very tempting from another point of view. My three visits to your country have shown me that the climate of opinion is today in Mexico more favorable to the acceptance of sound economic ideas than in any other country. But this did not alter his decision. Not only had Mises become an American, he was now a New Yorker. Chapter 20 Human Action and Its Consequences by the late 1940s, Mises was well integrated in the emerging network of American libertarians. His NYU seminar, his lectures at Montpellier Society meetings and other conferences, and his writings 
had established his impact on the rising generation. And even beyond the circles of organized libertarianism, he had gained a nationwide reputation as an economist and social analyst of the First Order, though for most academics his methods and political orientation smacked too much of times past. The publication of Human Action in September 1949 produced a quantum leap in his prominence and impact. Overnight, Mises turned into the central intellectual figure of the entire American right, an event that was paralleled during the next decade only in the case of Atlas Shrugged, the novel that catapulted Ayn Rand to even greater fame, at least among the general public. Mises now appeared to the public not merely as a scholar of the old school, but as one of the great minds of Western civilization, a creative genius who had not only mastered all aspects of his science, but had completely transformed this science to offer a new way of looking at social processes and relationships. Human action was a success without precedent. His 1922 treatise on socialism had been a sensation too, but only because of the general recognition that theoretical socialism offered no help with the problems of post-war reconstruction. The socialist avant-garde had seized power in Germany and Austria, but then had no idea what to do, and this crisis quickly turned from a theoretical one to a political one when socialist governments drastically aggravated conditions rather than improving them. Mises' comprehensive analysis in Gemeinwirtschaft delivered a breathtakingly lucid explanation of this mess. But while the book provoked outrage and fury in the socialist camp, and initiated a paradigm shift in the thinking of an entire generation, it had not become the rallying banner of a movement. Its author had been a relatively junior economist, and no institutions were in place to concentrate and organize the readers the book had convinced. American ground was more fertile. It had been prepared by a long tradition of individual liberty and a recent reorientation toward that tradition. There were, in effect, the makings of a movement just waiting for human action to form its intellectual nucleus. And just as important, there were institutions and individual promoters eager to accelerate it. Moreover, Mises himself was already one of the intellectual leaders of this grassroots movement. He knew writers and journalists who would promote his book, and there were men who stood ready to sponsor his subsequent work. Supporters now came in droves, asking Mises to give lectures and seminars. Wealthy businessmen sought his advice and often did what he recommended. And the Freeman, the first libertarian journal of a distinctly Misesian flavor, might never have seen the light of day without the glory that human action brought to its author. Mises now became the true spiritus rector at FEE, which had previously featured him as one among several consultants. To get a taste of the pre-1949 character of FEE, Consider the case of Murray Rothbard. The man who would become Mises' most important disciple had learned about FEE through a small brochure with the title Roofs or Ceilings, Attacking Rent Control Laws. Leonard Reed had printed 500,000 copies. The authors of the brochure were two young Chicago economists by the names of Milton Friedman and George Stigler. This was in September 1946. Rothbard continued to read FEE publications and attended their conferences, yet in the spring of 1948 the future pillar of the Misesian Renaissance had never even heard of Austrian economics. It appears that neither Leonard Reed's FEE, nor for that matter any of the other emerging libertarian organizations, had placed any special emphasis on Mises or the tradition he represented. Then human action came in one mighty blow and rendered FEE devotedly Misesian. First Reactions Neither Mises nor his friends expected the success the book would have. 
After his return from Mexico, Mises left for a two-week vacation in the Berkshire Mountains. The book was released to the bookshops while he was away on September 14, 1949. In his weekly Newsweek column, Henry Hazlitt announced and praised it, anticipating the role it would play in subsequent events. Human action is, in short, at once the most uncompromising and the most rigorously reasoned statement of the case for capitalism that has yet appeared. If any single book can turn the ideological tide that has been running in recent years so heavily to its statism, socialism, and totalitarianism, human action is that book. This was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Not three months later, by December 6th, more than 4,000 copies had been sold, and the book was in its third printing. With the reports of ever more sales, Mises's euphoria lasted for months. The only dark cloud was that Margit had been ill in November. His NYU seminar addressed fundamental problems and theorems of economics and their relationship to philosophical, historical, and political ideas. It started on his birthday, September 29th. When Ludwig and Margit spent New Year's Day 1950 with Hazlitt, Schütz, and Hayek at their Manhattan apartment on West End Avenue, it was already clear that human action was a phenomenal success, especially for a 900-page scientific treatise. Even his ideological opponents had to admit that the 68-year-old economist had written a capitalist manifesto and a truly unvarnished and unconditional defense of laissez-faire. Many other reviews followed over the course of the next several months. Most of these were insubstantial, and their criticisms boiled down to copying at the book's pontifical style. In private correspondence, Oskar Morgenstern declared that he could not agree with Mises' statements on game theory. He did not explain why he disagreed, but said that the matter is far deeper and that it actually does produce results that cannot be had without it. I can see this from certain applications which are now being made in various fields, but these are all matters of difference that are fortunately on a level of common understanding. This was certainly helpful. Mises must have been somewhat bemused, however, that Morgenstern did not quite remember the title of the book that he professed to have read to a great extent. In his letter he thanked Mises for having sent him a copy of Economic Action. One reviewer had the audacity to complain that as a reader of the work one continually has the sense of being argued out of existence, but other reviews were receptive to its monumental contributions. Young Murray Rothbard praised human action as a masterpiece of original synthesis. The book contained a complete structure of economic science, which was firmly grounded in praxeology, the general principles of individual action. Similarly, Richard C. Cornwell highlighted that Mises had integrated value and price theory and was therefore in a position to defend capitalism without basing his reasoning on such fictions as Homo economicus. The book also found an exceptionally friendly reception in Germany, where Cologne University professor Armin Spithaler published a long review in the Weltwirtschaftliches Archiv. In South Africa, a young professor adopted Mises' epistemological point of view without reservations in his fall 1950 inaugural lecture at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. The man who lectured on economics as a social science, Ludwig Lachmann, was a graduate of the London School of Economics, where he had studied in the 1930s under Hayek and Robbins. Before that, he had been a student of Werner Zombarts in Berlin. Lachmann was already acquainted with Mises's a prioristic epistemology, which the Vienna economist had first outlined in his 1933 Grundprobleme der Nationalökonomie, epistemological problems of economics, and which now for the first time hit the Anglo-Saxon intellectual scene. 
Lachman must have sent Mises a copy of this lecture. A member of Mises's NYU seminar, George Curter, arranged for Chapter 35, The Economics of War, to be reprinted by the New York-based Christian Freedom Foundation, CFF, in September 1950, as a reaction to the Korean War, which should soon entail a new round of price controls and economic regimentation. Curter worked at the time both for CFF and for FEE. The Foundation reprinted the chapter in its fortnightly newspaper, Christian Economics. CFF was at the time located on 26 West 58th Street in Manhattan. Around 1957, his offices moved to 250 West 57th Street. This publication reached some 100,000 clergymen spread out over the entire country. This might have been Mises' first contact with CFF and its staff, and it became a productive and beneficial collaboration that would last a lifetime. George Curter continued to attend Mises' NYU seminar for many years and became a personal friend of Ludwig and Margit's. After Ludwig's death, he helped Margit write her autobiographical recollection, My Years with Ludwig von Mises. In the 1950s, he worked in the New York area, first for CFF and FEE, then as an automotive and transportation editor of Look magazine, and eventually as an economist for the U.S. Steel Corporation. The latter position is mentioned in a March 1959 letter for Mises to Hayek. Kurta also initiated the creation in 1956 of a Mises bust by his sculptor friend Mrs. Erickson. Thereafter, his relationship with the Mises couple quickly turned into fond friendship. Mises had another disciple and admirer on the CFF staff, Brooklyn-born Percy Laurie Graves, 1906-1984, was the American self-made man par excellence. Before he began to work at the Christian Freedom Foundation in 1950, he had been a bookkeeper, seaman, advertising manager, instructor in economics, financial editor, ghostwriter, and research assistant to the U.S. Congress, where he had collaborated in the investigation of the Pearl Harbor attack and in the drafting of the Taft-Hartley Act. Graves had left Christian economics no later than March 1959. In his job search, he then presented himself as a leading disciple of Professor Ludwig von Mises, the world-famous analyst of socialist fallacies and leading exponent of the free market society. By then, he had met Bettina Bean. Graves had previously been married in 1930 and had three children. Graves faithfully attended all sessions of Mises' NYU seminar and, together with his future wife, Bettina Bean, wrote minutes for each one of them. Eventually, he made a career out of promoting Misesian economics in public lectures and seminars. But most importantly, the Graves' cared for their professor in the late 1960s and early 1970s, when Mises and his octogenarian spouse became frail. After Mises died in 1973, they continued to assist Margaret von Mises. When Percy died, Bettina continued to take care of her revered teacher's widow until Margaret too died in 1993 at the age of 103. Bettina then became the curator of Ludwig von Mises' literary estate, as she still is today. The president of CFF and editor of Christian Economics was Howard Kirshner, but the man behind the organization and its journal was the wealthy Philadelphia industrialist J. Howard Pugh, who had inherited the Sun Oil Company from his father and was an extremely successful entrepreneur in his own right. Pugh assumed various social responsibilities besides sponsoring CFF, he was the chairman of the board of Grove City College in western Pennsylvania, and he owned the Chilton Press, which published The Pathfinder and The Farm Journal. The Pew family had a solid track record of opposition to interventionism. It sold virtually all of its highly profitable European business when confronted with the alternative of joining government-sponsored cartels. 
Mises had known him at least since March 1945, when the National Association of Manufacturers sent him the manuscript of a talk in which Pugh had explained how cartels threaten economic progress. The two men had entered into direct correspondence in November 1948, when Pugh asked Mises to write a letter to the editor of the New York Times in response to what they both believed was a shameful column by a certain Edward Collins. Mises declined the request, responding that any such attempt was futile. First of all, they have the habit of editing and shortening such letters so that they lose a good deal of their persuasive power or even become completely garbled. Secondly, the editor or the columnist has the privilege of the last word. The effect on the uncritical reader is always that his paper is right. What is needed to fight such allegedly non-dogmatic dogmas as those advanced by Mr. Collins and a host of other writers is an independent journal of opinion. Mises later explained in private correspondence with a reader of human action who wondered why the libertarian message did not make it into the press. The newspapers and magazines published in this country are either operated on a commercial basis or on newspapers and magazines of opinion. The publishers and editors of the first group are anxious not to antagonize the feelings of the majority or a considerable part of their readers. If they cannot refuse printing an article or a letter to the editor which attacks the popular errors concerning the fair deal and similar policies, they edit it. They cut down the arguments of the author in such a way that they become clumsy nonsense. The effect upon the reader is just a contrary of what the author intended. They get the impression that the market economy is advocated exclusively by bunglers and halfwits. The second group consists almost exclusively of outright communists, half-communists, and other pink publications. There are a few exceptions. One is the Wall Street Journal, another one is Plain Talk, but the Wall Street Journal is solely read by bankers and businessmen. Plain Talk does not get sufficient backing and may be forced to go out of business. Mises had had personal experiences with this type of journalism. In 1944, for example, the New York Times had published a smear-job review of omnipotent government by a notorious Stalinist, who had obviously never read the book. Pew was quick to react. In early December 1948, he met with the team running Plain Talk magazine, Alfred Kohlberg, Isaac Don Levine, and Eugene Lyons, to discuss the advisability of making it into just such a journal of opinion. Pew's idea was to provide a forum for Mises, Hazlitt, and other select economists. These talks did not lead to the desired result, but two years later, one year after the publication of Human Action, Pew stood again first in line to finance a libertarian journal of opinion, The Freeman, which for a few glorious years would spread Austrian economics among a larger public. Pew had the habit of giving away shares of his corporation, Sun Oil, to all of his employees. Starting in 1951, he also gave such shares to Mises as Christmas gifts. He did this every year until 1968. He wrote, While you have been devoting your life to saving the world from those processes which inevitably lead to communism, the rest of us have been devoting our time to operating industry to the exclusion of everything else, so that we have been blinded to the future. And so I hope you will accept from me, at this Christmas season, a small token of my appreciation in the form of a few shares of stock in the company to which I have devoted my life. Apparently, the two men had started socialising around October of 1949, when Pew was a lunch guest in the Mises' apartment. Misesians. Mises and his circle of friends were not the only libertarians who had not believed human action could become a bestseller. Herbert C. Conwell and the people at the Volcker Fund had sensed that the Misesian edifice was too intellectual to be digested by the general American public. 
What was needed was a more boiled-down version of the book, which would facilitate the penetration of the message into the larger public. But who could write such a work? Conwell thought he had found the right person in Murray Rothbard, who had been in touch with F.E.E. from at least 1946. Apparently, he met Mises for the first time at a F.E.E. lecture in the summer of 1948. This was an invitation to attend a meeting on July 8th, when Ludwig von Mises would be speaking. By that time, Rothbard held degrees in mathematics and economics, but knew almost nothing about Austrian economics. By the spring of 1948, when he passed his oral exams, he had never heard of Austrian economics, except, as he later recalled, as something that had been integrated into the main body of economics by Alfred Marshall sixty years before. Rothbard had a distinct recollection of his pre-human action economic worldview. I had a definite instinctive feeling or insight or whatever that there was something wrong with all the schools of economics. I was very unhappy with all the economic theory. I thought that the institutionalists, when the institutionalists were criticizing the orthodox Anglo-American economics, that they were right, and when the orthodox people were criticizing the institutionalists, they were right. The criticisms were right, and I believed that the simple supply and demand stuff was correct, but I didn't really have a good theoretical base. I wasn't happy with any theories offered. And then when I read Human Action, the whole thing just slipped into place because everything made sense. Shortly before he left FEE to work for the Volcker Fund, Herbert Conwell asked Mises to keep an eye on the Columbia University graduate. He called him one of the most outstanding liberal economics students I know, and mentioned that Rothbard would be interested in attending the NYU seminar. Some weeks before the publication of Human Action, then, Mises and Rothbard seemed to have discussed Rothbard's project of writing a Misesian textbook on economics, a guide for the intelligent layman. After Mises' approval of an outline of the proposed book, Rothbard wrote to Cornwell in November 1949, declaring that he was interested in the subject and that Mises had asked him to draft a representative chapter on money and banking on the unhampered market. During those months, Rothbard took part in Mises' NYU seminar, which dealt that winter with Marxism, and in the spring moved on to the discussion of other schools of thought. It reinforced a message Rothbard had derived from reading Human Action. From you, I've learned for the first time that economics is a coherent structure, and I'm sure that this has been impressed on the other members of the seminar as well. By early January 1951, less than 16 months after the publication of Human Action, Cornwell and Mises had received the representative chapter. Cornwell was enthusiastic about the work, and Mises also thought that Rothbard would be the right person to write a textbook on Austrian economics after getting his Ph.D. He wrote to Cornwell, I think that Rothbard's chapter on money and banking is very satisfactory. It certainly proves his ability to write a textbook much better than those I have had an opportunity to see. I hope he will continue his work as soon as he will have finished his thesis. But Cornwell did not wait. He offered Rothbard financial support from the Volcker Fund so that the project could go forward. Rothbard began working for the fund on January 1st, 1952 and continued his intensive work for them for the next six years. Murray Rothbard was the first in a long line of whiz kids who found a new intellectual home in human action and in Mises' seminar. Over the next fifteen years it happened with great regularity that highly gifted young men such as George Resch and Paul Cantor suddenly sought admission to the NYU seminar. Some of them even sought admission to Mises' residence. One day Mises was ready to go out for dinner when the doorbell rang. Two youngsters were standing at the door and offered a subscription to the Freeman magazine. 
Mises declined the offer, saying he was already on their mailing list. He did not know that this was his first contact with two of his most ardent followers, Ralph Rako and George Reisman. Rako and Reisman were both fifteen years old. They had been reading The Freeman for a year or two and had also read some of Mises' books. Inspired, they had established the Cobden Club, an organization of right-wing students to fight the good fight. One day, they decided to pay their hero a visit and came up with the ruse of presenting themselves as salesmen. Fortunately, they then decided to do things the proper way and paid a visit to the FEE offices in Irvington, where they met with Ivan Bierney, who was so impressed by their knowledge that he asked Mises whether he would be willing to receive them. Within ten days the meeting was arranged, and the old man, who fortunately did not remember their faces, advised the boys about the proper way to study economics and spend their time in college. That first meeting took place on February 23rd. He persuaded them that they had to invest more time learning about economics and liberty, rather than propagandizing theories that they did not really understand. As a token of his trust in their talents, he invited them to attend his NYU seminar on the condition that they did not make noise. They would attend his seminar for many years and become important advocates of Misesian economics. They both learned German on Mises' advice. Reiko translated Liberalismus into English, and Reismann did the same for Grundprobleme, epistemological problems on economics at the free and prosperous Commonwealth. The title of the latter book was changed in subsequent editions to Liberalism, a Socio-Economic Exposition. The Volcker Fund sponsored Reiko's translation, which he began in the summer of 1956. Speeches and Papers Encouraged by the success of human action, Mises turned again to fighting the prevailing ideology of interventionism. On April 18, 1950, he attended a reception of New York's University Club, held in honor of the author of Human Action, and addressed the audience in an after-dinner speech on the economics of the middle-of-the-road policy. The talk was a huge success. Two weeks later, the lecture was printed in the Financial and Commercial Chronicle, and at the end of the year, Frederick Neumeyer printed 1,000 copies of it as a pamphlet for his campaign to counter the growing socialism among his fellow Calvinists. Mises went on to write a series of articles on various aspects of interventionism, which he published mainly in three journals, Commercial and Financial Chronicle, Plain Talk, and The Freeman. These pieces both drew on the success of human action and spurred further interest in the book within the grassroots libertarian movement. Yet, Mises certainly harbored no illusions about their short-run impact. The libertarian tradition was old in America, and it was still strong, but he was well aware that current trends were eroding it relentlessly. If interventionism continues to be the policy of the U.S., this country will before long go outright totalitarian. This concern was soon confirmed by the policies adopted in the wake of the Korean War. When war broke out in the fall of 1950, the U.S. government immediately reinstituted the wartime regime of price controls and regulations. In the spring of 1950, Mises attended a conference dedicated to analyzing the impact of the current Korean War mobilization on the American economy. The conference took place on April 5th through the 8th in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, and was sponsored by the William Volcker Fund. He then wrote a lengthy paper for the 1951 Mont Pelerin Society meeting in Beauvalon. Its subject was the nature of entrepreneurial profit and loss, which, Mises explained, resulted exclusively from the relative quality of entrepreneurial decision-making and therefore could not possibly be abolished through legislation or any other form of government intervention. He also demonstrated the social utility of profit and loss. 
profits direct resources into those hands that use them in the way most desired by consumers. Losses help eliminate incompetent entrepreneurs, thus preventing a waste of resources. The work was ready by early June, and Mises sent it to Neumeier. At the same time, he must have finished at least the first draft of another important work. By June 1951, he had written a manuscript on dialectical materialism, a later version of which was probably incorporated as a chapter in theory and history. His Calvinist friend immediately recognized its suitability for widespread dissemination. Even before the Montpellier Society meeting began, Neumeier had agreed to publish the paper and set out to print 5,000 copies, of which the Volker Fund immediately ordered 1,500 copies. In his renewed effort to combat interventionism, Mises began by writing on such topics as middle-of-the-road policies, inflation, and profit and loss, rather than free trade or direct foreign investments. He believed that it was important to target domestic interventionism. To one correspondent in Sweden, who sought to launch a campaign for free trade, Mises explained why this campaign could only be based on a preceding campaign focused on domestic policies. One could take into consideration the abolishment of protectionism in the time of Cobden and Chevalier, as freedom of commerce existed within each state, or it was at least on its way to it being established. Things are very different in the age of interventionism. Each country has a system of varying privileges for individual interest groups, pressure groups. None of these measures would work if foreign countries were to freely supply the domestic market of this country. Keeping away foreign competition is, for this reason, an indispensable complement to domestic economic policy. U.S. representatives occasionally indulge in talk of free trade. This is pure illusion. American agricultural policies, parity prices, subsidies, limitation of crop services, destruction of supplies, potatoes, among other things, would collapse overnight if foreign imports were freely allowed into the country. Can you imagine a present-day England or present-day France with a regime of free trade? The more a country proceeds to a comprehensive control of all business activities, the more it must close itself to foreign countries. The battle for free trade must therefore first attack domestic protectionist measures. Similarly, he wrote a few years later to Auger, an interventionist government can virtually annul all the expected advantages of the disappearance of customs barriers by domestic intervention. Under the conditions of interventionism, a really common market can be achieved only by a common government that has the power to delimit strictly the jurisdiction of the various national governments. Of course, this does not mean that he would now downplay the importance of free trade. He discussed it in his lectures and occasionally also in correspondence. A master of concision, Mises sometimes addressed the point better in correspondence than in his books. For example, in response to the perennial question of whether free trade would cost American jobs, he replied, Wages are cheaper in almost all foreign countries than they are in this country, but total costs of production are for most commodities, practically for all manufactured goods, lower in this country than they are abroad. What counts in competing on the market is not the height of one item of the total bill of costs, but total costs of production. There are, of course, some minor and less important branches of manufacturing which under free trade would lose a part of their customers to foreign competition, but such an increase of imports can, other things being equal, only occur if there is to some extent an increase in American exports. If the Swiss are flooding America with watches, America must flood Switzerland with some other goods as payment for the increased amount of Swiss watches received. For the Swiss do not give the watches away as gifts. They are selling them. The Freeman 
their success of human action prompted the creation of another important libertarian institution. Mises had long been arguing the need for a free market journal of opinion. Now organizers, journalists, and especially financial backers rallied to establish such a journal. Its explicit purpose would be to promote the ideas Mises stood for. The Austrian economist became the intellectual standard-bearer of the Freeman, which reinforced the infant network of Mises' NYU seminar, FEE, and the Mont Pelerin Society. Despite its eventual departure from its founding auspices, the Freeman would play a significant role in the revival of American libertarianism under new Austrian auspices. Two historians have aptly summarized this role. It is difficult to convey a sense of the crucial role of the Freeman at the height of its prestige between 1950 and 1954. The American left in these years had many well-known and reputable journals from which to choose. The American right had almost none. By the end of 1955, when new owners changed the nature of the magazine, a self-conscious and relatively coherent movement had evolved. If creeping conservatism was the grand trend of the 1950s, then the Freeman had been its professional and articulate journal of opinion. The Freeman began as a successor to the journal Plain Talk, which for some time had been in financial trouble and could only survive on subsidies from New York businessman Alfred Kohlberg. Initial financing of the Freeman came through the fundraising efforts of Jasper Crane, which had resulted in a substantial donation from Herbert Hoover and sizable loans from Howard G. Pugh and Crane himself. In a note dated October 3, 1952, John Chamberlain called Hoover the principal founder of the Freeman. Later, Leo Wallman successfully set up an advertisement program, which was then followed through by Kurt Lassen. The explicit motivation of Pugh and Crane was to provide a forum for the author of human action and like-minded intellectuals, but to ensure editorial independence, all initial funds came in the form of donations and loans rather than by stock. Shortly after the establishment of the Freeman, Frederick Neumeyer had written to business friends that Dr. von Mises has been a prime mover on the program to put out a truly liberal, meaning by that, laissez-faire capitalism, periodical, to counter-influence the flood of leftist publications. The man who finally organized the financial matters for such a publication is Mr. Jasper Crane. Crane was at that time a director of DuPont and member of its executive committee. Leadership of the Freeman was in the hands of its three editors, Henry Hazlitt, John Chamberlain, and Suzanne La Follette. Chamberlain became the president and Hazlitt the vice president of the journal. They published the Freeman as a fortnightly review, with Mises on an 11-man board of directors. The first issue appeared on October 2nd, 1950. The Freeman had two predecessors by the same name. The first Freeman was published for a couple of years in the 1920s. The editor was Alfred J. Nock. In the 1930s, then a former assistant to Nock, Suzanne La Follette, published a successor for about 14 months. La Follette also joined the editorial team of Chamberlain's and Hazlitt's Freeman in 1950. Many observers greeted the new publication as the necessary exception in a media landscape dominated by the left. Raymond Moley explained to his readers in Newsweek, It is difficult to realize how firmly entrenched in this country are the forces which would pervert the free institutions of this country into the reality of a socialist state. The drift toward more state power, particularly federal power, began many years ago under such names as progressivism or liberalism. This movement, as organized politics, ultimately captured the Democratic Party under FDR. It pervades most of the economic and political thinking in our colleges and universities. It has seized ascendancy in our literary criticism and book reviewing. And finally, 
Through the political arms of the CIO and AFL, it has measurably brought together into a hardcore the immense financial and voting strength of the unions. No little credit for this is due to two journals of opinion, The Nation and New Republic. These journals, once the voice of minority protest, have become the gospel of what has almost become an established order of thinking. A whole generation of teachers and other leaders of thought have, to a measurable degree, taken their political bearings from these journals. The Freeman's great role is that of a protest against the new orthodoxy, which holds that all good comes from the state. This new protest has the virtue, however, of conformity to the oldest and best traditions of American freedom, traditions that, if neglected too long, will wither and die. The journal had an excellent start. Subscriptions increased from 5,203 in the first issue to 12,200 in May 1951. By March 1952, Time and Newsweek reported that the new kid on the block distributed close to 20,000 copies. At the end of March 1952, Alfred Kohlberg dropped out as treasurer and returned to his important business. In came Alex Hillman, publisher of Pageant and People Today and other magazines. This was the first great blossoming of Austro-Libertarianism in America. Mises now felt that things had substantially improved, and he wrote in correspondence that the case for liberty had made great progress since the dark days of 1945. Casimir Lambert, who left the United States in 1946, had just returned. Mises wrote to him that, meanwhile, many things have changed for the better. The Freeman not only provided Mises with a forum for his ideas, but also with an organizational basis through which he could reach out directly to students. At the initiative of Henry Hazlitt, the Freeman sponsored a two-week Mises seminar in the afternoons of June 25th through July 6th, 1951, in the alumni room of the NYU Faculty Club on Washington Square. Mises was not in New York during the first three weeks of June, and left New York City again on July 10th, probably for the Mont Pelerin Society meeting in Beauvalon. In the first week, Mises dealt with fundamental problems of economic analysis, and in the second, turned to monetary economics. Young Leland Yeager, at the time a graduate student in monetary economics, was one of the 39 participants. The second week would leave a lasting impression on him. He wrote, Reading your books is very instructive, but seeing and hearing you in person is a genuine inspiration. You revealed yourself not only as a great economist, but as a great humanitarian too. The interventionists who cite you as an example of a die-hard reactionary are only showing their own complete ignorance. What a pity that the world has so few intellectually courageous men like you. Bettina Bean took lecture notes of this seminar. In the 1980s, Jaeger held the Ludwig von Mises Chair in Political Economy at Auburn University in Alabama. He is the author of a famous textbook on international monetary relations. Jaeger was one of the few student participants. Most members of the seminar were teachers, journalists, businessmen, and professors. The two weeks were a great success and led to a second Mises seminar in June and July 1952 in San Francisco's public library before an audience of 46 participants. There was also another 1951 meeting in White Sulphur Springs, which Mises did not like at all because of the presence of too many statists. Again, the first week was dedicated to fundamentals. Mises here delivered his analysis of dialectical materialism, which a few years later appeared as a chapter of his book Theory and History. In the second week, he dealt with capital theory, saving, investment, and the accumulation of capital, the demand for capital, and the economic and political significance of foreign investment. Again, this seminar was very successful, but it did not go to his head. 
When invited to appear on television in California, he declined, saying, My foreign accent prevents me from appearing on television or radio. These media of communication intensify the shortcomings of the speaker's pronunciation. Mises left Manhattan for San Francisco some days after June 18th. After the seminar, he spent a vacation in California and returned to Manhattan after Labor Day. The four terms started on September 22nd. In the tradition of plain talk, one of the concrete goals of the Freeman was to expose communism as a totalitarian scheme. Anti-communism also provided a unifying theme for dealing with foreign policy and domestic policies, which could be denounced as communist-inspired. Yet, there was no fundamental agreement on the strategic role of anti-communism. Chamelain and La Follette saw in it the very essence of their mission. For Mises and Hazlitt, communism was just a particularly gruesome species of the more general disease of statism, which manifested itself most notably in domestic government interventionism. Many of the Freeman articles in the decisive early years dealt with American foreign policy, especially for the role of the United States in confronting the Soviet-led East Bloc. The focus on anti-communism in foreign policy was certainly convenient in that it allowed the editors to expand their readership without offending those who were both anti-communist and pro-interventionist. Even on the issue of foreign policy, however, there was no unity in the libertarian camp. One faction advocated political isolationism combined with cultural and commercial openness to foreign countries. On the other side, there were the interventionists who championed American government opposition to communism on a worldwide scale. The latter tended to be less interested in combating communism by intellectual and educational means, focusing instead on the denunciation of communist infiltrators, the prosecution of domestic traitors, and military action against communist troops abroad. The confrontation crystallized in a semi-public correspondence between Leonard Reed and Lawrence Fertig. Reed had championed the resolute anti-war stance because he recognized that war was the great mainspring of government power. Fertig commented, Your philosophy seems to trend toward non-resistance and even slightly toward anarchism. I believe that the raising of an army is a perfectly legitimate function of government. Your implication that we must wait on these shores before striking back at an aggressor makes no sense to me. Your statement that a man in the army shooting communists in Korea is just as guilty as a man blowing the head off a baby in Centreport is a statement that I reject completely. And he went on to say that the fundamental problem cannot be coercion per se, because taxes are, after all, coercively levied on the citizenry. Reed replied, Personally, I am unable to concede that there is any right that comes into being by reason of you and me acting collectively. From a moral standpoint, can the collective be right in doing what is wrong for the person? I concede that you have a moral right to protect your life and property against violence otherwise initiated. Collectively, we have the same right, but no more. This reasoning is not anarchical, nor is it pacifistic. It is nothing more than the limitation of force to what I think is its proper scope. Mises' views on the issue are revealed in a letter that he wrote some years later to Anthony Fisher, the founder of the Neoliberal Institute of Economic Affairs in England. Mises deplored the pro-socialist leanings of public opinion on the western side of the Iron Curtain, which paralyzes all political actions of the West and makes it possible for the Russians to do what they want in Hungary, Poland, and the Near East. He continued, The average American intellectual condemns England and France as aggressors, but he does not consider as aggression what the Russians are doing in Hungary. He admits that the Russians are rather harsh in Hungary. 
but he excuses this harshness. It is, he thinks, rather unrealistic to apply to Eastern affairs, the yardstick of Western civilization. What in America would have to be qualified as brutality is in the East merely behaving as everybody does. Otherwise, Mises did not get involved in these debates. In liberalism, he had argued that the Russians should be allowed to do in their own country whatever they wished, that they should be free to spread their ideology in the West, even with the help of clandestine hirelings, and that businessmen and other citizens of the Western countries should be free to make loans to Bolsheviks in Russia and elsewhere. What he opposed was Western governments actively supporting the destructive policies of communism, whether through premiums paid on exports to the Soviet Union or through propaganda on their behalf. He had espoused this position a quarter century earlier, and he had not retracted a single word. He was convinced that communism first and foremost posed an intellectual challenge and had to be fought with the weapon of the mind. Mises wanted the Freeman to run more articles and book reviews dealing with economic principles, but he was aware that the journal lacked the manpower to do so. The dispute over American foreign policy foreshadowed dividing lines within the American libertarian movement that have continued to the present day. But in the early 1950s, it was only a sideshow in the unfolding drama that led to the early demise of the Freeman. The main factor in this drama was a disagreement between Hazlitt and Chamberlain on strategic issues of editorial policy. Then, too, there was the fact that Hazlitt, who had the backing of the main sponsors, was unwilling to give up his position at Newsweek to run the Freeman full-time. Conflicts between the Hazlitt-Mises camp and the Chamberlain-Lafollette camp were inevitable, given their different outlooks on what the Freeman was and should be. For Mises and Hazlitt, the essential mission of the journal was to educate the larger public, not to take part in the daily strife of political factions. As I see it, the function of the Freeman is to make it possible for dissenters to challenge the ideas of the left. The issue is not so much to fight communism, as this task is to some extent accomplished by other media of communication. What matters is to expound sound economics and to expose current economic fallacies. In contrast, Chamberlain favoured a more aggressive tone, both attacking and endorsing specific persons, parties, and political candidates. With an eye on Mises, Röpke, and other academic contributors, he later argued against sterile journalism. We believe that it was the intention of the founders that the Freeman should be a comprehensive fortnightly review of the contemporary scene, and not merely a journal of classical economics, allowing a selected group of economists to talk to each other via their papers. In short, Chamberlain held that the magazine must have crusading zeal, wit, satire, and editorial bite. Hazlitt replied, Exactly, but one man's crusading zeal is merely another man's vehemence. One man's wit and satire merely another man's trivial wisecracks. One man's editorial bite merely another's vituperation. After two years of experience, Hazlitt found his concerns confirmed. He quoted Chicago economist Frank Knight, who had told him in correspondence that the Freeman seems to scream in a way that may tickle the ears of those already converted or overconverted, but it would hardly convert anybody or at least nobody open to reason, and they are the only ones I'm personally interested in. This seems to have been a widely shared perception. One company executive explained why he would advertise in the Freeman in 1953, but not in 1952, when the old editorial team was still in place. We did consider the Freeman last year, but at that time it was too inflammatory and not objective enough. But now, since they have been reorganized, this magazine is very liberal in the conservative sense of the word. Hazlitt himself was later reported to object to putting out the kind of magazine in which McCarthy is a sacred character. 
and Fertig was quoted in the same source, saying that the Freeman should have convinced by logic and reason with less shrillness, less direct hysteria. Hazlitt stated his opinion in October 1952. A libertarian journal of opinion is only worth publishing, as I see it, if it can have a real effect in turning the tide of national thought in this crucial era. To have such an effect, it must command the respect of the intellectuals, even, in fact, particularly of those we are trying to convert. And it cannot command this respect unless it has dignity and a note of authority. Of course, the magazine must also be lively to reach as wide an audience as possible without sacrificing these qualities. Even though Haslitt was only a part-time editor, his work with the Freeman proved to be a severe drain on his energies. By May 1952, he brought a new man onto the editorial team, Forrest Davis, a former Washington editor for the Saturday Evening Post. But just a few days after his arrival, it was clear that Davis was not to be Hazlitt's man. Isolated in his editorial stance, Hazlitt resigned in June. Officially, he took a leave of absence of four months at the request of Mises, Fertig, and other friends on the board of directors who did not want to abandon control of the Freeman to the remaining editors. So far so good for Chamberlain, La Follette, and Davis. Their major problem in the long run was to find funding independent of the financial fathers of the magazine, Pew and Crane, who backed the Hazlitt line. This problem seemed to find a convenient solution in the form of a fundraising dinner at the occasion of the Freeman's second anniversary. One month before the event, however, the Hazlitt camp started torpedoing the dinner preparations. It is not entirely clear what prompted them to this action. The following scenario seems most likely. During Hazlitt's leave of absence, Howard Pugh had made it clear to both the Chamberlain camp and to the members of the board of directors that he stood ready to finance the Freeman single-handedly if it focused on the communication of broad principles of the free market philosophy rather than engaging in partisan attacks on persons and programs, that is, if it followed the Hazlitt editorial line. When Chamberlain and his associates did not yield, Mises and the others started a last desperate attempt to direct the Freeman toward Hazlitt's position by scuttling the fundraiser that would have made the editors financially independent of Pew and Crane. The struggle got uglier and more personal, Chamberlain now wrote nasty letters, accusing Hazlitt of being Pugh's lapdog, and in a heated board meeting in October 1953, Mises said Chamberlain and La Follette were second-rate journalists compared to Hazlitt. On October 31, 1952, a vote of confidence in favour of the present editors brought to light the composition of the two factions. A yes vote came from the three editors themselves and from Hillman, Peters and Kohlberg. A vote of no confidence came from Reed, Fertig, Mises and the Robinsons. Hazlitt himself resigned both from the board of editors and as vice-president on October 8, 1952, as he had intended since May. Meanwhile, Crane and Fertig lined up a majority behind their position, and at a board meeting on January 21, 1953, Hazlitt was elected editor-in-chief, whereupon Chamberlain, La Follette, and Davis resigned immediately. Chamberlain eventually became an editor of National Review, as well as of the Princeton Panel, and a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal. But this was only a symbolic victory. More than six months of quarrel had brought the Freeman to the verge of bankruptcy. Jasper Crane desperately tried to raise new money with fundraising letters, and Frederick Niemeyer tried to acquire new advertisers, but to no avail. Henry Regnery's response to Crane was symptomatic. I think this is a last cause. After a few months, Hazlitt, who still continued to write for Newsweek and to fulfill other contractual obligations, became discouraged by the desperate financial situation. 
1955, the magazine was taken over by the Irvington Press, a subsidiary of FEE, with Frank Chodorov as editor. Mises contributed an article on Inequality of Wealth and Income to the first issue, May 1955. By January of the next year, the Freeman was officially the journal of FEE. Paul Poirot would be its editor for the next few decades, and it would continue to publish the work of Mises and promote the economics of the Austrian school, but it never reached a mass audience. The Niemeyer Connection Frederick Niemeyer had printed 1,000 copies of the economics of the middle-of-the-road policy, which he distributed for free among his fellow Calvinists. The campaign had a resounding echo. A few months later, the Edison Company ordered 3,100 copies, the Norfolk and Western Railway Company ordered 800 copies, and other orders followed. Following instructions from Mises, Niemeyer published the piece under the title Middle-of-the-Road Policy Leads to Socialism. Mises received a 10% royalty on the sales. The number of copies Niemeyer printed was 10,000. Shortly after the end of 1961, when a stock of 1,380 copies was left, there was a reprint and another reprint of 30,000 copies in 1965. At least one copy had found its way over the Atlantic and fell on fertile ground. The young English businessman Anthony Fisher asked that 48 copies be sent to him as a gift because of the foreign exchange controls which he duly received. Nymeyer wrote, Mr. Fisher's request may be a racket, but my assumption is that he is an advocate of free and competitive markets, and that the use he makes of this pamphlet will promote a good cause. The Latin America, the Federation of Mexican Chambers of Commerce, planned to translate the piece, and at least one other copy made it over the Pacific. A Japanese correspondent of Nymeyer's wrote him, What I find revealing is the fact that such of his pamphlets as I received from you had to be published at all in a country which is supposed to be the only remaining fortress of free enterprise. If the Americans themselves are to be told about the benefits of free enterprise by Austrians of all people, it seems to me that the world's malady is pretty far gone. In the fall of 1950, spurred by the success of his campaign, Niemeyer set up the publishing company Consumers Producers Economic Service in South Holland, Illinois. This would later become the Libertarian Press, which still exists today. Throughout the 1950s, Niemeyer came to New York for two or three days at the beginning of each month and had regular dinner and lunch meetings with Mises. They never became close friends, but there were more than mere professional ties between the Jewish agnostic and the Dutch-American Calvinist. Niemeyer eventually convinced himself that Mises was the greatest living champion of the innermost rampart of Christianity. In various letters to Howard Pugh, Niemeyer summarized many years of reflection on the significance of Mises' work for Christianity. If there is to be a re-reformation, it will have to be, in my opinion, on the basis of what the praxeological and the natural sciences have contributed to human knowledge since the days of the Reformation. In regard to questions of ethics, I have come to the conclusion that the economics of Dr. von Mises constitutes by far the most satisfactory means to modernize the ethics of the Hebrew Christian religion. When that kind of a synthesis is made, one turns out to be an extraordinarily conservative adherent of the Christian religion but also some of the absurdities are removed. Naimai's publishing venture began, as all startups do, small-scale with big ideas. At first he published copies of Mises's middle-of-the-road policy leads to socialism, but he already had larger-scale projects in mind. In particular, he planned an American edition of the Theory of Money and Credit, and a translation of the final edition of Bombavex's three-volume magnum opus. Nehemiah was also in touch with Hayek, who recommended Bernbarwek's Macht or the Ökonomisches Gesetz, Control or Economic Law, for translation. 
Naimaya then made inquiries about the copyright for a 1931 translation by John Richard Metz. Mises warned him that the major problem was not to print good books, but to spread the message in a hostile environment. As conditions are today in this country, such books would be boycotted by the universities, the libraries, and the influential newspapers and periodicals. It seems to be that the main problem is to raise the money for counteracting such a boycott. Naimaya knew Mises was right, and he knew what to do about it. Many years of networking in American industrial circles had filled his address book, and he was astonishingly capable of bypassing the distribution channels of established publishers to reach the public directly. Mises was impressed. He started giving serious thought to Naimaya's plan to hire a qualified German-English translator for Bernbarbeck's work. Mises now remembered a young man from Germany who had been attending his NYU seminar for some time. He had come to the United States a year earlier as one of the first immigrants after the German quota had been opened in the summer of 1949. Hans Zenholz had already studied economics in Marburg and Cologne, and he had received a PhD in economics from the University of Cologne in the spring of 1949. In Marburg, a fellow student had advised him to read the treatise on money by that sharp Jew from Vienna. So when Zenholz decided to continue his studies, he recognized Mises' name in the faculty list of the New York University. He attended his seminar with great enthusiasm, and after some months asked Mises to supervise a PhD dissertation. Zenholz later recalled, In his 24 years at the New York University, Professor Mises sponsored only four candidates who wrote their dissertations under his tutelage, Zenholz, Spadaro, Kirzner, Reismann. When I first broached my plans to study with him and earn the degree, he bluntly rejected me. Many would like me to sponsor them, but only very few are qualified. I was stunned and hurt, but understood his reaction when I learned that the school confirmed very few terminal degrees in a year. Professor Mises was not about to sponsor a potential failure. In fact, the four he actually accepted may have been his full share of successful candidates. When I repeated my request six weeks later, he reacted quite differently. He readily and courteously accepted me as his candidate and even suggested a number of topics for my dissertation. He went on. He probably changed his opinion about me when he learned that I was a German doctor with a degree from Cologne University, which I had earned at the age of 27 after nearly seven years in the armed services, November 15, 1939, September 14, 1946. During the following years, Zenholz would not only write his doctoral dissertation but also translate Birnbach. At Mises' suggestion, Naimai also hired native English speaker George D. Hunk as a co-translator. By December 1952, conflicts had arisen between the two translators. Many years later, the Naimai-Zenholz connection proved to be important in maintaining the mission of libertarian press when Zenholz took over the company. Naimai had another publishing idea that proved to be highly successful. He had given much thought to the question of how Mises' ideas could be presented to the greater public in a more accessible form than a 900-page treatise. He found the answer when, in 1952, this libertarian press published a collection of articles that Mises had written during the previous seven years. About a year later, Naimaya had another idea, suggesting that human action be made more accessible by the creation of a glossary. Later on, Percy Graves put this idea into practice. The book was titled Planning for Freedom. This was also the title of the first essay, which Mises had written in 1945 in reaction to Hayek's phrase of government planning for competition. The other chapters criticized various aspects of interventionist theory, history and practice. They also contrasted the interventionist record for the operation of the free market. Each chapter 
could be read independently of the others, and thus the total made for an excellent light introduction to Misesian economics. Sales proved very satisfactory. One order came from the Soviet Union. Mises commented, I hope that the purchase of Planning for Freedom will complete the Moscow collection of my publications. American Edition of Theory of Money and Credit The success of human action paved the way for a new edition of the Theory of Money and Credit in 1953. By the late 1940s, the book had been out of print for some years. Neymeyer was willing to publish a new edition, but Mises chose the more prestigious Yale University Press, which was interested in publishing more of its best-selling author. In true Christian spirit, Neymeyer promoted the book through a flyer campaign. 5,000 flyers were sent to bankers and another 10,000 to other potential buyers. He may have sent Mises' paper about things to come along with the flyer. Mises used the opportunity to add a new fourth part to the book on monetary reconstruction, which argued for reintroducing the gold standard. Here he restated ideas he had expressed in previous works, but greater intellectual majority had made the exposition simpler. He combined these older, more technical ideas with the case against the only possible alternative to the gold standard, namely inflation. Mises thought that the United States was on the verge of the steep decline of inflationism and interventionism he had seen in Europe. In only one respect did the American situation differ from Germany in 1914 and 1923, the presence of a vocal opposition against this decline. But he also added to crucial insights he had gained since the last edition of his book. The first of these insights was that there was not even an emergency case for inflation. The champions of emergency inflation agreed that there is no economic case for this policy under normal circumstances, but they argued that inflation was justified as a last resort when a national emergency, such as war, required the continued operation of the government and taxation and debt failed to do the job. He observes, This political argument is only rarely resorted to in books, articles, and political speeches. It does not lend itself to such public treatment, but the underlying idea plays an important role in the thinking of statesmen and historians. Mises noticed that if a majority of citizens truly stood behind the government and its project, no inflation would be necessary. In this case, the political determination of the majority would come to be expressed in higher taxation. There was only one conceivable scenario in which the emergency argument applied if the majority disagreed with the government. Either they believed that the government already had the resources it required, or that there was no emergency in the first place. Either way, Resorting to inflation is tantamount to establishing an anti-democratic minority rule. He had raised this point already in 1923, at the height of the German hyperinflation, but his wording then was cautious, and he did not insist on the point. In 1954, he stated unambiguously that inflation was the financial aspect of tyrannies. It is not an instrument of legitimate revenue, but an instrument of oppression. There is no need to raise the question whether the government's or the majority's opinion is right. Perhaps the government is right. However, we deal not with the substance of the conflict, but with the methods chosen by the rulers for its solution. They reject the democratic way of persuading the majority. They arrogate to themselves the power and the moral right to circumvent the will of the people. They are eager to win its cooperation by deceiving the public about the costs involved in the measures suggested. While seemingly complying with the constitutional procedures of representative government, their conduct is, in effect, not that of elected office holders, but that of guardians of the people. The elected executive no longer deems himself the people's mandatory. He turns into a Führer. He went on, 
It is not just an accident that in our age inflation has become the accepted method of monetary management. Inflation is the fiscal complement of statism and arbitrary government. It is a cog in the complex of policies and institutions which gradually lead to a totalitarianism. The second insight Mises added to the 1954 edition also represents a departure from his thinking in 1934, and even more so from his views of 1912 when he first published the book. The insight concerns the necessity of an actual circulation of gold coins. In 1912 he almost disparaged such metallistic views, but 40 years of experience had made him wiser. He now emphasized, Gold must be in the cash holdings of everybody. Everybody must see gold coins changing hands, must be used to having gold coins in his pockets, to receiving gold coins when he cashes his paycheck, and to spending gold coins when he buys in a store. Similarly, he wrote in private correspondence, there is only one effective method of avoiding inflation. All government expenditure must be covered by taxes and by borrowing from the public, not by borrowing from the commercial banks. Of course, Mises had not become a gold bug. He had no fetish about the yellow metal or any other metal. The point was that only a commodity currency made the citizens sovereign in monetary matters. As long as they had real money in hand, they were truly in charge of it, and they would immediately notice any departure from sound policies. Any bank or government refusal to redeem checks would immediately be recognized as fraud. What is needed is to alarm the masses in time. The working man in cashing his paycheck should learn that some foul trick has been played upon him. The President, Congress, and the Supreme Court have clearly proved their inability or unwillingness to protect the common man, the voter, from being victimized by inflationary machination. The function of securing a sound currency must pass into new hands, into those of the whole nation. At the end, Mises noticed that there were no arguments against the gold standard. There was only the cynical claim that reintroducing it was a utopian undertaking. He replied very much along the same lines by which he had concluded his critique of socialism. Yet we have only the choice between two utopias. The utopia of a market economy not paralyzed by government sabotage on the one hand, and the utopia of totalitarian all-round planning on the other hand. The choice of the first alternative implies the decision in favor of the gold standard. He had little doubt that these warnings would go unheeded. Gray Eminence and Itinerant Scholar The success of human action was not the only instance of Mises' influence on the libertarian movement and on the American right in general. Another factor was, ironically, his relative isolation among academic economists. By the late 1940s, Mises was already the odd man out in both his methods of research and his political orientation. Then human action put him in the spotlight, and suddenly his authority weighed heavily in the decision-making of the few but substantial funds that had been created to support free-market scholarship. Thirty years of social science research funding through the Rockefeller Foundation and others who pursued an explicit scientistic orientation have left their mark on the state of economics and other disciplines. The money from Rockefeller, Ford, Carnegie and others was channeled into the universities through the Social Science Research Council a 1923 Rockefeller creation. To the exterior world, the council represented seven major social science societies, but in fact it was a self-perpetuating body. In January 1954, Carl E. Ettinger, a private research consultant, commented on the role of the council in a letter to F.R. Hayek. 
Quoting extensively from R.B. Fosdick's History of the Rockefeller Foundation, he concluded, There seems to be strong evidence that the emergence of an orthodoxy of quantitative sociology has been greatly influenced by the magnetism of money and the control of available funds by a foundation bureaucracy that knew what it wanted and favoured the imitation of the methods of natural scientists by social scientists. The political explosiveness of these observations stemmed from the tax-exempt status that the big foundations enjoyed. Mises had known Ettinger at least since 1946. Ettinger coordinated research on consumers' cooperatives on behalf of the Petroleum Industry Research Foundation. Only a small number of private individuals and institutions still supported social philosophers of the old type. Mises knew them all, and human action had given a great boost to his authority. The Volcker Fund had been funding him since 1945. But after the publication of his treatise, the fund began supporting lectures and extended seminars for Mises, and it even started funding his students. Thus, from 1955 to 1969, the Volcker Fund sponsored a one-year fellowship in political economy at NYU's Graduate School of Business Administration. Mises nominated the recipient. The first recipient was Hans Zenholz, 1955-1956. Israel Kurtzner was a laureate in 1956-1957 and Toshio Maruta in 1959-1960. Upon his return to Japan, he began to spread Mises' theories and also translated The Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science and Human Action into Japanese. Only two students received the fellowship for three consecutive years. One of these students was Robert Guarnieri from 1963 to 1966. Guarnieri had been a student of Hans Zenholz's in Grove City. He later set out for a business career. For some time, Mises also controlled an annual budget of $12,500 at NYU. These payments started after December 1958. And other institutions started doing the same thing. For example, the Earhart Foundation undertook travel expenditures and student scholarships. The National Association of Manufacturers organized and paid for seminars, and Howard Pugh and others subsidized the Freeman. For several years, funding Mises and his projects was almost a matter of course. His judgment on persons and projects was often final. In the fall of 1958, historian of economic thought, Emil Cowder, advised Raymond de who was looking for funding of a research project, not to write directly to the Volcker Fund, but to get first in touch with Mises or Hayek. This sudden concentration of resources on Mises reflected more than the respect owed to the man. It was also the sign of an important problem in the free market movement. By the early 1950s, substantial money was available for scholarship, but there were not many libertarian scholars of Mises' stature. The situation was quite bleak, as Lawrence Furtick stated in a letter. Take the faculty of Columbia University. Aside from Dr. George Stigler and Dr. Leo Wallman, I doubt if there is another member on the entire economics faculty who presents the free market liberal point of view. At Yale, out of 30 members of the economics faculty, until recently just two Professor Henry Fairchild and one other represented the old liberal point of view. The Harvard faculty is dominated by men like Professor Seymour Harris, Alvin Hansen, Sweezy, and others like them who range all the way from Keynesians to outright socialists. This faculty, NYU, is definitely under the major influence of Keynesians and collectivists, although there are a few eminent men like John D. Williams and Sumner Stichter 
who have not gone entirely that way. The same is true for smaller colleges, such as Williams, Amherst, etc. The new school for social research doesn't have a single libertarian on its faculty. Sarah Lawrence College probably couldn't produce a single one either. The men on Furtick's short list of libertarians were less original than Mises, less radical and less outspoken in their support of laissez-faire capitalism, a fact that was obvious to all parties involved. Mises himself considered many of them to be moderate interventionists, an opinion that his financial backers had learned to respect. He occasionally recommended textbooks written by these other men, for example Fairchild and Shelley's Understanding Our Free Economy and Von Sickel and Rugger's Introduction to Economics. But the most he could say of these books was that the interventionism advocated within them was less radical than that promoted in all the other textbooks, which he believed were totally flawed from a theoretical point of view, Marx, Keynes, econometrics, and had a radical interventionist, if not outright socialist, orientation. In short, there was no substitute for Ludwig von Mises, and this fact would have unfortunate consequences for American libertarianism in the following decades. New York Circles Mises's activities in New York centered on his NYU seminar. By the early to mid-1950s, four major groups attended the NYU seminar. First, there was a group of NYU students who took the seminar for credit. The great majority of them were thoroughly uninterested in scientific questions of economic analysis, yet there were exceptions. One early student who cooperated more closely with Mises was Hugh P. King, who from 1951 to 1953 was his assistant and later became a business counselor. Then there was Morton Cobrin, who, in 1952, wrote a 300-page master's thesis that condensed some of the main ideas of human action in more accessible language. Cobrin then attended Mises' seminar on government control and the profit system. Cobrin had written his master's thesis under the supervision of a Dr. Dorau. But there were also more important exceptions. At least three regular NYU students would eventually become important Misesians who, each in his own way, took up where their teacher had left off. Hans Zenholz, Israel Kurtzner, and George Reisman. Notable, but less important, were Louis Spadaro and Edward Foley. Hans Zenholz, who had translated Ben Barbeck, received his American Ph.D. under Mises in 1954 and published his dissertation in early 1955 under the title How Can Europe Survive? With Mises' support, Zenholz had received a 3,000 Erhardt research grant for the academic year 1953-1954 when the fellowship program started. He was still the only student Mises had recommended until March 1955. By then Mises hoped that also other members of my seminar will soon comply with the requirements. In contrast to Zenholz, young Israel Kurtzner had not known anything about Mises before attending his seminar. He was not even a student of economics, but an accounting major who had to take one economics seminar to fulfill his requirements. Since he knew nothing of economics, he decided to attend the classes of the most published economics professor at NYU. Starting in September 1954, Kurtzner attended Mises' seminars for many years, acting eventually as a Volcker-sponsored tutor for the younger students. He switched from accounting to economics and studied under Mises to obtain his Ph.D., which he received in 1957 with the economic point of view. Kurtzner eventually became a professor of economics at NYU, a famous theoretician of entrepreneurship with numerous book publications and retired in 2002. Kurtzner was a Volcker Fellow in 1956-1957 and in early 1957 
obtained a research grant from the Earhart Foundation. At that point, he had already defended his dissertation and was about to submit the final version. Mises praised Kurtzner as a young man who promises to become a highly competent teacher and author. The third important Misesian from the ranks of Mises' regular students was George Reisman, who got a PhD under Mises in 1963 for a theoretical study of interest rates with the title The Theory of Aggregate Profit and the Average Rate of Profit. His lifelong research project was the creation of a great synthesis between classical economics, Austrian economics, and Ayn Rand's objectivist social philosophy. As a result of these endeavours, he eventually published his magnum opus, Capitalism, 1996. He is now an emeritus professor at Pepperdine University in California. The second group at the seminar was composed of professionals and businessmen. This group included personal friends of Mises's, such as Henry Hazlitt, Lawrence Furtick, and George Coter. But there were also men such as Dr. Richard Freund, a commander in the U.S. Navy, who had come to know Mises through his publications and who seized the opportunity to attend this seminar session from the end of 1954 to the end of 1961. The third group came from FEE. It included foundation staff and students who had been introduced to Austrian economics through FEE. The staunchest attendees were Bettina Bean and Percy Graves, who would form the core of the seminar until its very end. The fourth group was a spin-off of the FEE crowd. It was composed of radical young free marketeers around Murray Rothbard, including Ralph Rako, George Reisman, Leonard Ligio, and Robert Hessen. They called themselves the Cirque Bastia. When Rand's novel Atlas Shrugged appeared in 1957, it had a deep impact on the Cirque Bastia, and also impressed Mises and other senior members of his seminar. In 1954, Rothbard began to socialize with Ayn Rand's group, and then backed away, having decided that she was not really a libertarian. After Atlas Shrugged came out, however, there was a temporary rapprochement, and the Cirque de Bastia was introduced to Rand. This eventually led to the breakup of the Cirque de Bastia. Rothbard read the novel that fall and discussed it endlessly with Reisman. They also had continuing discussions on the question of whether capital accumulation implied a declining interest rate. For Reisman, these discussions were the point of departure for a lifelong research program. By all standards, the seminar was of very high quality. In its first ten years, it featured Mises at the peak of his teaching career. One participant, who had attended the session from the very start in 1945, wrote a thank-you note in 1952, stating that he had been especially impressed by two facts— First, it has attracted a serious-minded group of individuals whose varied occupational and professional interests serve to stimulate a fruitful discussion. Secondly, unlike most seminars, each succeeding year of attendance builds upon the intellectual acquisitions of the past one, without leaving any impression that the student is repeating a previous course. What makes the seminar especially important for the later dissemination of Mises' ideas is that it brought together a group of excellent students for whom human action was the starting point for further intellectual work. No previous group of his students had had this privilege, and it had a noticeable effect on their further intellectual development and on the schools they created. It is revealing to contrast the cases of Zenholz and Rothbard with the case of Fritz Machlup, who had been Mises' star student in the 1920s and early 30s. All three men were high-caliber intellectuals, but only the former two became genuine Misesians. A possible difference lay in the existence of the treatise. 
As he had done with his students in Vienna and Geneva, Mises inspired his American students to apply rigorous deductive reasoning to the analysis of politically relevant subjects. But they did more. They followed the logic to its politically radical conclusions. Murray Rothbard, in his youthful exuberance, once boasted that his forthcoming defense of the market economy will be far more right-wing than Mises because of its grounding in welfare economics, which theory I've basically set forth in my Festschrift article. Rothbard had written a precursor to this paper in 1954 and submitted it unsuccessfully to Economica. It is unthinkable that one of Mises' Vienna students would have boasted that he was more libertarian than his professor. The Vienna students thought Mises tended to exaggerate the case for the market economy. But Rothbard was merely an extreme case of the entire species of Misesian students in the post-human action period. Their favorite sport was to find statist arguments and premises in Mises' works. They relished in unveiling his socialism and had a good laugh when Rothbard called the old master a member of the non-communist left. This new radicalism radiated beyond Mises' NYU seminar. Inspired by human action, several authors set out to defend liberty, property, and capitalism as absolute principles of social order. The best-known case is Ayn Rand, who shocked the political correctness of her day for the proud assertive defense of individualism and capitalism that announced itself right in the title of her books, works such as Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, and The Virtue of Selfishness, were inspired by human action, an intellectual debt that she graciously acknowledged. Yet Rand's case was no exception. In September 1955, Mises received a massive manuscript with the title The Capitalist Manifesto. The author, a certain Joe Abramson, asked him for comments. Mises replied he hoped soon to find the leisure to study it carefully. It was the work of an enthusiastic amateur, but it showed wherever more of his readers were headed. The high point of these glorious years was the publication of a festschrift for Mises on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the doctorate that Mises had earned at the University of Vienna in 1906. Mises received the book at a celebration on March 7, 1956, in Manhattan. Hans and Mary Zenholtz organized the event. Hayek and Mahrup had thought about undertaking a festschrift for Mises' 70th birthday in 1951. However, none of them was willing to make the effort, and thus they turned to Hazlitt to do all the technical work connected with the editing of such a volume. Hazlitt was too busy to become a part-time assistant to Hayek and Mahrup but the decisive obstacle was financial. No publisher could be found. Roughly a year before the celebration, they had invited contributions from seminar members, such as Hazlitt, Rothbard, and Senholtz, and from various other intellectuals who had in some way been close to Mises. Fausto Balvé had received the request to make a contribution by March 1955. Louis Bourget withdrew his contribution because he thought it was poorly translated into English, and Alfred müller Amak declined, saying he had no time. The Zentholzes took pains to avoid any closer involvement of Mises' former students and colleagues from Vienna, whose political orientation was considerably less radical than that of the NYU seminar. Among the twenty contributors, only three, Röpke, Machlup, and Hayek, had been friends with Mises in Vienna. Thus the festschrift became a faithful reflection of the change of Mises' intellectual environment. It was to be a celebration of the intellectual case for human liberty and the free market, and of the man who had done so much to develop this case. The title made it clear, On Freedom 
and free enterprise. This does not mean that critical voices were banished. William Rapard contributed an important critique of Mises' theory of interventionism. Rapard here published thoughts he had long since expressed in private correspondence. A Misesian Treatise It was in these high years of the new American Misesians, the human action years, that Murray Rothbard completed his textbook rendering of Austrian economics. At first he stuck to the original project of a mere popularization of human action, trying to do for Mises what McCullough did for Ricardo. But by October 1952 he had already decided to pursue a more independent exposition of economic science. Rothbard ended up writing an entire treatise of economic science, covering in some 900 pages the theory of the market economy and of government interventionism. The work was a masterpiece and had a deep impact on subsequent generations of Misesian economists. During the winter semester of 1952, Rothbard presented several chapters of his work in Mises' seminar. It was here that he might have defended, for the first time, some of the doctrines that set him apart from Mises. The professor handled the situation in his usual manner, namely with scholastic laissez-faire. He encouraged Rothbard to follow the path he had chosen. This might have to do with the specific American flavor of the exceptions Rothbard took to Mises' approach. For example, Rothbard had come to believe that there was a science of rational ethics based on human nature and what is good for human nature. Thus he had abandoned Max Weber's position, which Mises cherished, that there can be no science of ethics but only subjective value judgments. Rothbard had probably come to adopt this new viewpoint under the influence of discussions with Ayn Rand's group. In the first version of his manuscript of Chapter 1, where he explained the first principles of human action, Rothbard had adopted the Weberian position, which was the standard position at Columbia. Probably, therefore, Rothbard attended meetings of Rand's group during 1952, and in the course of these encounters changed his mind on the question of scientific ethics. There were indirect contacts between Rothbard and Rand ever since November 1947. By May 7, 1953, Rothbard was asked to introduce Reisman and Rako to Ayn Rand, which suggests that at that point he was a regular member of her group. Rothbard also took exception to the philosophical pessimism that seemed to form the foundation of Mises' theory of human action. Mises had asserted that man acts to relieve dissatisfaction, which implied that man did not act when he was happy. Rothbard thought that such a view was contrary to the natural state of man, which is at its happiest precisely when it is engaged in productive activity. But Rothbard would soon disagree with Mises on a more fundamental issue. During the winter semester, 1953, he was in the process of reviewing conventional price theory, which stressed cost curves and other remnants of classical objective price theories. His rejection of these approaches had led him to some original conclusions. Rothbard became convinced that the entire neoclassical theory of monopoly prices relied on a completely unwarranted fiction, namely that it was possible to distinguish these monopoly prices from competitive prices. He believed that Mises too had fallen prey to this fiction. Mises held indeed that the sovereignty of consumers was impaired in the presence of monopoly prices. Rothbard disagreed. I have come to the conclusion that this theory is outright nonsense. I do not differ with Mises rashly on matters of economic theory, but in this particular case I think he has not freed himself from the shackles of the old neoclassical approach. 
The key question here is, how do we know what the competitive price is? If we go to the illustration of this approach in, for example, Federer's economic principles, we find a competitive price and the monopolist assessing his demand curve at this price. But in reality, we never know the competitive price. The competitive price is a result of action and not a given. Even if we can observe a man restricting his investment and production in a product and raising the price, we can never know if this is a movement from competitive price to monopoly price or from sub-competitive price to competitive price. As Mises has told us again and again, a concept divorced from real action and employed as an actual reality, and even an ideal, is invalid. Therefore, the whole concept of competitive price versus monopoly price has to go by the board. On the free market, there is only the free market price, which in turn is competitive since buyers and sellers freely compete with each other. And this is true not only for the individual seller, but also for a cartel. For I have come to the perhaps even more revolutionary conclusion that there is nothing in the world wrong with a cartel when it's voluntary. When many firms merge or form a cartel, what happens? In effect, the assets of many individuals are pooled and directed by them all in accordance with their proportionate ownership and their contract. But how does this process differ from the formation of an ordinary corporation when different individuals pool their capital and assets according to their voluntary contract? Not in the slightest. Another year later, at the beginning of the academic year 1954-1955, Mises concentrated in his NYU seminar on price theory and other aspects of the theory of the market economy, possibly because he sensed that Rothbard was in a decisive phase of his work and close to completion. He had Rothbard deliver several presentations, in particular on Robinson's and Chamberlain's theory of monopolistic competition and on selling costs. Rothbard was better prepared than ever. He had spent the summer discussing economics for endless hours with young George Reisman. In the course of these discussions, they developed an important extension of Mises's theory of economic calculation, starting from the question of how extensive the number of firms in the economy must be in order to have calculation. They came to the conclusion that for every vertical integration within a firm, in order for the firm to allocate costs, etc., internally, there would have to be a market for that area external to the firm. Thus, the inability of a socialist government to calculate is a special case of the inability of any firm to calculate for departments internal to itself, if there is no external market to which to refer. Combined with the Mises Seminar, this intensive exchange gave a decisive boost to Rothbard's writing, to the point that, by July 1955, the manuscript had almost reached the form it would have when it was eventually published in 1962. Most important, Rothbard had by then completed the chapter explaining the conceptual framework within which he would analyze both the operation of the market economy and government intervention. In distinct contrast to all previous economists, with the notable exception of Gustave de Molinari, the dean of the French 19th-century laissez-faire school, Rothbard did not present the modern state as an integral part of society. Rather, he distinguished between two types of production of security, coercive and free. The former was characteristic of the modern state, whereas the latter would exist only in a hypothetical free society. These statements, which Rothbard made in his July 1955 report to the Volcker Fund, must have set off alarm bells with Luno and other Volcker Fund people. For the first time, Rothbard had spelled out his thoroughly anti-statist worldview, 
and try to prove that this view found support in the tenet of economic science. This brazen display of political anarchism was apparently too much even for the Volcker Fund. Rothbard was given another extension of his research grant, which he used during the academic year 1955-1956 to polish his manuscript. By July 1956 it amounted to 1,900 typed pages, and finally to finish his PhD in economics at Columbia University. But it must have been made clear to him that he could not count on Volcker Fund support in the future, at least not to the extent he had enjoyed it in the past. By April 1956, he applied for a new research grant for work on the Great Depression, this time from the Erhardt Foundation. The Erhardt Foundation grant, which Rothbard duly received, made up for the ending of the Volcker Fund grant, which had supported his writing of the treatise. Mises supported him unequivocally, stating that he was fully convinced that Rothbard will one day be counted among the foremost economists. Rothbard's treatise was put on hold. He worked part-time for FEE, writing a short book on money, What Has Government Done to Our Money? And he continued to polish the manuscript of his treatise for the next few years. The directors of the Volcker Fund needed quite some time to ponder the question of what to do with this explosive material which threatened to disintegrate the nascent libertarian movement. In May 1959, Rothbard reported completion of the manuscript in a letter to Mises. He also expressed his regret that he had only rarely been attending Mises' seminar. The version of the manuscript was passed on to the Volcker Fund's Frank S. Meyer, ostensibly in an effort to bring the project to completion. Or the decision might have been related to already existing plans to close down the fund. Meyer was no Rothbardian. He was chosen as a third-party or objective opinion on the merits of the book. He delivered a report that would allow both the author of the book and his sponsor to agree on how to proceed without losing face. Meyer said the book was one of the two or three most important discussions of economics to be written in this century, and he lavishly praised it for its radical break with the traditional utilitarian underpinnings of economic theory, a break that opened the prospect of integrating the economic rationale against collectivism into certain strands of conservative thought. On the other hand, Meyer admonished that certain chapters were fundamentally political in their scope, and written from the point of view of an uncompromising anarchism. These chapters should be removed, and their economic content be collected into a single chapter. And so it happened. Rothbard's treatise, with anarchism excised, was published in 1962 as Man, Economy, and State. His discussion of a stateless market society would eventually appear eight years later in a separate book with the title Power and Market. Zenholz at Grove City College While Rothbard was still busy writing and polishing the manuscript of his magnum opus, Hans Zenholz was already a quality product of Mises's NYU seminar. He had written a very thorough doctoral dissertation and published it in 1955 with Jasper Crane's Vanostrand Company. And in distinct contrast to Rothbard, who spent nights working or discussing with friends, slept through much of the day, missed deadline after deadline, and tended to be messy and disorderly, Zenholz featured the Teutonic personal virtues of punctuality, orderliness, and reliability. By the mid-1950s, he was visibly Mises's most important student. Zenholz was not only an intellectual heir to the Austrian tradition, but also had the vision, the drive, and the enthusiasm to lead the Austrian school and the burgeoning libertarian intellectual movement into the second half of the 20th century. Not only did he realize that the decisive battle in politics was the battle of ideas, 
and that for the time being this battle was mainly fought in institutions of higher learning. But he also saw quite clearly that there was no hope whatsoever in turning around mainstream academia from within. The success of the libertarian movement depended on its ability to set up parallel academic institutions to compete with the socialist academic establishment from the outside. The tragedy for Senholtz and for the libertarian movement at large was that most of his initiatives to establish parallel libertarian institutions did not find the necessary support. For example, starting in August 1955, he tried for some years without success to establish a libertarian journal, and at the end of the 1950s he tried to establish an American school of economics with the mission of producing future university professors equally without success. These failures might have been due to the timidity of potential donors or to Zenholtz's youth and assertiveness. He was a born leader who could not suffer subservience. He needed to be his, Hans Zenholtz's own man in all of his endeavors. For some time he threw himself into working for FEE and took up residence in Irvington on Hudson. But the presence of another great ego, Leonard Reed, made it impossible for Zenholtz to turn FEE into the instrument of his far-reaching plans. After completion of his Ph.D. in 1955, he began looking for a new position. It was not easy for Zenholtz to find academic employment because of a triple disadvantage. He was an old-fashioned economist, a libertarian, and a German. Vader Horsch tried to place him at Yale. Eventually, however, he found a position at Grove City College, a liberal arts college in western Pennsylvania that had been sponsored by the Pew family for generations. It was once again the long-standing connection between Mises and J. Howard Pugh that proved so useful. When Zenholtz first saw the facilities, he could hardly believe his eyes. The chapel is fashioned after European Gothic cathedrals. Its beauty is superb. The reception room in the library would have flattered European royalty, with thick Persian rugs on the floor and expensive originals on the wall, the furniture French antique style. The indoor swimming pool is built according to Olympic standard. Only Esther Williams is missing. The bowling alley is patterned according to Westchester club standards. The girls' dormitory boasts a gold-leaf Steinway piano besides other beautiful furniture. I am beginning to understand why most professors go to Grove City, and are never heard of again. On the other hand, Zenholtz did not wax enthusiastic about the students, who did not nearly live up to the hopes of Pew and other sponsors, who had wanted their contributions to help educate the future champions and supporters of a free society. In spite of all the splendor offered by a few capitalists, the 1,300 students constitute the usual sample of 75% collectivists and 25% without opinion. He went on to urge the establishment of a new graduate school for the education of future professors, a school squarely built on the tradition of classical liberalism. During the next few years, Zenholz would spend much time and energy on this project, but it did not materialize, mainly due to financial reasons. In another letter, he mentions that the plans for establishing a graduate school of economics had been long-standing with FEE. Clearly, there was a lot of work to do. Zenholz grabbed the bull by the horns, and threw himself into the battle of ideas. During the next five decades, he educated a new generation of Austrian school scholars, among them Walter Grinder, Geoffrey Hummel, Alejandro Chafuen, Philip Natav, and Peter Butker. He would publish hundreds of articles and dozens of books and booklets. He and Rothbard almost single-handedly created a modern austrian Misesian literature. Until the early 1960s, they were not alone in this endeavor. 
Mises himself made a number of contributions that we will discuss in the next chapter. Chapter 21. The Epistemological Case for Capitalism In the early 1950s, Mises' NYU seminar dealt increasingly with epistemological questions. As he said to Ludwig Lachmann, he felt that the analysis of epistemological problems would be the number one task in the social sciences in the coming years. He had said this in a July 1956 meeting with Lachmann. It was the topic of his last two monographs, Theory and History, 1957, and The Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science, 1962. The subject had been prominent in his thoughts and reflections since the publication of Sociology and History, 1929, and Conception and Understanding, 1930. It was one of the two areas in which he felt contemporary economics was most deficient, the other one being the theory of economic calculation. In Nazionale Economie and Human Action, he had stressed the historical significance of the problem. It is a complete misunderstanding of the meaning of the debates concerning the essence, scope, and logical character of economics to dismiss them as the scholastic quibbling of pedantic professors. It is a widespread misconception that while pedants squandered useless talks about the most appropriate methods of procedure, economics itself, indifferent to these idle disputes, went quietly on its way. In the Methodenstreit between the Austrian economists and a Prussian historical school, the self-styled intellectual bodyguard of the House of Hohenzollern, and in the discussions between the school of John Bates Clark and American institutionalism, much more was at stake than the question of what kind of procedure was the most fruitful one. The real issue was the epistemological foundations of the science of human action and its logical legitimacy. He had come to the conclusion that political motivations were behind these epistemological critiques of economic science. The main motive for the development of the doctrines of polylogism, historicism, and irrationalism was to provide a justification for disregarding the teachings of economics in the determination of economic policies. The socialists, racists, nationalists, and etatists failed in their endeavors to refute the theories of the economists, and to demonstrate the correctness of their own spurious doctrines. It was precisely this frustration that prompted them again to negate the logical and epistemological principles upon which all human reasoning, both in mundane activities and in scientific research, is founded. Thus, the epistemology of economics was not just an idle pastime for ivory tower intellectuals. It was of direct, practical relevance. How does economic theory relate to reality? Most economists believed, and still believe today, that their propositions concern only hypothetical conditions never actually given in real life. To Mises, this point of view was paradoxical. It is strange that some schools seem to approve of this opinion and nonetheless quietly proceed to draw their curves and to formulate their equations. They do not bother about the meaning of their reasoning and about its reference to the world of real life and action. He himself felt it was a necessity to explain the epistemology of economic science and devoted chapters 2 and 3 of Human Action, a total of 62 pages, to these issues. However, despite its fundamental importance, epistemology did play only an incidental role in human action. The great organizing theme of human action was the theory of economic calculation. Mises began with an analysis of the conditions under which no economic calculation could take place, then turned to the discussion of economic calculation in general, then within the market economy, and finally to those social settings that render economic calculation impossible, 
socialism, or perverted use interventionism. From a philosophical point of view, human action made a sweeping case for utilitarian social philosophy, utilitarian with a distinct Misesian flavor. And the scientific core of this case was economics, and the theory of economic calculation in particular. In his new book, Mises made another case for his utilitarian philosophy. This time, the argument turned on the epistemology of social analysis. Mises argued that the only scientific interpretation of social reality was based on economics and history, and that the conclusions of both these disciplines led to the more speculative generalizations of utilitarian philosophy as he understood it. He showed that the major alternative approaches, Marxism, positivism, and historicism, despite their pretensions to science, were untenable on epistemological grounds. They were essentially metaphysical doctrines, that is, their claims were not based on ascertainable fact, but on speculations, many of which, as Mises would show, were incoherent. The new book was eventually published under the title Theory and History, and subtitled An Interpretation of Social and Economic Evolution. It has remained one of his least read and least understood works. The difficulty lay only partly in the abstract nature of its subject. The main hurdle was, as in several of his other writings, a lack of pedagogical effort on his part. Most people know what to expect when they consult a treatise on economics, but few have any idea about the relationship between theoretical and historical approaches to social analysis. Mises' new book was not about narrating mankind's social and economic evolution. It dealt instead with the epistemological problems of the various competing narratives. In human action, he had referred to these problems incidentally. He had stressed that economic analysis, starting from the actions of individual persons, gave a purely fact-based account of the origin of human society. The holistic approaches had been unable to do this. They explained society by theological or metaphysical professions of faith. In theory and history, he amplified this argument into a sweeping epistemological vindication of the case for liberty and capitalism. The book is divided into four parts. Part one deals with the central phenomenon of the social sciences, value. Mises explains the nature of value and studies the implications for a scientific analysis of human behavior. In part two, he argues that while all endeavors to discover scientific laws must be built on the assumption of strict determinism, all attempts to find laws that determine the origin of ideas and value judgment have been in vain. Marxist dialectical materialism and other theories that explain ideas in terms of more fundamental material conditions are merely metaphysical speculation. The same holds true for those philosophies of history that explain the evolution of society in terms of some final destination. In Part 3, Mises gives an in-depth discussion of the problems of scientific historical analysis, developing the approach of the Southwest German School of Historiography. In Part 4, finally, he critically dissects various speculations about history. In what follows, we will discuss the major elements of this contribution. The Argument in a Nutshell For Mises, the starting point is that any epistemological speculation must lead to a determinism. This is so because the human mind is the instrument through which we learn about all things, and our human mind has a determinist bent. It cannot help thinking that all things are strictly determined by certain causes. Whatever the true nature of the universe and of reality may be, man can learn about it only what the logical structure of his mind makes comprehensible to him. 
the logical structure of his mind enjoys upon man determinism, and to the category of causality, as man sees it, whatever happens in the universe is the necessary evolution of forces, powers, and qualities which were already present in the initial stage of the X out of which all things stem. All things in the universe are interconnected, and all changes are the effects of powers inherent in things. No change occurs that would not be the necessary consequence of the preceding state. All facts are dependent upon and conditioned by their causes. No deviation from the necessary course of affairs is possible. Eternal law regulates everything. In this sense, determinism is the epistemological basis of the human search for knowledge. Man cannot even conceive the image of an undetermined universe. In such a world there could not be any awareness of material things and their changes. It would appear a senseless chaos. Nothing could be identified and distinguished from anything else. Nothing could be expected and predicted. In the midst of such an environment, man would be as helpless as if spoken to in an unknown language. No action could be designed, still less put into execution. Man is what he is because he lives in a world of regularity and has the mental power to conceive the relation of cause and effect. He emphasized that from the point of view of a perfect being such as God, things might look completely different. This position can best be characterized as a Leibnizian rationalism. This point of view implies that human action could be explained, at least in theory, in terms of underlying material forces. We know that human action is immediately determined by the ideas and value judgments of the acting individuals, but these ideas and value judgments must in turn be determined by more fundamental causes. If such causes were physical or chemical processes, then the explanation of human behavior could become a branch of applied physics or applied chemistry. However, and this is the crucial consideration that Mises had stressed already in previous work, at present, nobody knows anything about the more fundamental causes of human behavior. Up to now, all attempts to identify laws that would explain ideas and value judgments in terms of physical, chemical, or other processes have been in vain. There are various hypotheses about what such basic determination could look like, but not a single one of them has ever been validated. Thirteen years before he had written, we may reasonably assume as hypotheses that man's mental abilities are the outcome of his bodily features. Of course, we cannot demonstrate the correctness of this hypothesis, but neither is it possible to demonstrate the correctness of the opposite view as expressed in the theological hypothesis. We are forced to recognize that we do not know how out of physiological processes thoughts result. We have some vague notions of the detrimental effects produced by traumatic or other damage inflicted on certain bodily organs. We know that such damage may restrict or completely destroy the mental abilities and functions of men, but that is all. All such hypotheses are therefore mere speculation. They are philosophical or metaphysical constructs, not scientific knowledge. This point also applied to F. R. Hayek's The Sensory Order, a book that Mises did not cite. Hayek had attempted to analyze the mechanism through which physiological impulses come to be translated into mental perception. Apparently, Mises was not convinced that Hayek delivered more than metaphysical speculation. Our deficient knowledge about the more remote causes of human behavior has two straightforward methodological implications. All efforts to explain the causes and consequences of human behavior must, at least for the time being, take individual human behavior as an ultimate point of departure. They must accept the principle of methodological individualism. 
The old economists had applied this principle intuitively, and even Schumpeter, who coined the term, defended it merely on grounds of expediency. Mises delivered an epistemological demonstration of its necessity. Methodological individualism is rooted in deficient human knowledge. The causal analysis of individual human behavior must take account of the fact that any human action has certain invariant consequences, that is, consequences that result from like action at any place and any time. For example, an increase in the quantity of money tends to entail an increase of the price level above the level it would otherwise have reached, irrespective of when and where the money supply is increased. The study of such consequences is the task of praxeology and economic science. But human action also has contingent causes and consequences. The very same action increasing the quantity of money can be inspired by very different ideas and value judgments, and the objective consequences resulting from any action can provoke very different individual reactions at different times and places. In other words, the causal chains through which ideas and value judgments are connected with human action are contingent. The elucidation of these contingent causal chains is the task of historical research. Individual value judgments and actions are ultimately given, as they cannot be traced back to something of which they would appear to be the necessary consequence. If this were not the case, it would not be permissible to call them an ultimate given. But they are not, like the ultimate given in the natural sciences, a stopping point for human reflection. They are the starting point of a specific mode of reflection, of the specific understanding of the historical sciences of human action. Mises stressed that this is as far as scientific analysis of human action can go. Starting from observable human behavior, we can explain its invariant consequences with the help of economics. We can also explain its contingent consequences by historical understanding. And we can to some extent explain how this behavior resulted from the ideas and value judgments of the acting person in the particular case under consideration again by understanding. Mises did not exclude the possibility that individual value judgments and ideas had invariant causes, but again, neither he himself nor anybody else knew what they were. At present, only some of the contingent causes of human action could be identified by historical understanding on a case-by-case -case basis, and even this analysis was not likely to give the full picture. There was an unfathomable remnant that defied any explanation whatever, historical individuality. Mises explained, the characteristics of individual men, their ideas and judgments of value, as well as the actions guided by those ideas and judgments, cannot be traced back to something of which they would be the derivative. There is no answer to the question why Frederick II invaded Silesia, except because he was Frederick II. It follows that the social sciences, at least for the time being, cannot be bound with the natural sciences into a unified body of scientific knowledge. This ignorance splits the realm of knowledge into two separate fields, the realm of external events, commonly called nature, and the realm of human thought and action. For methodological reasons, the social sciences are separate from the natural sciences. Mises called this the principle of methodological dualism. Social analysis, if it just sticks to the known facts, must explain all social phenomena as resulting from individual action, and the causal chain of events must start and end with the ideas and value judgments of individuals. Scientific endeavors within the constraints of methodological individualism and methodological dualism entail the development of the disciplines called praxeology and history. 
The former is the discipline that describes the invariant consequences of human action that result regardless of time and place. The latter is the discipline that, one, describes value judgments from the point of view of the acting person, and two, describes how individual actions and other relevant factors combine with one another in a given objective context to produce a definite outcome. History describes in retrospect how the acting person perceived the situation in which he had to act, what he aimed at, what he believed to be the means at his disposition, and it uses the general laws provided by economics and the natural sciences to describe the objective impact that the acting person had through his behavior. Thus, the mission of history is to describe the drama of social and economic evolution from the point of view of its protagonist. Its specific tool is psychology, or specific understanding, or Mises' favorite expression, thymology. Of the two disciplines, economics had the most momentous practical implications. Mises in theory and history. Thymology has no special relation to praxeology and economics. The popular belief that modern subjective economics, the marginal utility school, is founded on or closely connected with psychology is mistaken. Praxeology is not concerned with the events which, within a man's soul or mind or brain, produce a definite decision between an A and a B. It takes it for granted that the nature of the universe enjoins upon man choosing between incompatible ends. Its subject is not the content of these acts of choosing, but what results from them. Action. It does not care about what a man chooses, but about the fact that he chooses, and acts in compliance with the choice made. The thymological analysis of man is essential in this study of history. It conveys all we can know about the ultimate ends and judgments of value. But as has been pointed out above, it is of no avail for praxeology, and for little use in dealing with the means applied to attain ends sought. In human action, Mises had shown that economic analysis leads directly to laissez-faire conclusions. He demonstrated that government intervention entails consequences that are unwanted even from the point of view of the champions of these interventions. In theory and history, he completed the case for capitalism from the epistemological point of view. In particular, he took on those theories that were grounded on an explicit or implicit rejection of methodological individualism and methodological dualism. His basic argument against the approaches of Marxism, teleological philosophies of history and positivism was that they had no scientific underpinning whatever. They were based on certain beliefs about social and economic evolution, but they had not delivered the goods. Their most fundamental tenets could neither be refuted nor verified with the tools of science, reason, and observation. Moreover, to the extent that they did make propositions about ascertainable facts, they were wrong or incoherent at the crucial junctures of the argument. For example, Marxism and the various philosophies of history could not explain how the general direction in which they believed society was moving resulted from individual action. Positivism blithely disregarded the fact that there are no constant relationships in observable human behavior. The champions of historicism contradicted themselves whenever they championed any government policy whatever, while holding to the notion that there was no such thing as economic law. Strictly speaking, these were metaphysical or quasi-religious doctrines, not science. Science and the Culture of Salutary Descent 
As Mises saw it, the task of metaphysics, philosophy, and religion was to slake the unquenchable human thirst for knowledge and certainty. He remarked, Those divines who saw that nothing but revelation could provide man with perfect certainty were right. Human scientific inquiry cannot proceed beyond the limits drawn by the insufficiency of man's senses and the narrowness of his mind. And even more clearly, a few years later, the human mind, in its search for knowledge, resorts to philosophy or theology precisely because it aims at an explanation of problems that the natural sciences cannot answer. There were questions to which science had not yet provided an answer. What determines the behavior of atoms? And there were questions to which science could not give any answers. Was there a beginning of time? Does the soul die? Science could give answers only to the extent that it could rely on ascertainable facts. There was a scientific interpretation of social and economic evolution only to the extent that there were ascertainable facts that warranted this interpretation. And even then, there were basic assumptions underlying any scientific analysis of facts that could not themselves be demonstrated. It is contradictory to expect that logic could be of any service in demonstrating the correctness or validity of the fundamental logical principles. All that can be said about them is that to deny their correctness or validity appears to the human mind nonsensical, and that thinking guided by them has led to modes of successful acting. There is no deductive demonstration possible of the principle of causality and of the amplitude inference of imperfect induction. There is only recourse to the no less indemonstrable statement that there is a strict regularity in the conjunction of all natural phenomena. If we were not to refer to this uniformity, all statements of the natural sciences would appear to be hasty generalizations. Now, Mises did believe that metaphysics, philosophy, and religion also relate to reality in some way, but the problem is that their interpretation of reality cannot be verified by reason and observation. Therefore, they cannot be demonstrated as a scientific proposition can be demonstrated and the espousal of a metaphysical or religious doctrine, therefore, cannot be grounded on such a demonstration, but must rely essentially on a value judgment. And Mises insisted that value judgments and ultimate ends are beyond any rational examination. They could only be examined by applying some standard of evaluation, but as soon as one applies such a standard, the end under consideration would no longer be an ultimate end, rather it would become a means for the attainment of the proposed standard. It follows that truly ultimate ends could not possibly be demonstrated by reason and observation. The characteristic mark of ultimate ends is that they depend entirely on each individual's personal and subjective judgment, which cannot be examined, measured, still less corrected by any other person. Each individual is the only and final arbiter in matters concerning his own satisfaction and happiness. Notice that Mises admitted the existence of errors in regard to one's value judgments. He also took it for granted that one could enjoy art. The point was, again, that each individual is his own judge. Even the venerable idea of justice interpreted as an ultimate end cannot be demonstrated. One has to rely on intuition and interpretation of one's inner voice. Yet how can disagreements between different intuitions and different inner voices be settled? Moreover, and most importantly, justice is not an ultimate end. It is a means for the attainment of social cooperation. All these ethical doctrines have failed to comprehend that there is, outside of social bonds and proceeding, temporally or logically, the existence of society, or logically, the existence of society, 
nothing to which the epithet just can be given. A hypothetical isolated individual must, under the pressure of biological competition, look upon all other people as deadly foes. His only concern is to preserve his own life and health. He does not need to heed the consequences which his own survival has for other men. He has no use for justice. His only solicitudes are hygiene and defense. But in social cooperation with other men, the individual is forced to abstain from conduct incompatible with life in society. Only then does the distinction between what is just and what is unjust emerge. It invariably refers to interhuman social relations. What is beneficial to the individual without affecting his fellows, such as the observance of certain rules in the use of some drugs, remains hygiene. The ultimate yardstick of justice is conduciveness to the preservation of social cooperation. Conduct suited to preserve social cooperation is just. Conduct detrimental to the preservation of society is unjust. This raises an important practical problem for all systems of social organization that, because they cannot be built on scientific demonstration, must rely exclusively on value judgment. The problem appears as soon as one raises the question, how do the members of such systems deal with dissenters? The question concerns a particular members of different collectivist systems of social organization. Their starting point is the moral postulate that the collective takes precedence over the individual. If a man assigns a higher value to the concern of a collective than to his other concerns, and acts accordingly, that is his affair. So long as the collectivist philosophers proceed in this way, no objection can be raised, but they argue differently. They elevate their personal judgments of value to the dignity of an absolute standard of value. They urge other people to stop valuing according to their own will, and to adopt unconditionally the precepts to which collectivism has assigned absolute eternal validity. What happens, though, when individuals are reluctant to espouse the collectivist agenda? Mises emphasized that the collectivists depend on violence to solve this problem. There is, of course, but one way to make one's own judgments of value supreme. One must beat into submission all those dissenting. This is what all representatives of the various collectivist doctrines are striving for. They ultimately recommend the use of violence and pitiless annihilation of all those whom they condemn as heretics. Collectivism is a doctrine of war, intolerance, and persecution. If any of the collectivist creeds should succeed in its endeavors, all people but the great dictator would be deprived of their essential human quality. They would become mere soulless pawns in the hands of a monster. Again, the basic problem of all collectivist schemes is that, in their argument, they willy-nilly have to rely on value judgments, and value judgments cannot be proven to be right or wrong. In contrast, the facts of science are ascertainable by all people. Anyone can check for himself the veracity of what the scientists say. He can convince himself that one course of action is feasible, while another is not, or that one course of action leads to a desired outcome, while another one fails to do so. Science has nothing to say about ultimate ends or value judgments, but it does provide knowledge about the earthly means to attain earthly ends. It is therefore the foremost tool for men to find a minimal agreement for cooperation in the world, despite their differences in beliefs and value judgments. Catholics, Protestants, Jews, and Muslims might not agree on theological questions, but all of them can check for themselves that a greater division of labor is more productive than a smaller one or that money prices are needed for economic calculation. 
It follows that a free society can work even if its members do not share the same ultimate value judgments. The characteristic feature of a free society is that it can function in spite of the fact that its members disagree in many judgments of value. In the market economy, business serves not only the majority but also various minorities, provided they are not too small in respect of the economic goods which satisfying their special wishes would require. Philosophical treatises are published, though few people read them, and the masses prefer other books or none, if enough readers are foreseen to recover the costs. A few years later, Mises went beyond this defense of dissent to a position of advocacy. Not only is dissent compatible with the functioning of a free society, it was actually the driving force behind the cultural and economic development that culminated in the 19th century. What transformed the stagnant conditions of the good old days into the activism of capitalism was not changes in the natural sciences and in technology, but the adoption of the free enterprise principle. The great ideological movement that started with the Renaissance, continued in the Enlightenment, and in the 19th century culminated in liberalism, produced both capitalism, the free market economy, and its political corollary, or as the Marxians have to say, its political superstructure, representative government, and the individual's civic rights, freedom of conscience, of thought, of speech, and of all other methods of communication. It was in the climate created by this capitalistic system of individualism that all the modern intellectual achievements thrived. Never before had mankind lived under conditions like those of the second part of the 19th century, when, in the civilized countries, the most momentous problems of philosophy, religion, and science could be freely discussed without any fear of reprisals on the part of the powers that be. It was an age of productive and salutary dissent. This culture of salutary dissent was ultimately the product of freedom and thought and speech, but its more proximate cause was the discovery and dissemination of economic science. The Development and practical application of this new discipline, concluded Mises, was the most spectacular event of modern history. Heroic Elites in a Mass Democracy Yet by the mid-1950s, capitalism and classical liberalism were everywhere on the retreat. How was it possible that the great majority of Westerners had forgotten or failed to appreciate the most spectacular event of modern history? In theory and history, Mises outlined his account of the rise and fall of classical liberalism. In the center of his reflection was the relationship between elites and masses, a relationship that he analyzed within the framework of his epistemological reflection. In other writings, he had already stressed the fundamental historical fact that social progress, in particular the rise of capitalism, had resulted from the efforts of a small group of individuals. The most amazing thing concerning the unprecedented change in earthly conditions brought about by capitalism is the fact that it was accomplished by a small number of authors and a hardly greater number of statesmen who had assimilated their teachings. Not only the sluggish masses, but also most of the businessmen who, by their trading, made the laissez-faire principles effective, failed to comprehend the essential features of their operation. Even in the heyday of liberalism, only a few people had a full grasp of the functioning of the market economy. Western civilization adopted capitalism upon recommendation on the part of a small elite. How is this possible? Because ultimately society is ruled by ideas. Small groups who spread their ideas can therefore have, in due time, a disproportionate impact on social organization. A rather superficial and shallow view of the problems of government saw the distinction between freedom and despotism 
in an outward feature of the system of rule and administration, namely, in the number of people exercising direct control of the social apparatus of coercion and compulsion. The way toward a realistic distinction between freedom and bondage was opened 200 years ago by David Hume's immortal essay on the first principles of government. Government, taught Hume, is always government of the many by the few. Power is therefore always ultimately on the side of the governed, and the governors have nothing to support them but opinion. Now Mises combined this insight with his epistemology of the social sciences. If Hume was right, that ideas rule society, and if it was true that no scientific account could be given on how new ideas emerge in general, then it follows that new ideas were the true driving force in human history. History is the record of human action. Human action is the conscious effort of man to substitute more satisfactory conditions for less satisfactory ones. Ideas determine what are to be considered more and less satisfactory conditions and what means are to be resorted to alter them. Thus, ideas are the main theme of the study of history. The genesis of every new idea is an innovation. It adds something new and unheard of before to the course of world affairs. The reason history does not repeat itself is that every historical state is the consummation of the operation of ideas different from those that operated in other historical states. He continued, The essence of civilization is ideas. If we try to distinguish different civilizations, the differentia specifica can be found only in the different meanings of the ideas that determined them. It follows that intellectual elites were the true elites in comparison to which the mighty and powerful of any age are just the executors of ideas developed in previous ages. The creative genius was the hero, the true driving force of history. Every man, whether great or small, lives and acts within the frame of his age's historical circumstances. These circumstances are determined by all the ideas and events of the preceding ages, as well as by those of his own age. The titan may outweigh each of his contemporaries. He is no match for the united forces of the dwarfs. A statesman can succeed only insofar as his plans are adjusted to the climate of opinion of his time, that is, to the ideas that have got hold of his fellows' minds. He can become a leader only if he is prepared to guide people along the paths they want to walk and toward the goal they want to attain. A statesman who antagonizes public opinion is doomed to failure. No matter whether he is an autocrat or an officer of a democracy, the politician must give the people what they wish to get, very much as a businessman must supply the customers with the things they wish to acquire. It is different with the pioneers of new ways of thinking and new modes of art and literature. The pathbreaker, who disdains the applause he may get from the crowd of his contemporaries, does not depend on his own age's ideas. The genius work, too, is embedded in the sequence of historical events. It is conditioned by the achievements of preceding generations, and is merely a chapter in the evolution of ideas but it adds something new and unheard of to the treasure of thoughts, and may in this essence be called creative. The genuine history of mankind is the history of ideas, and in searching for their origin we inevitably come to a point at which all that can be asserted is that a man had an idea. Whether the name of this man is known or not is of secondary importance. In Mises' worldview, in which all things and all thoughts are the necessary consequence, of antecedent causes, ideas were the one dynamic element of social evolution. The discoverers and promoters of new ideas, the creative geniuses, were the social vanguard, the elite, 
that led humanity onto new paths, both good and bad. Mises' stress on the particularities of the genius is a pervasive feature of his thought, running from Gemeinwirtschaft via Human Action, 1949, to Theory and History, 1957, and Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science, 1962. It is not known where his inspiration came from, but it cannot be excluded that he took it for granted that educated people would know the theoretician who had insisted on the categorical difference between mere talent, be it ever so great, and true genius. Weininger wrote at the beginning of the century, Someone may have a talent, for example, the mathematical talent by birth, and to an extraordinary degree he will then be able to digest the most difficult chapters of this science with but small effort. But it does not follow that for this reason he has any genius, which is the same thing as originality, individuality, and condition of his own productivity. Conversely, there are great geniuses who have not developed any special talent to a high degree. Just think of Novalis or Jean-Paul. Talent is hereditary. It may be the common good of a family, the Bachs. Genius is not transferable. It is never general, but always individual. Johann Sebastian But in order to play this role, they had to be aware of their responsibility. Now, the problem was that the majority of the rationalist philosophers who pioneered the capitalist revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries were not sufficiently self-aware. They did not perceive themselves as a small elite and did not see social progress as necessarily driven by small elites. Rather, they indulged in egalitarian fantasies about society. They assumed that all men are endowed with the same power of reasoning. They ignored the difference between clever people and dullards, even that between the pioneering genius and the vast crowds of simple routinists who at best can espouse the doctrines developed by the great thinkers, but more often are incapable of comprehending them. As the rationalists saw it, every sane adult was intelligent enough to grasp the meaning of the most complicated theory. If he failed to achieve it, the fault lay not in his intellect, but in his education. Once all people have enjoyed a perfect education, all will be as wise and judicious as the most eminent sage. He added, The second shortcoming of rationalism was its neglect of the problem of erroneous thinking. Most of the rationalist philosophers failed to see that even honest men, sincerely devoted to the search for truth, could err. This prepossession prevented them from doing justice to the ideologies and the metaphysical doctrines of the past. A doctrine of which they disapproved could, in their opinion, have been promoted only by purposeful deceit. Many of them dismissed all religions as the product of the intentional fraud of wicked impostors. Schumpeter had discussed the shortcomings of the classical doctrine of democracy along very similar lines. Both Schumpeter and Mises would highlight the crucial role of leadership in the operation of the market and in politics. In distinct contrast to Schumpeter, however, Mises stressed intellectual leadership. He also insisted that leadership could be good or bad. It could promote the preservation and flourishing of society, but it could also hurt and destroy it. Mises held that as a consequence of this era of the 18th century rationalists and perpetuated by the 19th century socialists, the dull masses were increasingly reluctant to accept intellectual leadership from anyone but those who flattered them. They were imbued with the mystical notion that the mass of the people can never be wrong, that society could do without the guidance of intellectuals. Faced with this situation, the classical liberals still endorsed democracy, and so did Mises. 
It was true that mass democracy had led straight to the dictatorship of the proletariat and the autocracy of Hitler, Mussolini, Peron, and other modern successes of the Greek tyrants, but the crucial question was whether any alternative political system could have prevented these excesses. Despite the political and humanitarian catastrophes of the 20th century, Mises did not abandon the case for democracy. Rather, he appealed to the elites to accept their responsibilities by engaging in public debate and enlightening their fellow citizens about the right course of action. If the small minority of enlightened citizens who are able to conceive sound principles of political management do not succeed in winning the support of their fellow citizens and converting them to the endorsement of policies that bring and preserve prosperity, the cause of mankind and civilization is hopeless. There is no other means to safeguard a propitious development of human affairs than to make the masses of inferior people adopt the ideas of the elite. This has to be achieved by convincing them. It cannot be accomplished by a despotic regime that instead of enlightening the masses beats them into submission. In the long run, the ideas of the majority, however detrimental they may be, will carry on. The future of mankind depends on the ability of the elite to influence public opinion in the right direction. What does this imply more specifically for libertarian intellectuals, who wish to steer social evolution toward greater freedom? Do they have to make the case for a particular form of government, or for a particular design of constitutions? Mises would have none of this. The form of government was a completely secondary problem, because tyranny could exist under any of the possible systems. He argued that the primary challenge for libertarian intellectuals was to preserve a climate of opinion that tolerated dissent. Hume's insight that governors have nothing to support them but opinion, logically followed to its conclusion, completely changed the discussion concerning liberty. The mechanical and arithmetical point of view was abandoned. If public opinion is ultimately responsible for the structure of government, it is also the agency that determines whether there is freedom or bondage. There is virtually only one factor that has the power to make people unfree. Tyrannical public opinion the struggle for freedom is ultimately not resistance to autocrats or oligarchs, but resistance to the despotism of public opinion. It is not the struggle of the many against the few, but of minorities, sometimes of a minority of but one man, against the majority. The worst and most dangerous form of absolutist rule is that of an intolerant majority. Such is the conclusion arrived at by Tocqueville and John Stuart Mill. Without an elite defending tolerance, there could be no culture of dissent, no competition and progress in the economic sphere. Mises was not being naive in ascribing this responsibility to intellectuals. They were the heroes of the drama of human history, yes, but they also had to be truly heroic in their attitude to a life. He knew from bitter personal experience that a pro-capitalist intellectual could not expect lavish material rewards. A case in point was the commercial book market. A true pioneer could not expect a high income on a free market. Reverence to the great authors and artists has always been limited to small groups. The book market is flooded by a downpour of trivial fiction for the semi-barbarians, but this does not prevent great authors from creating imperishable works. The decisive consideration was again that no alternative social system held better promise. It is, of course, true that in the market economy not those fare best who, from the point of view of an enlightened judgment, ought to be considered as the most eminent individuals of the human species. The uncouth hordes of common men, 
are not fit to recognize duly the merits of those who eclipse their own wretchedness. They judge everybody from the point of view of the satisfaction of their desires. Thus boxing champions and authors of detective stories enjoy a higher prestige and earn more money than philosophers and poets. Those who bemoan this fact are certainly right, but no social system could be devised that would fairly reward the contributions of the innovator whose genius leads mankind to ideas unknown before and therefore first rejected by all those who lack the same inspiration. The only consolidation for great but unsuccessful intellectuals was that the pioneers in business did not fare any better. The much-defamed acquisitiveness of promoters and speculators succeeds daily in providing the masses with commodities and services unknown before. A hoard of plenty is poured upon people for whom the methods by means of which all these marvellous gadgets are produced are incomprehensible. These dull beneficiaries of the capitalistic system indulge in the delusion that it is their own performance of routine jobs that creates all these marvels. They cast their votes for rulers who are committed to a policy of sabotage and destruction. They look upon big business necessarily committed to catering to mass consumption as upon the foremost public enemy and approve of every measure that, as they think, improves their own conditions by punishing those whom they envy. The Study of History Mises devoted all of Part Three to the discussion of the nature, scope, and methods of historical research. This might be surprising from the pen of an economist, but keep in mind that Mises was interested in economics as a tool to guide action. In his early years as a student at the University of Vienna, his practical concern had made him dissatisfied with the methods taught by the historical school. A passage from Theory and History sums up the problem. The historicist's fateful error consisted in the belief that this analysis of the past in itself conveys information about the course future action has to take. What the historical account provides is the description of the situation. The reaction depends on the meaning the actor gives it, on the ends he wants to attain, and on the means he chooses for their attainment. By the 1950s, a sort of neo-historicism was in full swing and about to conquer Western academia. The new movement was led by statisticians and econometricians who held precisely the views that Mises had rejected more than fifty years earlier. In correspondence with Neumeyer, he lamented, They are full of contempt for what they call metaphysical economics. Only facts, they say, count that these facts are history, and not facts in the sense in which the natural sciences employ this term remains unknown to them. The official doctrine of all these research institutions, government economists, university economists, and so on, is, for instance, that the socialist program is not to be refuted by metaphysics, but by facts. They point out, for instance, that profits are only X percent of the national income of only Y percent of the sales dollar, and that, therefore, the socialists are wrong. But the socialists believe that all profits as such are wrong, and are to be confiscated. They used the same figures to corroborate their own contentions. Mises had turned to economics because this discipline provided knowledge about something on which historical research was mute, even with the advanced techniques of econometrics, namely the objective suitability of means to attain social ends. Yet the same overarching practical motivation preserved his lifelong interest in the study of history. In theory and history, Mises set out to explain why and how historical knowledge had to complement economics as a guide for human action. Thus, he closed a great parenthesis opened during his days 
in the Grünberg seminar. In his previous works, he had outlined the division of labor between praxeology and history. He had presented history as a sort of residual discipline that sought to come to grips with problems that could not be addressed by the exact disciplines. Mises wrote on page 50 of Human Action, The scope of understanding is the mental grasp of phenomena which cannot be totally elucidated by logic, mathematics, praxeology, and the natural sciences to the extent that they cannot be cleared up by all these other sciences. It must never contradict the teachings of these other branches of knowledge. He had singled out in particular the problem of assigning relative quantitative weights to different causes that combine into an observable effect. Mises called this the problem of relevance. The only way to tackle this was to apply the specific tool of the historian, understanding, or verstehen. The historian can enumerate all the factors which cooperated in bringing about a known effect, and all the factors which worked against them and may have resulted in delaying and mitigating the final outcome but he cannot coordinate, except by understanding, the various causative factors in a quantitative way to the effects produced. He cannot, except by understanding, assign to each of n factors its role in producing the effect P. Understanding is in the realm of history the equivalent, as it were, of quantitative analysis and measurement. But the understanding of the relative quantitative contribution of any one cause to a combined effect could not be independently verified or refuted. As a consequence, the problem of relevance was the source of insuperable disagreement between men of science, and Mises stressed that it was in fact the only source of lasting disagreement. Historical understanding can never produce results which must be accepted by all men. Historians may disagree for various reasons. They may hold different views with regard to the teachings of the non-historical sciences. They may base their reasoning on a more or less complete familiarity with the records. They may differ in the understanding of the motives and aims of the acting men, and of the means applied by them. All these differences are open to a settlement by objective reasoning. It is possible to reach a universal agreement with regard to them. But as far as historians disagree with regard to judgments of relevance, it is impossible to find a solution which all sane men must accept. And in theory and history, speaking of the same problem, the precariousness of forecasting is mainly due to the intricacy of this problem. It is not only a rather puzzling question in forecasting future events, it is no less puzzling in retrospect for the historian. In theory and history, Mises wanted to flesh out his theory of understanding. He did not believe that the necessarily subjective judgments of relevance somehow made history otiose. Despite its deficiencies, only the discipline of history could solve certain problems that were of utmost practical importance. In particular, history alone could provide an analysis of the context of action. Mises stressed that human action was always embedded in concrete circumstances of time and place. Action was a conscious response to a given situation, and it could succeed only if the acting person understood the present. But... There is no such thing as a non-historical analysis of the present state of affairs. The examination and description of the present are necessarily a historical account of the past, ending with the instant just past. The description of the present state of politics, or of business, is inevitably the narration of the events that have brought about the present state. If, in business or in government, a new man takes the helm, his first task is to find out what has been done up to the last minute. The statesman, as well as the businessman, learns about the present situation from studying the records of the past. 
Mises knew what he was talking about. Reporting on current business and political conditions had been his daily bread for many years. Moreover, at two critical junctures, he had analyzed the state of affairs in politics, in Nation, State and Economy, 1919, and in Omnipotent Government, 1944. He had analyzed the forces at work in the rise of aggressive nationalism and statism, as well as their cataclysmic endings in the two world wars. At the onset of the Cold War, he had added a third piece, Planned Chaos, 1946, which told the tale of the rise of the Soviet Union to its position of power. Thus, he was in a good position to challenge those of his readers who might disagree. Let those who want to reject the preceding statements undertake to describe any present situation in philosophy, in politics, on a battlefield, on the stock exchange, in an individual business enterprise, without reference to the past. But how far back should history be studied? Was it practical or necessary for statesmen and business leaders to seek instruction about more than the past few years before they took office? He observed that there is no point in history at which we can stop our investigation fully satisfied that we have not overlooked any important factor. There was no a priori rule that could be helpful in deciding where to stop historical research. The usefulness of further knowledge could only be determined after completion of additional research. In any case, it was a grave error to believe that increasing remoteness in time meant decreasing practical relevance. The mere fact that an event happened in a distant country and a remote age does not in itself prove that it has no bearing on the present. Jewish affairs of 3,000 years ago influenced the lives of millions of present-day Christian Americans more than what happened to the American Indians as late as in the second part of the 19th century. In the present-day conflict of the Roman Church and the Soviet, there are elements that trace back to the great schism of the Eastern and Western Churches that originated more than a thousand years ago. The specific intellectual tool applied in historical research was understanding or verstehen, the term introduced by the Southwest German School of Historiography. In his previous writings, Mises had referred to and endorsed the historical works of this school. In theory and history, he developed his own account of the theory of Verstehen. He presented it as a tool to unearth facts provided by introspection and by contact with other human beings. It signifies the cognition of human emotions, motivations, ideas, judgments of value and volitions, a faculty indispensable to everybody in the conduct of daily affairs, and no less indispensable to the authors of poems, novels, and plays, as well as to historians. Modern epistemology calls this mental process of the historians the specific understanding of the historical sciences of human action. However, it is not a mental process exclusively resorted to by historians. It is applied by everybody in daily intercourse with all his fellows. It is a technique employed in all interhuman relations. It is practiced by children in the nursery, and kindergarten, by businessmen in trade, by politicians and statesmen in affairs of state. Mises was reluctant to use the word psychology to describe this approach because by the early 1950s, the new discipline of experimental psychology had become fairly entrenched and was about to become identified with psychology per se. In order to avoid confusion, he introduced a new term to designate the traditional humanistic discipline of psychology. Thymology is what everybody learns from intercourse with his fellows. It is what a man knows about the way in which people value different conditions, about their wishes and desires, 
and their plans to realize these wishes and desires. It is the knowledge of the social environment in which a man lives and acts, or, with historians, of a foreign milieu about which he has learned by studying special sources. Mises observed that the members of the Southwest German school were unaware of the existence of economic theory, but this did not diminish their achievements in the clarification of the logical nature of history. In theory and history, Mises made an important contribution to the theory of Verstehen. He pointed out that the main application of Verstehen was not in the analysis of the past, but as a tool for anticipating the future. There were, in fact, two types of historians, the historian of the past as well as the historian of the future, that is, acting man. The Southwest German school and its followers, such as Alfred Schütz, had in their writings exclusively dealt with the historian of the past, but the most urgent questions related to the historian of the future. The main epistemological problem of this specific understanding is how can a man have any knowledge of the future value judgments and actions of other people? The traditional method of dealing with this problem, commonly called the problem of the alter ego or Fremdverstehen, is unsatisfactory. It focused attention upon grasping the meaning of other people's behavior in the present, or more correctly, in the past. But the task with which acting man, that is everybody, is faced in all relations with his fellows does not refer to the past, it refers to the future. To know the future reactions of other people is the first task of acting man. Knowledge of their past value judgments and actions, although indispensable, is only a means to this end. What, then, is the logical character of the Verstehen of future action? Mises is unequivocal. The historian of the future is essentially an intellectual entrepreneur. All his knowledge concerns contingent data of the past that cannot be generalized. How can such information about particular circumstances of time and place be used to forecast the future? There is only one way. The historian of the future must guess what the future will be. Forecasting is inherently speculative and uncertain when it comes to anticipating future human behavior. Psychology in the sense of thymology is a branch of history. It derives its knowledge from historical experience. All that thymology can tell us is that in the past, definite men or groups of men were valuing and acting in a definite way. Whether they will in the future value and act in the same way remains uncertain. All that can be asserted about their future conduct is speculative anticipation of the future based on the specific understanding of the historical branches of the sciences of human action. He later gave a more operational description of the intellectual process involved. Out of what we know about a man's past behavior, we construct a scheme about what we call his character. We assume that this character will not change if no special reasons interfere, and, going a step farther, we even try to foretell how definite changes in conditions will affect his reactions. This insight delivered a clue to the vexed problems of cultural history, a discipline riddled with chauvinistic and nihilistic prejudices. Mises would have nothing of the sort of cultural relativism that the young Levi Strauss had championed just a few years before. He believed in the... Chapter 22. Fragmentation of the Movement the emergence of the Austro-Libertarian movement in America reached its high point in the year 1956. Ten years of continuous expansion ushered in a torrent of important publications and other breakthroughs. In 1955, Hans Zenholz published his first book. In early 1956, his wife Mary edited a Festschrift for Mises that documented 
the Austro-Libertarian Network of Intellectuals. Mises himself published The Anti-Capitalistic Mentality and gave the opening address at the 1956 Mont Pelerin Society meeting in Berlin on the permanent inflation. Also in 1956, Murray Rothbard received his PhD in economics from Columbia University and Zenholz obtained his first position at Grove City College. 1956 was also the year when Mises began to receive outward signs of recognition. Unlike several of his friends and colleagues, such as Hans Kelsen and Josef Schumpeter, Mises had never been fortunate enough to receive prizes, honorary doctorates, prestigious positions, and influence in politics. He had spent his life swimming against the tide, and by now he probably did not even expect the applause of his contemporaries. In 1937, the Vienna Kammer sought to have Mises promoted to the rank of a Hofrat or Courts councillor, the highest rank attainable for non-political appointees among the Austrian civil servants, but Hitler's takeover prevented this. Mises then had to wait until he was almost 75 to receive public recognition. In June 1956, he was accorded a $15,000 William Volker Distinguished Service Award. A year later, he received an honorary doctorate from Grove City College, and other honours followed over the next few years. The most lasting sign of the veneration that Mises enjoyed in those days is the bronze bust that George Cota arranged to be made also in 1956. Recognition for lifetime achievement is usually accompanied by a winding down. So it was in the case of Mises and of the movement he inspired in the 1950s. In personal public appearances, he began to feel his age. He had never been an orator, but had always been impressive, especially in smaller settings, for his encompassing knowledge of the subject and for his lucid and systematic exposition. This flame shone for the last time at the Princeton Mont Pelerin Society meeting in 1958 and in a series of lectures he gave in Buenos Aires in 1959. Thereafter, his frailty weighed ever more heavily. Already in 1956-1957 he had not felt well for many months. In May, at the end of the academic year, he looked forward to spending a long vacation in Austria and Switzerland. He was increasingly hard of hearing, and was soon unable to conduct seminar discussions without the assistance of Percy Graves. It was at this point that a strategic weakness of the burgeoning Austro-Libertarian movement began to be felt quite painfully, the age gap. Between the almost octogenarian Mises and his major thirty-something disciples, Zenholtz, Rothbart and Kurtzner in particular, there was no intermediate generation to take leadership from Mises's faltering hands. Henry Hazlitt and Leonard Reed were the right age, but were thought of as mere popularizers of the ideas of others. They lacked the authority to lead what was, after all, an intellectual movement. Mary Zenholtz had argued that Reed was underestimated as an intellectual figure. The libertarian movement now came under the influence of those who were already intellectual authorities, and in the prime age for leadership, but not really Misesians in the Austro-libertarian sense. By the early 1960s, Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, and Ayn Rand had acquired solid reputations as writers and were ready for national recognition as the leaders of an intellectual movement. It was due to their unrivaled impact that in the 1960s Austro-Libertarianism came to be largely supplanted by other libertarian and conservative movements. The most visible signs of this paradigm shift were the displacement of the Freeman by National Review, established in 1955, the takeover of the Mont Pelerin Society by Chicago school neoliberals in the 1960s, and the emergence of an organized Randian or objectivist movement. All this occurred while American mass opinion was being converted to the gospel of interventionism and socialism. 
Mises must have been shocked about the results of a survey among American high school seniors, as reported in a 1955 letter to the editor of the Wall Street Journal. Asked about their attitudes toward free enterprise, 82% said they did not believe that there was business competition in the United States. 60% said owners received too much profit. 76% believed owners got most of the gains from new machinery. 55% championed the postulate, from each according to ability, to each according to needs. 61% rejected the profit motive as the driving force of the economic system, and 60% said workers should not produce all they could. Austro-libertarianism simmered on a low flame for the next two decades. It lingered as an underground movement centered around Hans Zenholz, Murray Rothbard, and starting in the 1970s, also around Israel Kurtzner and Ludwig Lachmann. The movement was further weakened through internal strife. The most important disagreement concerned the anarchy question. Is a minimal state necessary to preserve a free society? The Rothbardian anarchists rejected the state entirely, claiming that its protection and contract enforcement functions were, like all other services, better served by free market competition than government monopoly. This stance cost them the support of the classical liberal groups around Leonard Reed and Hans Zenholz, who advocated minimal state or monarchist solutions. Yet the coherence and radicalism of Rothbard's views attracted many of the brightest young minds, and when Austro-Libertarianism re-emerged as a powerful intellectual force in the 1980s and 90s, with the Ludwig von Mises Institute at its epicenter, it did so under the intellectual leadership of Murray Rothbard. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, Mises witnessed the rise of an American conservative mass movement and of the neoliberal Chicago school within the Mont Pelerin society. He saw some of his most promising students abandon their support for free enterprise. Conservative Movement and Libertarian Remnant By the mid-1950s, the Freeman had accomplished its goal of rallying the disparate libertarian forces, the remnant, as Albert J. Nock would call them. Yet its financial and organizational difficulties had opened the gates for another non-leftist periodical which would consolidate the forces on the American right from a far less libertarian point of view than the Freeman. National Review burst onto the American scene in the fall of 1955. Its driving force was the young editor-in-chief, William F. Buckley, Jr., a Yale graduate with a strong anti-communist pedigree. During his studies, he had gathered information on professors and fellow students for the FBI. Buckley absorbed the editorial talent that was unable to find a home at the Freeman, in particular Suzanne Lafollette and William Henry Chamberlain, but also such men as Russell Kirk, Frank Meyer, Max Eastman, and Eric von Kunnelt-Ledin. When Buckley announced National Review as frankly conservative, old-world men such as Mises must have thought that, frankly, Buckley did not know what he was talking about. Mises did contribute a few pieces in the course of the first few years of National Review's existence, but on more than one occasion he emphasized the difference between libertarianism and conservatism. In response to birthday greetings in 1957, he wrote, Unfortunately, this cannot be changed. I am a surviving contemporary of Karl Marx, Wilhelm I, and Horatio Alger, in short, a paleoliberal, paleoliberala. In October 1954, Mises declined an invitation from Yale University to participate in a series called Conservative Lectures, which was promoted with the promise that each lecturer will work consciously to a restoration of the power of the word conservative. 
He noted that the word conservative had no political roots in America, and that in Europe it meant the very opposite of the principles for which America stood. To conserve means to preserve what exists. It is an empty program. It is merely negative, rejecting any change. To conserve what exists is in present-day America tantamount to preserving those laws and institutions that the New Deal and the Fair Deal have bequeathed to the nation. The sudden emergence of the word conservative highlighted a more general unease of the counter-revolutionary forces in the United States. They were quite sure what they were against: communism, fascism, socialism, the New Deal, the Fair Deal, etc. But what did they stand for? The fact is that even in the leadership of the new movement, economic knowledge and staunch libertarian convictions were rare. The recourse to words like conservatism. Reflected a widespread unease about adopting any clear positive message. It was easier to be evasive than to state clearly that at the centre of the new movement's agenda stood the principle of private property. Other terms started floating around too, such as limited government, federalism, and decentralisation. When Mises emphasised in a paper the crucial importance of an independent judicial apparatus that protects the individual and his property against any violator. Whether king or common robber, the secretary of the Erhard Foundation wondered whether this might not be too radical. After all, judges in the United States were all appointed and paid by the government. Mises replied that the American judges were independent in so far as they could not be removed or prosecuted, even if their decisions were not palatable to the executive. In contrast, the insistence on limited government was at best useful. In the present-day American fight against the attempts to make the government step by step totalitarian, Mises went on. But there is no doubt that outside of this special field, this term is meaningless, as it does not indicate in what regard the government ought to be limited. Union bosses could, for instance, refer to this slogan to justify non-interference on the part of the government whenever strikers commit acts of violence, sabotage, etc. It was therefore of vital importance that one advocate clearly. The supremacy of private property and its offshoots, capitalism, and the market economy, insistence on federalism and decentralization would not do. Decentralization on a federal basis gives in itself no guarantee that freedom will be preserved. Medieval feudalism had both decentralization and federalism, but only the lords were free and tax exempt. Burghers and peasants. Had to endure legal disabilities, had no share in the government, and had alone to pay taxes. These were very good reasons not to use the label conservative for the new American movement that rejected communism, socialism, the New Deal, and the emerging anti-market mentality of the ever more statist mainstream. But the die was cast. Four years after the establishment of National Review, the label conservative held the public arena. By that time, at the latest. Mises must have outlived the optimism he had felt in the early days of the Freeman. He reverted to the pessimistic outlook that had become almost second nature. When his student George Reisman said he had the impression that the laissez-faire liberals were growing in numbers, Mises replied that this was the natural impression of a person who was still in the process of getting to know the other scattered individuals of the remnant. Such a person might think there are ever more individuals to share his views, because he comes to know ever more such individuals. But Mises believed that the growth was only in personal acquaintance and not in absolute numbers.
On another occasion he commented that his writings were like the Dead Sea Scrolls, that someone would find a thousand years from now. But pessimism did not prevent Mises from fighting the good fight, and from encouraging others to be strong in the battle of ideas. In a letter to Hayek, who had also vigorously rejected the label of conservative, Mises wrote, I completely agree with your rejection of conservatism. In his book Up from Liberalism, Buckley, as a person of fine and educated man, has clearly defined his standpoint. Conservatism is the tacit acknowledgement that all that is finally important in human experience is behind us, that the crucial explorations have been undertaken, and that it is given to man to know what are the great truths that emerged from them. Whatever is to come cannot outweigh the importance to man of what has gone before. Origenes, Augustinus, and Thomas Aquinas have said the same thing in other words. It is a sad truth that this program is more attractive than everything that has been said about liberty and about the idealistic and materialistic benefits of the free economy. What were the reasons for this sad truth? Mises felt there was here an unexplored question, he went on. I assume that you, just as I, do not write to console yourself with the proverb Dixi et salvavi anima meam, I have spoken and thus saved my soul. Hence there is the question, how is it possible that the elite of our contemporaries is absolutely clueless vis-à-vis -vis all these things? How does it come, for example, that the sugar-price policy of the American government is hardly ever contested, even though out of 500 or 1,000 voters there is at most one who can expect advantages from an institutionally increased sugar price? The problem I have in mind is not the behaviour of the mass of intellectuals and of those who count themselves among the intellectuals. I mean those authors, both fiction and non-fiction, who, for example, speak about affluence and simultaneously about an overpopulation that brings mankind close to starvation. Or the Civil Liberties Union, which on the one hand moves heaven and earth when it finds that a tennis club admits Negroes to its courts only as guests, but denies the membership, but which declares, on the other hand, that it is no civil right to work without a union card. Demise of the Cirque Bastia The only work that matched human action as a literary monument to the libertarian renaissance of the early post-war period was Ayn Rand's novel Atlas Shrugged. Mises was a great admirer of this work and said so in a letter to its author. Atlas Shrugged is not merely a novel. It is also, or may I say first of all, a cogent analysis of the evils that plague our society, a substantiated rejection of the ideology of our self-styled intellectuals, and a pitiless unmasking of the insincerity of the policies adopted by governments and political parties. It is a devastating exposure of the moral cannibals, the gigolos of science, and of the academic prattle of the makers of the anti-industrial revolution. You have the courage to tell the masses what no politician told them. You are inferior, and all the improvements in your conditions which you simply take for granted you owe to the effort of men who are better than you. If this is arrogance, as some of your critics observed, it still is the truth that had to be said in this age of the welfare state. Before he read Atlas Shrugged, Mises had not counted Ayn Rand among the foremost contemporary artists and philosophers. In the original Rand circle in Manhattan, and in many of the later Randian groups throughout the United States, many members cultivated a religious reverence for the writings and opinions of Ayn Rand, 
Their attitude to Rand's writings did not differ essentially from the attitude that Christians hold toward the Bible, and consequently they were in more than one respect the acolytes of a Randian church. Rothbard, who personally attended the meetings of Rand's group for several months, stated that the fanaticism with which they worship Rand and Brandon has to be seen to be believed, the whole atmosphere being a kind of combination of religious cult and a Trotskyite cell. They demanded unconditional allegiance to their creed and harassed and ousted anyone who would not go along with the party line. One position of the creed particularly dear to these Randians was atheism, the religious belief in the non-existence of God. For Ayn Rand and her disciples it had always been a matter of course to contest any evidence purporting to prove the existence of God, and to emphasize any argument or piece of evidence that was deemed to prove his non-existence. But this argumentative approach was chosen only when they confronted neophytes. With more senior members of the group, they felt they could expect a more mature stance on the God question, the unconditional adoption of atheism. And they did not forgive deviants. In particular, they would not tolerate an avowed Christian in their midst, and even went so far as to harass members who, although atheists or agnostics themselves, were married to unrepentant Christians. This was the case with Murray Rothbard, whose wife Joanne was unapologetically Protestant. One might argue that the Randian insistence on action in conformity with its atheistic ideal was a healthy attitude to preserve and cultivate purism, and indeed from this point of view Randianism might be as legitimate as any other religion. It was, however, not the attitude that Murray Rothbard brought to his encounters with fellow human beings. He had a firm opinion on various questions, but he was mainly interested in argument and debate as the best method to test positions and opinions. When it became obvious that he preferred being married to Joanne to being numbered among the Randians, things turned ugly. In early summer 1958, Rothbard was asked to abandon his theistic wife. He refused to comply. This incident had direct repercussions on the Austro-Libertarian movement, in that it led to the disintegration of the Circle Bastia, the Misesian study group that met at Murray Rothbard's apartment, and had included Hessen, Ligio, Reiko, and Reisman. Hessen and Reisman remained in the Randian orbit, and had no further contact with their former friends, who had in their view betrayed reason. Rothbard, in turn, pulled no punches about what he came to call the Ein Rand cult. He later had telephone shouting matches, with Nathaniel Brandon, a man who took pride in outdoing everyone else in worshipping his mistress, in both connotations. Brandon charged Rothbard with plagiarism, and threatened him with a lawsuit alleging that Rothbard in a recent paper had adopted ideas from Ayn Rand and Brandon's wife Barbara, without duly acknowledging this intellectual debt. The charge was baseless. It cost Rothbard's friend Leonard Ligio only a couple of hours of work in a public library to document that the stolen ideas had been part of the Western intellectual heritage for several centuries, and had originated, in many cases, with Catholic scholastic thinkers. Mises had taken part in the symposium on relativism at which Rothbard had presented the original version of the paper under dispute. The symposium took place in 1959 at Emory University. The Volcker Fund sponsored it. Helmut Schuck, a professor of sociology at Emory, organized the event. Schuck also wrote the most scathing indictment of the charges made against Rothbard. About Rand and Barbara Brandon, he said, they clearly suffer from a serious case of what Sorokin, Fads and Foibles calls the Discoverer's Complex. They seem to think that they, the female innovators of unique ideas, were robbed by a bad male.
Mises was speechless at the Ranyan's charge of plagiarism against Rothbard, but he avoided any direct involvement in the controversy which he was sure would resolve itself in Rothbard's favour. Mises had good reason not to create even more bad blood between his disciples and the Randians. At the beginning of the 1960s, Brandon's organisation was very successful in selling Mises's writings, in particular planning for freedom. At the end of 1961, the book was almost sold out, and Niemeyer planned an extended second edition, including an additional essay. Another organisation that was very successful in selling Mises's books was the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists. Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon also tried to establish closer ties with Mises, inviting him to attend their lecture evenings and social gatherings. Mises reciprocated to a certain extent. He appreciated intellectual affinities with the Ranians, but he was not fond of their fanatical zeal. He liked to persuade other people through detached speech and writing, whereas the Ranians strove to make converts to the cause of objectivism by applying the same techniques used by religious cults, group sessions, psychoanalysis, and group pressure. Mises could perfectly well respect and even befriend people with whom he disagreed, even when these disagreements concerned questions of fundamental importance. This was the case, for example, with Louis Auger, a positivist, Gottfried von Habeler, an interventionist, Louise Zommer, a protectionist, and Murray Rothbard, an anarchist. It goes without saying that he did not avoid socialising with honest socialists. Cases in point were the Bowers, until their fallout with Mises in 1919, as well as his critic Karl Landauer, whom he probably met in 1952 at Berkeley, and he wrote letters of recommendation for interventionist professors. Leland Jaeger, a monetarist, once wrote to Mises, I hope you agree that among people who are united in favour of economic liberalism, there can be a healthy controversy on such details as the admissibility of the price-level concept, and whether the gold standard or price-level stabilisation is the better rule for monetary policy. And this hope was entirely justified, despite the fact that Jaeger's disagreements with Mises concerned more than mere details, Mises would not hold anyone in low esteem just because the person in question held opinions that Mises believed were entirely wrong. Steeped in the humanism of the Christian Occident, he held the individual above anything else. He was not concerned about individual souls, of course, but he did care supremely about individual liberty. He was happy for each new convert to the cause of liberty, but he would have been unable to rejoice over conversions obtained through group pressure and other forms of harassment. For Mises, only one sin was unforgivable, lack of integrity. Speaking and behaving against one's better knowledge could not be excused. This is why Mises maintained a lifelong friendship with Gottfried Habler, whom he believed to be an honest interventionist, but broke with Fritz Machlup when he started qualifying the case for the gold standard. At the same time, Mises recommended Leland Jaeger for Mont Pelerin Society stipends, even though Jaeger was no less sceptical of gold money than Mahloup. But the Ranian mind was not overly concerned with the trifling virtue of integrity. There was only reason, always capitalized, and whoever did not come to endorse reason as defined by the Ayn Rand Church had to be stupid, evil, or hard of hearing. Being friends with such a person was out of the question. The Randian way of dealing with disagreements was to confront the dissenter with a stark choice, either undergo an endless series of discussions with the foregone conclusion that the dissenter had fallen prey to the heresy of rationalism, or be expelled from the group and shunned by all its members. In the fall of 1961, Nathaniel Brandon showed once again that bullying his opponents was his forte. The New Individualist Review, a journal edited by Ralph Rako, 
who was by then a doctoral student in Chicago under Hayek, had published a critical piece on Ayn Rand. This prompted Brandon to ask Hayek, who was on the editorial board of the review, publicly to dissociate himself from the author of the article and to insist an apology to Miss Rand be printed in the New Individualist Review on your behalf and in your name. He also sent a copy of the letter to Mises, who was certainly happy to have kept the Randians at arm's length. Of course, Hayek never complied. Mises abhorred such bullying. He had a different way of dealing with smears. In the fall of 1961, Mises and Rand met at a party in Henry Hazlitt's house. It was not their first personal meeting. They also met in early July 1961, and they discussed the problems which we both consider as vital. It is possible they stayed in touch in the 1960s. In June 1970, Mises promised his Mexican friend Velasco that he would talk to her about him and his work. After dinner, a discussion between them turned into an argument on philosophical principle and drew the attention of the bystanders. It is not clear what was said, even though there were a number of topics on which they heartily disagreed. For example, Mises did not believe that scientific value theory could establish an objective ranking of choice alternatives. He also had recently asserted in print that the essence of art and beauty is that which pleases. On the other hand, he certainly did agree with Rand's writings in most other respects. In correspondence with Mutesius, he said that Ayn Rand was the most energetic opponent of antitrust policy. In any case, Russell Kirk, a notorious critic of Randianism, who had witnessed the discussion, was later reported to have said in his lectures before student audiences that Mises had called Ayn Rand a silly little Jew girl. When the report was brought to Mises' attention, he immediately wrote to Kirk, I never called Mrs. Ayn Rand, or for that matter anyone else, a silly little Jew girl. I should be obliged if you would not repeat this false story in the future. Kirk denied it all. Your informant, with the eccentricity and fanaticism characteristic of the Ranian cult, seems to have combined details from several accounts of the meeting between yourself and Miss Rand, which she had heard, and to have attributed the composite story to me. Any anti-Jewish prejudice or suggestion thereof was not contained in my second-hand account, nor in the account which I heard, but I'm glad to have from Mr. Hazlitt a more accurate report of the encounter before receiving your letter. Against the Neoliberals The Montpellier Society had begun as an ecumenical undertaking, bringing together purebred liberals of the classical tradition and neoliberals who endorsed interventionist schemes to one degree or another. From the beginning, Mises had been sceptical about the ecumenical concept, but for the first five or six years, his apprehensions seemed unwarranted, even though the organization of all Montpellier activities lay in the hands of a devout neoliberal, Alfred Hunort from Switzerland, who Mises had first met at the 1928 Zurich meeting of the Verein für Sozialpolitik. An admirer of Rotus Serfdom, Hunold, had been among those who encouraged Hayek to convene the foundational meeting of the society at Montpellier, and he had also raised substantial funds for the event. At this meeting, the ambitious Hunold was elected secretary of the society, but after a few years, he was no longer satisfied with his position under Hayek. His long-term goal was to become Montpellier's society president. His strategy was to make himself irreplaceable. He dealt with the smallest details of organization, and by the mid-1950s started to handle correspondence without consulting Hayek, who resented these encroachments from a man he did not exactly love in the first place. 
After 1956, the conflict between the two men grew more intense and eventually came to a clash that brought the society to the verge of disillusion. In the early years, this clash was barely visible. With the support of Hunolt and others, the neoliberals steadily increased their numbers, but they did not dominate the society. The main reason was probably that, although Hunolt had financial backing in the Swiss business community, he could not match the funds that were mobilized on the other side of the Atlantic. Hayek, Mises, and a few other classical liberals had a primordial impact on the selection of topics to be discussed. On the one hand, this was due to their scientific pedigree. On the other, they enjoyed substantial financial backing from the Volcker Fund and from individuals such as Neymar, Greed, and Crane. At least until the end of 1953, the Volcker Fund paid the membership fees and often also covered travel expenditure for virtually all non-U.S. members of the Mont Pelerin Society. And the fund was eager to accommodate Mises' wishes, and probably Hayek's wishes also, when it came to securing financially the presence of certain members at the meetings. For example, when Mises declared that he would not attend the 1954 meeting in Venice because of insufficient French and British participation, the Volcker Fund asked him to handpick the beneficiaries of financial assistance in order of their relative importance. Mises named among the French economists one, Louis Baudin, two, Daniel Villet, three, François Trévaux, and four, Bertrand de Jouvenel. Among the British, one, Dukes, two, Plant, and three, Denison, as well as the Irishman Duncan. Mises did not attend the Venice meeting because he had to undergo gallbladder surgery. Two years later, he approved the funding of Coase, Nutter, Alkin, Philbrook, and Jaeger. At the end of that first phase of the history of the Montpellier Society, therefore, the leadership around Hayek was far more radically libertarian than most of the regular members, especially those from Europe. The coexistence within the Montpellier Society of groups with such different orientations was well known by its members. It was also fairly obvious even for newcomers. A case in point was Jean-Pierre Amelius, a young professor of business and economics in Luxembourg, whom Mises knew through correspondence. At that point, Hamilius was 29 years old. Hamilius had recently discovered the literature of classical liberalism, which he devoured and translated into French and German. Mises had him invited for the 1953 Mont Pelerin Society meeting in Zelisberg. He also suggested invitations for Fertig, Courtney, and Neymar. These three men were admitted as new members in a council meeting of Hayek, Rapin, Itta, Mises, and Hunold. Hamidius immediately noticed that the society was divided along the lines of ideological orientation and language into different groups and clans. He himself felt closest affinities to the American group of Mises, Hayek, Hazlitt, Morley, Fertig, and Miller. From the other participants, who did not know that he had gotten his invitation through Mises, he heard reservations about the old guard, Mises, Hayek, who were sometimes called the old conservatives. The young professor from Luxembourg was eagerly taking notes and discussing the interventionist schemes of various members who were not yet part of the old guard. Thus, John von Sickle proposed taxing rich heirs, Wilhelm Röpke favoured subsidies for homeowners, and Otto Weidt argued that heavy taxation would not deter entrepreneurs from working. Ludwig Erhard, fresh from the victory of his party in the 1953 elections in Germany, also gave a talk at the meeting. Hamilius' report shed light on the change of relative weights within the society that resulted from the apparent success of Ludwig Erhard's neoliberal policies in Germany 
the so-called Wirtschaftswunder, or economic miracle. To the socialists and social democrats who dominated the climate of mainstream economic opinion at the time, it was truly miraculous that the abolition of price controls and the transition from a centrally planned economy to a market economy would yield substantial economic benefits. For unrepentant classical liberals such as Mises there was no miracle at all, but Earhart's success was problematic because it gave unwarranted credentials to his middle-of-the-road philosophy. This also applied to his closest advisers, who were often referred to as champions of the social market economy or leaders of the Ordo School of Economics, his under-secretary of state, Müller Amak, and the professors Wilhelm Röpke, Geneva, Alexander Rüstow, Heidelberg, and Walter Eucken, Freiburg. In short, the success of Erhard's initial classical liberal policies was used to vindicate subsequent interventionist policies, in particular antitrust laws and inflation. Even before the war, Mises did not have the highest opinion of most German economists. After his emigration, he had avoided any closer involvement with them. He would acknowledge Erhard's achievements by contributing to a festschrift in Erhard's honor, but he declined to write an entry for the new standard social science dictionary, the Handwerterbuch der Sozialwissenschaften. Only after Gottfried Habler pleaded a case of the editors did Mises agree to write a piece on economic liberalism, a compliment to Hayek's article on political liberalism. His contribution was eventually published under the title Market. He delivered the work before the end of March 1955. The publishers improved his article after having received the proof pages from him. And the prospect of cooperating with a fashionable Ordo school, be it in the Mont Pelerin society or elsewhere, did not exactly warm his heart either. He believed the Ordo people were hardly better than the socialists he had fought all his life. In fact, he eventually called them the Ordo Interventionists. It must be said, however, that he supported them whenever common ground could be found. Thus, in June 1950, he recommended the translation of Röpke's textbook Die Lehre von der Wirtschaft to the University of Chicago Press. And his New York associates seem to have harbored essentially the same views, but without Mises's hesitation to express such views in print. There were classical liberals in Germany who opposed the interventionist excesses of the Erhard Ministry and the Ordo School. The leaders of the laissez-faire group were Volkmar Mutesius and Hans Helwig. Mutesius, who was based in Frankfurt am Main, ran two successful journals, Zeitschrift für das gesamte Kreditwesen and Monatsblätter für freiheitliche Wirtschaftspolitik. But they could do no more than fight an honorable rearguard action. Being denied professorships at the universities, the foremost means of action was Mutesius's journal. Chapter 23. Last Years. Mises remained vigorous until about 1962. In the early 1960s, he completed four major writing projects and gave several public lectures per year. At his public appearances, the frailty of his condition became increasingly obvious. More and more, his feeble voice and his virtual deafness weighed against his legendary reputation. He had become a living icon of liberty, yet a fading icon after all. In 1962, he still had a substantial number of speaking engagements, addressing, for example, the Remnant, a group associated with Edmund Orpitz, a 150-student audience at the Nathaniel Brandon Institute, the Young Americans for Freedom, YAF, at Madison Square Garden, the Coast Federal Savings and Loan Association, the NYU Faculty Club, the American Management Association, 
and the Free Enterprise Institute. In the same year, on the night of May 16th, his voice was heard for the first time in a long while at Harvard University. As one might guess, it was not the university who had invited him. He was not even physically present. The United States Steel Corporation had sponsored a series of radio shows featuring a six-minute taped speech on economic subjects. Mises spoke on the conflicts of interest between workers and employers. He was on the air simultaneously at Harvard, Brown, and Cornell universities. The next day the speech was aired at Dartmouth and Yale. After 1962, public appearances became less frequent, and Mises focused on his regular teaching activities. Until May 1969, he taught his NYU seminar. He lectured at FEE seminars until 1972. In these very last years, only his most faithful friends and admirers, most notably Percy Graves and Bettina Bean, continued to take part in his regular seminar sessions. They had become used to the shortcomings of the presentation and still wrote diligent notes of each meeting. Graves always sat right next to Mises to facilitate all communication between the old master and his seminar. When a student asked a question, Graves would shout this question into Mises' ear, receive the answer from the old man's feeble lips, and then repeat Mises' words with his booming voice to the audience. New people showed up from time to time out of curiosity, but did not stay because it was difficult to follow the lectures and impossible to engage the speaker. Such newcomers often wondered why the seminar had such visible success with the regular participants. Some had the impression of a prayer meeting, involving a bunch of fervent disciples around an enigmatic guru, with Percy Graves as the high priest and Bettina Bean as the devoted abbess of a Mises cult. Mises did not ignore his physical condition, and true to his nature prepared well in advance for the approaching end. He started skipping Montpellier society meetings, which usually took place in Europe. The last one Mises attended was in 1965 in Stresa, Italy. He saw his beloved Vienna for the last time in September 1964. At the end of July 1964, he gave a talk at the Walter Eucken Institute in Freiburg. He followed an invitation by Hayek. He then attended the de Montpellier Society meeting in Zemmering and also went to Vienna. There he visited the Institute for Business Cycle Research, now Institute for Economic Research, which recognized him as its founder. He began selling off his library of scholarly journals. In October 1958, he parted with his collection of Econometrica, the complete sets, volumes 1 through 26, and in July 1965 cancelled his membership in the Royal Economic Society. In other correspondence, Mises emphasized that he was a member of the Econometric Society only to receive its periodical. Eventually, by the end of 1968, Percy Graves assisted him in selling the rest of his periodicals. Mises preserved his health almost until the end of his long life. In February 1962, he had to undergo surgery. In the spring of 1966, Mises must have suffered for a long time from a viral infection. On July 3, 1966, Ludwig and Margit had a car accident. Margit later had to undergo surgery. At the end of October, she was recovering well. In January 1968, Mises had at least one tooth pulled. In June 1969, he and Margit were sick most of the month. He slowed down smoothly and was still around after many of his younger American friends and associates had already gone. Naimaya died in 1967, Courtney in 1971, 
Harper in April 1973. Just when Mises was starting to feel really old and somehow left over, it was time to congratulate Richard Schiller on the occasion of his hundredth birthday. The last habilitant of Karl Menger's was still around. During a 1971 summer vacation in Manchester, Vermont, Ludwig fell ill with a serious infection. Even though he recovered physically, he had lost the ability to concentrate and was incapable of doing any work from then on. His wife recalled him saying, The worst is that I still have so much to give to people, to the world, and I can't put it together anymore. It is tormenting. During the last two years of his life, Mises was no longer himself and needed assistance and supervision. In this critical phase, to Margaret's great relief, Bettina Bean and Percy Graves were ready to provide generous assistance. After the end of the Mises seminar at NYU, they had offered help. We consider ourselves deeply indebted to you. If either of us can be of any assistance at any time to you or to Margaret, we hope you will feel free to call on us. We shall always be at your service. In July 1973, Margaret took Ludwig for a last trip to Europe to a spa up in the mountains above the Swiss town of Luzern. Upon their return to New York, Mises' condition deteriorated, and the very next day he was brought to St. Vincent Hospital. There he died on the morning of Wednesday, October 10, 1973. A memorial service was held at the Universal Funeral Chapel, 52nd Street and Lexington Avenue, in New York City on Tuesday, October 16th, at noon. Last Writings in the last phase of his life, Mises completed four major writing projects. The Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science, 1962, the second edition of Human Action, 1963, a booklet on the historical setting of the Austrian School of Economics, 1969. This work was first published in a Spanish edition in Argentina in 1962. It was probably an outgrowth of the lecture he gave on May 2nd, 1962, to the NYU Faculty Club on the Austrian School of Economics at the University of Vienna, and the third edition of Human Action, 1966. Apart from this, Mises produced a few articles. The most important publication of this period, and in fact the only book-length work, was The Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science. The culmination of more than 30 years of meditation on the epistemological problems of the social sciences, it deals with the most difficult problems in this field, written as were all of his works, in accessible language and with a clear presentation. In many ways, it is one of Mises' finest books, and clarifies important points that he had introduced in his previous work. The central thesis is, one, that there is such a thing as economic law that cannot be identified with the methods of the natural sciences, and two, that the arguments of those who advocate these methods in economics have no scientific foundation whatever, but are based on metaphysical speculation. In short, Mises' last book was an all-out frontal attack against positivism. This attack concerned not only the verificationist positivism of the Vienna Circle, Schrick, Carnap, Funk, and others, but also Karl Popper's falsificationist positivism. Popper's theory made ample room for the use of deduction, whereas the Vienna Circle advocated strict induction. He also claimed that only falsifiable statements can be Scientific, while the Vienna Circle posited that all non-verifiable statements are simply nonsensical. 
Such differences are certainly important in many respects. However, they are irrelevant as far as Mises' critique is concerned, because it aims at a common ground of both versions of positivism. He stressed in particular that the positivist precept, testing economic theories by confronting them with observed data, is not itself derived from any empirical knowledge. Rather, this precept is an a priori postulate that contradicts the most elementary empirical facts known about human action, in particular that human beings make choices, and that there are no known laws that determine those choices. It follows that the observed data in the social sciences have a completely different nature from the data used in the natural sciences. The latter are elements in an exorable chain of cause and effect. Every single one of them can therefore be used to verify or refute the theories of physics, chemistry, and so on. Mises accepts Popper's theory in this regard. The positivistic principle of verifiability, as rectified by Popper, is unassailable as an epistemological principle of the natural sciences. But the observed data in the social sciences do not stand in such a universally present chain of cause and effect. More precisely, the only thing that is known about them is that they are not part of such a chain. They are singular events, and must therefore be interpreted on a case-by-case -case basis. They cannot be used to derive any general laws. They are not a benchmark for verifying or refuting economic theories. Observation-based testing simply makes no sense in economics. Just as the Marxists claim to have knowledge about the operation of productive forces that determine a course of events in ways unknown and unknowable to other people, so the positivists are unshakable in their confidence that there are some hidden constant relationships in human action that will in the future be identified with testable theories, even though all available evidence suggests that such relationships do not exist. Mises goes to great lengths to bolster his thesis. He shows that the existence of non-Euclidean geometry does not invalidate the case for an a priori economic science. Similarly, he argues that the development of probability theory cannot possibly be a device to avoid the case for determinism. And in discussing the implications of the theory of evolution for a priori disciplines such as economics, he comes to conclusions very different from those of his friend Roger and others. Mises stresses the hard fact that nothing is known about the future evolution of the human mind. Therefore, the logical and praxeological structure of this mind must be considered as if it were unchanging. For all practical purposes, it is an a priori for the social sciences. In clarifying the logical nature of economic science, Mises stressed that pure reasoning can give us empirical knowledge about the real world, because reasoning and acting have the very same nature. Analyzing his own thought processes in an armchair, the economist can identify the basic economic categories. Following in the wake of Kant's analysis, philosophers raised the question, how can the human mind, by a prioristic thinking, deal with the reality of the external world? As far as praxeology is concerned, the answer is obvious. Both a priori thinking and reasoning on the one hand, and human action on the other, are manifestations of the human mind. The logical structure of the human mind creates the reality of action. Reason and action are congeneric and homogeneous, two aspects of the same phenomenon. In this sense, we may apply to praxeology the dictum of Empedocles, knowledge of the same through the same. Mises stressed that the questions whether the judgment of praxeology are to be called analytic 
or synthetic, and whether or not its procedure is to be qualified as merely tautological, are of verbal interest only. The point had been overlooked in traditional epistemology because the philosophers dealt with thinking as if it were a separate field cut off from other manifestations of human endeavour. They dealt with the problems of logic and mathematics, but they failed to see the practical aspects of thinking. They ignored the praxeological a priori. Mises argued that because economic theorems were deducted from the praxeological a priori, they provide knowledge of apodictic certainty. Every theorem of praxeology is deducted by logical reasoning from the category of action. It partakes of the apodictic certainty provided by logical reasoning that starts from an a priori category. And he emphasized that even the most radical skepticism cannot affect this conclusion precisely because acting and thinking stem from the same source and are in this sense homogeneous. There is nothing in the structure of action that the human mind cannot fully explain. In this sense, praxeology supplies certain knowledge. Yet right on the next page of his book, he was quick to emphasize that praxeological knowledge is but one ingredient of information necessary to succeed in the world. Future choices cannot be determined in advance, and for this reason alone there is therefore an all-pervading uncertainty in human affairs that the apodictic certainty of praxeology cannot alter or diminish. Man is at the mercy of forces and powers beyond his control. He acts in order to avoid as much as possible what, as he thinks, will harm himself. But he can at best succeed only with a narrow margin, and he can never know beforehand to what extent his acting will attain the end sought, and, if it attains it, whether his action will in retrospect appear to himself or to the other people looking upon it, as the best choice among those that were open to him at the instant he embarked upon it. Most importantly, uncertainty also stems from our ignorance about nature in general. Mises did not at all share the conceit displayed by positivists, such as Bertrand Russell, that the natural sciences will ultimately penetrate all secrets of the world. In his view, human science barely scratches the surface of things. Important though it may be, and Mises was convinced that science was the most important tool for human progress, it is not an intellectual panacea and does not make superfluous the virtues of humility and religion. Although the progress of the natural sciences tends to enlarge the sphere of such scientifically directed action, it will never cover more than a narrow margin of possible events. And even within this margin there can never be absolute certainty. The result aimed at can be thwarted by the invasion of forces not yet sufficiently known or beyond human control. Technological engineering does not eliminate the aleatory element of human existence. It merely restricts its field a little. There always remains an orbit that, to the limited knowledge of man, appears as an orbit of pure chance and marks life as a gamble. Man and his works are always exposed to the impact of unforeseen and uncontrollable events. He cannot help banking upon the good luck not to be hit by them. Even dull people cannot fail to realize that their well-being ultimately depends on the operation of forces beyond man's wisdom, knowledge, prevision, and provision. With regard to these forces, all human planning is vain. This is what religion has in mind when it refers to the unfathomable decrees of heaven and turns to prayer. Mises probably started working on the second edition of Human Action in early 1962. Percy Graves provided assistance, 
and had already made suggestions for changes in the fall of 1961. While the two men worked together smoothly and productively, cooperation with the publisher was far less successful. For reasons that were never entirely clarified, Yale University Press butchered the book. Mises's life achievement now featured many misprints, different shades of print, displacement and omitted paragraphs and pages, and no more running heads. He was more than a little angry and suspected political motives. The present management of the press regrets, for political reasons, the fact that their predecessors published my book. They are especially angry about the great success of human action. If they had any sense of propriety at all, they would openly tell the author that they do not want any longer to publish his books, and that he is free to look for another publisher. Eventually Yale University Press did show that sense of propriety, and Mises went on to publish a third edition with Henry Regnery in Chicago, possibly with the intermediation of his friend Niemeyer. Mises had probably first heard about Regnery through Niemeyer in 1953. This time things worked out as planned, and he enjoyed a beautiful new edition. With one exception, the new editions did not feature any major changes or elaborations. Mises sent exhaustive lists of the changes to Reg in Madrid, who sought to keep the Spanish translation up to date. The exception concerned the definition of freedom. This elaboration was prompted by the fact that in the 1950s some of Mises' most brilliant students, most notably Murray Rothbard and his Bastia Circle, had carried the case for the free market and against government interventionism to what they felt was its logical conclusion, political anarchism. Last Skirmishes with the Anarchists In 1949 Mises had defined freedom by stating that a man is free as far as he can live and get on without being at the mercy of arbitrary decisions on the part of other people. The crucial word here is arbitrary, a term that was left undefined and that the young anarchists had interpreted in their way. In 1963, therefore, Mises set out to give more meat to his theory. He wrote, The concepts of freedom and bondage make sense only when referring to the way in which government operates. As far as the government, the social apparatus of compulsion and oppression, confines the exercise of its violence and the threat of such violence to the suppression and prevention of antisocial action, there prevails what reasonably and meaningfully can be called liberty. Such coercion does not substantially restrict man's power to choose, if, however, the government does more than protect people against violent or fraudulent aggression on the part of antisocial individuals, it reduces the sphere of the individual's freedom to act beyond the degree to which it is restricted by praxeological law. Thus we may define freedom as the state of affairs in which the individual's discretion to choose is not constrained by government violence beyond the margin within which the praxeological law restricts it anyway. This elaboration of his position did not dissuade the anarchists, and it is not difficult to see why. In the above passage, Mises gives two definitions of freedom. According to the first, freedom prevails if force is limited to the suppression of antisocial behavior. Mises gives only one example, robbery, to illustrate what he means by this term. If this was meant to imply that the use of force is legitimate if it concerns the protection of property rights, then Mises' definition of freedom was essentially compatible with the views of the anarchists, who would merely add that the government must play by the same rules and therefore cannot obtain its revenue through the violation of property rights. 
Mises never brought himself to analyze this proposal in detail. His occasional remarks on the question show that he believed the case for anarchism would only hold in a world inhabited by angels. A typical example from about the same period, a shallow-minded school of social philosophers, the anarchists, chose to ignore the matter by suggesting a stateless organization of mankind. They simply passed over the fact that men are not angels. They were too dull to realize that in the short run an individual or a group of individuals can certainly further their own interests at the expense of their own and all other people's long-run interests. But, as Rothbard's writings on the question show, he was not that naive. Rothbard published Power and Market only in 1970, but the manuscript of the book, which was originally conceived as a part of man, economy, and state, was certainly available for Mises in the early 1960s. Mises's second definition of freedom was equally unlikely to steer the anarchists away from their orientation, though for a different reason. According to this one, human action is said to be subject to two distinct influences, praxeological law and government intervention. The influence of the latter is presented as somehow adding to the influence of the former. But this does not square well with what Mises said in the rest of his book about praxeological laws. At all times and all places, the impact that government intervention has on human beings is mediated through the laws of human action. Praxeological laws are not forces in the sense that human action, for example government action, is a force. Rather, they are the relations that tie up any given force in a chain of causes and consequences. In private correspondence with Bruno Leone, he regretted that anarchist ideas were supported by some of the most intelligent men of the American rising generation. But he had a ready psychological explanation at hand. Anarchism was a reaction to the deification of the state. He had come in touch with the burgeoning anarchist movement already in the years leading up to the publication of Human Action, especially through his contacts with West Coast libertarians, but also in correspondence with Rose Wilder Lane. His debates with these American radicals had remained fruitless, but after some twenty years their extreme anti-statism had gained momentum. The best proof was the existence of the Cirque Bastia, involving Rothbard, Reiko, and Ligio. Raymond Cyrus Hoyles, publisher of the Freedom newspaper chain, boasted of this growing impact in a letter to Mises, the first correspondence in thirteen years. Answering Mises' contention that no rational man ever proposed that the production of security be entrusted to private associations, Hoyles said, I happen to know several people who so believe. Robert Lefevre, the founder of the Freedom School, I believe, believes that the marketplace is the best way to protect life and property. F. A. Harper, Orville Watts, my son Harry Hoyles, Rose Wilder Lane, all certainly believe the Declaration of Independence is exactly what it says, because nobody can give a man's consent but that individual himself. In a subsequent letter of May 21st, Hoyles argued that the production of security in a free market would be organized by insurance companies, thereby anticipating an important argument in later analysis of this problem. Mises replied in an Hobbesian manner, objecting that in the absence of a monopoly of the use of coercive force, everybody would have continually to defend himself against hosts of aggressors. He concluded, I think you err in assuming that your principles are those of the Declaration of Independence. They are rather the principles that led a hundred years ago the Confederate States to refuse to recognize the president elected by the majority. Wherever... 
and whenever resorted to, these principles will lead to bloodshed and anarchy. Notice that in the 1860 election, Lincoln received far less than a majority of the votes. Now, this point of view seems to be at odds with the principle of self-determination, at least in the form in which Mises had championed it for many years. Had Mises changed his mind? He had discussed this issue in correspondence from the early 1950s with Salvador de Madariaga in Oxford. In one of his letters, Mises held that Ernest Renan had settled the question unambiguously in his famous lecture on the nature of nations. Self-determination is the right of peoples to decide their own fate. However, according to Renan, a nation could be just any voluntary association of persons. What if a subgroup of an existing nation suddenly decided to go its own way? Would this not be an instance of self-determination? Mises was, of course, perfectly familiar with the problem. He had known it from his native Austria, where the old nation was divided in the late 19th century along linguistic lines. Referring to the secession of language communities, he admitted that the case for secession was unassailable on logical grounds. Only brute force could be held up against it. It is a fact that no ideology has been developed which would have approved of the existence of a state composed of people speaking different languages. In the absence of such doctrine, there is no argument available against the ambitions of the majority of a territory's population asking for independent statehood. There is only the recourse to the ultima ratio regum. Mises had criticized Madriaga in omnipotent government. Still, he had held the Spaniard in great esteem until this correspondence led to their falling out. He said, in fact, in the same letter, I think that I have never paid a higher tribute to the achievements of any living author than I did in speaking of you on page 15 of my book. And he concluded, To construct such an ideology of states, including various linguistic groups, is one of the great tasks left to coming generations. He probably owed the idea that nations result from the construction of ideologies to his friend Louis Auger, who had argued that there are no objective or scientific criteria to delimit nations from one another. The true foundation of a nation is a specific political myth. But this conclusion begged a question. Self-determination is relevant only if there are disagreements between individuals and groups on ideological questions. How should secessionist movements be handled at a time when no great overarching ideology exists? The only solution available for classical liberals relied on the principle of self-determination. But when Mises applied this principle to the concrete case of the American Civil War, he felt it had to yield to other considerations of equally fundamental importance. It is of no avail for the discussion of our problem whether or not we qualify Lincoln's attitude as liberal. In denying to the Southerners the right to secede, the very right on which the existence of the United States was morally founded, he certainly did not behave as a liberal. But there was another problem in the case. Slavery. One could argue the real issue is not self-determination but slavery. In fact, most of the contemporary European liberals argued this way, and sympathized with the Unionists. The quote shows how uneasy Mises was at discussing this problem. He just could not reach a clear conclusion. Ten years later, he wrote, When every territory can, by majority vote, determine whether it should form an independent state or a part of a larger state, there will no longer be wars to conquer more provinces. But still he did not address the Madriaga's argument that the very problem is to decide who should take part in the independence voting, that is, who should be counted as belonging to the nation. Mises evaded the issue. The liberals have always maintained 
that it does not matter for the people as a whole and for individual citizens whether their own state sovereignty stretches over a larger or smaller territory. The size of the realm, the integration of provinces whose inhabitants do not voluntarily want to be or to remain integrated, concerns only royalty and aristocracy. Mises ended their 1952-1953 correspondence rather abruptly, saying that the Madariaga's point of view was the most anti-liberal proposition I have ever heard. He put an equally abrupt end to his 1962 correspondence with Hoyles, when the latter expressed his regret to see Mises advocate any form of socialism or any form of tyranny. Two similar cases might be mentioned in which Mises did not pursue correspondence touching on the necessity of coercion, and Mr. Kuhlmann, who favoured an increase in inheritance taxes in order to decrease income taxes, reminded him, and remember, you say taxes are necessary. And a Mrs. Powell Moffat complained about his endorsement of conscription in the second edition of Human Action. But this did not prevent his continued association with other members of the anarchist camp. In January 1964 he taught a course on money at Robert Lefevre's Freedom School. This was the same Lefevre who had praised Hoyles' succinct statement of the case for anarchism. Mises even served on the advisory board of the Freedom School and eventually also on the Council of Advisors for F.A. Baldy Harper's Institute for Humane Studies, IHS, in California. Baldy Harper had founded IHS in 1963. After leaving F.E.E., he had for some time worked for the Volcker Fund and then lectured at Wabash College. A champion of formal manners, Mises was close enough to Harper to address him as Baldy. In another letter he wrote that he could only stay for three days because he had to return for his NYU seminar. He also mentioned that his health was not very good. He also continued his affiliation with Frank Chodorov's Intercollegiate Society of Individualists, which he had supported from the very beginning in 1952. Moreover, he praised the new individualist review that graduate student Ralph Rako had established at the University of Chicago on behalf of a local chapter of the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists. He wrote for it a review of Rothbard's Man, Economy and State, and seemed to rate it higher than the Freeman or any other journal. He also praised a work in correspondence with one of the thinkers he most admired, the French philosopher Louis Rouget. The letter ends with, But please, first of all read the book of Rothbard. It is very interesting also from the epistemological point of view. Mises also followed Rothbard's subsequent writings and activities often to his chagrin. A 1968 letter that Fertig wrote to Mises probably conveys Mises' own feelings as well. Among the things which are really disturbing is the case of Murray Rothbard. I enclosed the current issue of National Review. Now he's allied with the new left. Imagine that! Just a short while ago, he was on a committee that favoured Castro and Cuba. It's sad to see a brilliant mind like his go to pot that way. Last Skirmishes with the Monetarists Rothbard's apparent decline was not the main worry for the aging Mises. He followed with great concern how the American monetary system and the global monetary system built on it unraveled all through the 1960s. In the middle of the decade, the alarm bells were ringing at the headquarters of the U.S. monetary authorities. Foreign central banks and individuals were following the lead of France in redeeming dollars in gold. The United States government's stock of gold shrank on a daily basis and at an accelerating rate. The new economists were quick to repeat their endless lamentation that all of this was the consequence of the unfavorable balance of payments, and they demanded measures against greedy businessmen driving up prices in the States, some 
were even calling for controls of foreign exchange. Philip Courtney wrote to Mises, inquiring why he had not published anything on the present calamity. Mises replied that in his books he had said everything on the issue, but then he set forth his view anyway. Those ascribing inflow and outflow of money in or out of a country to the sales and purchases of the country's inhabitants are committed to a fallacy. They assume that the size of an individual's cash holding is not planned by the man, but is merely the unintentional outcome of his buying and selling. A man, or a business firm, or a department of the public administration may one morning be surprised to discover that there is no money left in his pocket to buy a postage stamp. What a catastrophe if this happens to be a considerable part of the nation. The supporters of this doctrine are inconsistent, as they think that this calamity can only occur in the mutual transactions of the inhabitants of sovereign nations, and not also in the business relations of the administrative subdivisions. There prevails in the world the opinion that the inflationary policy of the American government will continue, that sooner or later the gold hoard in Fort Knox will be exhausted, and the American administration will be forced to abandon its policy of selling the ounce to foreign governments and central banks at $35. This explains the drain upon the American government's gold holdings. If our civilization will not in the next years or decades completely collapse, the gold standard will be restored. Courtney replied with news about his talks with Jacques Ruff, and he reported that the French press had quoted Fritz Machloup's testimony before a congressional committee in Washington, D.C., in which Machloup had pronounced himself against a return to the gold standard. Mises had already been informed by Machloup himself. His former student asked him for hints about books or articles that may contain pertinent material to bolster his claim that the French monetary authorities in the 1920s had successfully abolished the self-restriction that comes with the gold standard. Mises apparently never replied. Machloup had pronounced himself against a return to the gold standard. This must have come as a shock for Mises. In the fall of the same year, he met Machloup at the Mont Pelerin Society meeting in Streza, only to witness him reiterating his new views. He got very upset and told Margit not to talk to Machloup anymore. Here's Machloup's version of the event. Philip Courtney made his customary plea for an immediate return to the gold standard with a substantial increase in the official price of gold. After listening to the reasons he gave for raising the price of gold, I used the chairman's prerogative to make a comment in the subject. I compared the plea of the gold boosters to the pleas of trade union leaders who want wage rates to be raised after a period of falling prices, and want wage rates to be raised also after a period of rising prices. Similarly, the gold lobby wants the price of gold to be raised after a period of falling commodity prices, and want the price of gold to be raised also after a period of increasing commodity prices. He went on. When the session was over, I tried to talk to Professor Mises, but he abruptly turned around and marched away. The break in friendly relations lasted for several years. No wonder Mises was upset. His former student, an erstwhile champion of the gold standard, had now publicly reduced the issue to a question of special interest politics. Another year later, Mises sensed a seismic shift in the quality of the developing crisis. He wrote, What not so long ago could be called a monetary crisis is more and more, at least for the U.S., developing into a most serious political crisis. The federal government, as well as the states and the municipalities, have since 1960 wasted fabulous sums of money for more or less unnecessary expenditures and are now facing tremendous deficits. 
There cannot be any question of a serious monetary reform, because the ruling party, for many years probably leftists, thinks, probably correctly, that its popularity could not survive a return to balanced budgets. This means that inflation is now the main financial basis of the nation's political actions, and that no practical man, no man who counts in an election campaign, gives any thought to a state of affairs without a continuous increase in the quantity of money in circulation. Mises planned to take part in an April 1968 conference on international monetary problems, organized by the Graduate Institute of International Studies. The invitation came from Jacques Frémont, who then headed the Institute, but had been extended at the behest of Philip Courtney. Mises was looking forward to the event, but then Courtney explained that the agenda and the conclusions were already set, and that academic discussion was to be kept to a strict minimum. For your guidance, we do not recommend putting an end to the IMF. Mises immediately declined participation. Last Honours On October 20th, 1962, Mises received the Austrian Medal of Honour, Ehrenzeichen, at the Austrian Embassy in Washington. He had the embassy invite Otto Kallier for the luncheon. They also asked some of his other former students, probably those residing in Washington. In June 1963, he obtained an honorary doctorate from NYU. In 1964, an honorary doctorate in political science from University of Freiburg. Hayek was there during those years. In March 1969, probably in anticipation of his retirement, he was elected a distinguished fellow of the American Economic Association. His election may have been an attempt to influence the Nobel Committee, which in the fall of the same year would grant the first Nobel Prize in economics. The prize went instead to Ragnar Frisch and Jan Tinberhan, economists who are all but forgotten today. Mises would never receive the Nobel Prize, but one year after his death, Hayek won it for his elaboration of the Misesian business cycle theory. These official acknowledgments were gratifying, of course, but Mises did not pride himself too much on this type of recognition. Throughout his life, he remained dedicated more to his ideas than to the applause of his contemporaries. Thus, he must have been even more pleased with the continued success of his books. Neumeyer had reprinted Planning for Freedom in 4,000 copies by September 1965. Jonathan Cape republished Socialism in 1969, and FEE ordered 1,000 copies. At the same time, Yale University Press ceded its rights to bureaucracy, omnipotent government, and theory and history, which were now republished by Arlington House. A young Arlington House senior editor by the name of Llewellyn H. Rockwell, Jr., was in charge of these projects. He had been a subscriber to the Freeman as a high school student, and in 1968 had moved to New York City, where he took part in FEE seminars and got in touch with George Roche. Rockwell followed Roche in 1971 to Hillsdale College to run its ideological and publications programs, which included a Mises lecture series, the newsletter Impromise, and Hillsdale College Press, and a few years later joined the staff of Congressman Ron Paul, a serious student of Mises and a lifelong opponent of central banking. Rockwell only met Mises once, but he eagerly absorbed and digested his ideas, in 1982, he would establish the now-famous Ludwig von Mises Institute. A very different kind of recognition that he was happy to experience at the end of his life was the virtual vindication of his theory of economic calculation by the practitioners, the economists of the East Bloc. In the fall of 1967, 
a group of young economists in communist rule Czechoslovakia, had started reviving the socialist calculation debate of the 1920s and 1930s in light of post-war experiences with centrally planned economies. One of them, Dr. Karl Kuba, entitled his study Plan and Market in Socialism. This was circulated for internal use of the Czechoslovak Academy of the Sciences. He studied Mises's original paper from 1920 and Hayek's later modification of the argument, as well as Oskar Lange's scheme for market socialism, about which he wrote, Based on today's experiences, one can say that this is a purely theoretical demonstration. A colleague of Kuba's, Aldrich Kine, went so far as to rehabilitate Mises's point of view in an article for the Economica Review, which had an international circulation and also reached Mises's desk. Another Czechoslovakian economist confided to Fritz Machlup, We have now learned that Mises and Hayek were right, and that Oskar Lange was an idealist. A few months later, this intellectual rebellion ushered in the short-lived Prague Spring of 1968. Almost eight months of political and economic liberalization crushed by Soviet tanks. Most of all, Mises must have enjoyed the sort of recognition that comes from the concrete actions of people he had inspired. In April 1967, a man from Hollywood bound for the Vietnam War made FEE his life insurance beneficiary. In the event of my death, I would want this money, $15,000, to be used only to place copies of human action by Ludwig von Mises in any libraries which will accept them. On a lighter note, after a libertarian conference in Orange County, California, with Mises among the participants, local lefties carried around pictures of Marcuse, Mao, and others at a May Day demonstration on the UC Irvine campus. Mises's host wrote and asked Mises for photos to use in a under-attack. And on his 90th birthday, the CBS television show Spectrum featured a birthday special on Ludwig von Mises. The speaker, Jeffrey St. John, called Mises the de Tocqueville of modern economics, and observed that he had explained long ago that Nixon-style price controls are economic dictatorship, and have in the past produced communism, Nazism, and fascism. For the same occasion, Harper's IHS had sponsored a two-volume festschrift, six copies of which were sent to Mises at the end of October. He was touched, and commented to Market, The only good thing about being a non-agenarian is that you are able to read your obituaries while you are still alive. However, there were a few magnificent obituaries that Mises would not be able to read. The following obituaries were compiled by Bettina Bean Graves and Robert W. McGee in Mises, an annotated bibliography. American Economic Review In Memoriam, Ludwig von Mises, 1881-1973, Volume 64, Number 3, June 1974. Drafted, but unsigned, by Fritz Machlup. Mises was certainly not a popular economist, by his blunt criticism of popular views and policies, by his unrelenting attacks on inflationism, interventionism, and socialism, and by his uncompromising steadfastness in arguing the case for private enterprise and free markets, he acquired as many intellectual enemies and detractors as any of the renowned economists of the 20th century. At the same time, Mises was a beloved teacher and friend of a host of students who came to appreciate the integrity and profundity of his teachings in courses and seminars, but particularly in his private seminars.
Robert James Bidonato. Von Mises, A Final Salute. Unbound. Boston, Individuals for a Rational Society, 2, Number 1. September-October 1973. Our age may well be labeled by future historians as the age of mediocrity. Nothing is so characteristic of this century as the ever-shrinking stature of men. Yet, if these times are to be vindicated, it will be solely by the grace of a few lonely giants who stood tall and strode far, guided down unexplored paths by unflinching courage and unwavering vision. On October 10, 1973, one of those giants fell. Dr. Ludwig von Mises is dead at the age of 92, and it is difficult to conceive of any person in our time who has given the world so much, yet been rewarded so little in return. John Chamberlain, unsung economist who was prophet. Chicago Tribune, October 13, 1973. Genuine innovators such as von Mises have to wait for death to gain their rightful recognition. It is all very unfair, but the truth does eventually catch up with the showmen, relegating them to the historical footnote positions where they belong. Von Mises's great work, Human Action, a study of the conditions needed to release an optimum amount of productive energy in a society, will live long as a monument to von Mises. Daily Telegraph, UK, Ludwig von Mises, October 11, 1973. With the death of Professor Ludwig von Mises yesterday, aged 92, the world's liberal economists lose their most prolific pen, and Austria loses the last lingering reminder of the intellectual preeminence of Vienna at the turn of the century. As an authoritative exponent of liberal economics, he has enjoyed a popularity never foreseen in the Asian liberal economies of Japan, Hong Kong, and Formosa and respect never foreseen in the communist countries for his exposition of the impossibility of calculation in a full socialist society. The gentle, witty, but tenaciously logical teaching of von Mises in Europe and America earned him a loyal army of auxiliary writers and pamphleteers. Henry Hazlitt remarks at Mises' memorial service, October 16, 1973. His outstanding moral quality was moral courage, the ability to stand alone, and an almost fanatical intellectual honesty and candor that refused to deviate or compromise an inch. This often cost him personally dear, but it set an ideal to strengthen and inspire his students and all the rest of us who were privileged to know him. International Herald Tribute Economist Ludwig von Mises Advanced Libertarian Theory, October 12, 1973. Mr. von Mises was recognized as a brilliant contributor to economic thought, not only by his disciples, but also by many who disagreed radically with his political and social philosophy. Israel M. Kurtzner, Tribute in National Review, 25, number 45, November 9, 1973. To those who knew him, Ludwig Mises was, in the face of shocking neglect by so many of his contemporaries, a living exemplar of incorruptible intellectual integrity, a model of passionate, relentless scholarship and dedication. It will not be easy to forget these stern lessons which he so courageously personified. John McFall's investment advisor, the passing of Ludwig von Mises, broadcast memorial to Ludwig von Mises October 14th through the 16th, 1973, 
during Value Action Radio programs. Mises was a master of synthesis. He brought wholeness out of the fractured field of economics. He was a scholar of great patience and integrity, who believed that the movement toward collectivism and state intervention posed a grave threat to Western civilization. Monatsblätter für freiheitliche Wirtschaftspolitik Der letzte Liberale, the last liberal 11. November 1973 With the passing of the last liberal, a liberal of the old school who occasionally said, Liberalism, that is what I am. The last survivor of the epoch-making Viennese school of economics is gone at 92 years of age. Now honored by a diminishing band of followers, he has almost become a legend, on the one hand in the field of money and business cycle theory, and on the other hand, and above all, in the world of economic and political theory. Translated from the German. William H. Peterson, Ludwig von Mises, in memoriam, The Wall Street Journal, October 12, 1973. Mr. von Mises believed in choice. He believed that choosing among options determines all human decisions, and hence the entire sphere of human action. While man could destroy himself and civilization, he could also ascend in a free society, that is, a free economy, to undreamed of cultural, intellectual, and technological heights. In any event, thought would be decisive. Mr. von Mises believed in the free market of not only goods and services, but of ideas as well, in the potential of human intellect. He held that a free society and a free market are inseparable. He gloried in the potential of reason and man. In sum, he stood for principle in the finest tradition of Western civilization. La Prensa, Buenos Aires. Ludwig von Mises, Murió en Nueva York. Ludwig von Mises died in New York, October 18th, 1973. Mises's life, his works, and his conferences were all dedicated to rounding out the thesis that men are not automatons. They act rationally, and the ideas that motivate them are the original cause of the course of history. His concepts make clear that government intervention leads inevitably not only to conflicts within a country, but also to international conflicts. Translated from the Spanish. Leonard Reed. Remarks at Memorial Service, October 16, 1973. Ludwig Mises is truly, and I use this term in the present tense, a teacher. More than two generations have studied under him, and countless thousands of others have learned from his books. Books and students are the enduring monuments of a teacher, and these monuments are his. This generation of students will pass away, but the ideas set in motion by his writings will be a fountain source for new students for countless generations to come. Murray and Rothbard, Ludwig von Mises, 1881-1973, Human Events, Washington, D.C., October 10, 1973. Readers of Mises' majestic, formidable, and uncompromising works must have often been surprised to meet him in person. Perhaps they had formed the image of Ludwig Mises as cold, severe, austere, the logical scholar repelled by lesser mortals, bitter at the follies around him, and at the long trail of wrongs and insults that he had suffered. They couldn't have been more wrong, for what they met was a mind of genius blended harmoniously with a personality of great sweetness and benevolence. Not once has any of us heard a harsh or bitter word escape from Mises' lips, 
unfailingly gentle and courteous. Ludwig Mises was always there to encourage even the slightest signs of productivity or intelligence in his friends and students, and always there as an inspiration and as a constant star. Inserted by Philip M. Crane in Congressional Record, October 23, 1973. Murray Rothbard later added, When Mises died and I was preparing an obituary, Professor Rako kindly sent me a deeply moving passage from Adonais, Shelley's great eulogy to Keats. That, as usual for Rako, struck just a right note in a final assessment of Mises. For such as he can lend, they borrow not glory from those who made the world their prey, and he is gathered to the kings of thought who waged contention with their time's decay, and of the past are all that cannot pass away. Epilogue If ever it could be said that one man stood against the ideological tide of an era, that was von Mises. But whether his efforts have turned that tide is a question to be resolved in the future by those who understand his theories and share his love of liberty. Ludwig von Mises was the last knight of liberalism, but to think of him as a political thinker only is to underestimate his place in the history of ideas. He pioneered the integration of monetary theory into value theory, macro and microeconomics, the theory of economic calculation, and the inquiry into the a priori foundations of economic science. Even more than that, he excelled as a systematic thinker. He created a comprehensive system of economic theory and also highlighted the place of economics among the sciences and its role within human civilization. More than any other economist before or after him, he has clarified its political, social, and cultural implications. Economics was not merely the foundation of a comprehensive political program centered on private property rights. It was the scientific cornerstone of an entire worldview in which peace, cooperation, and tolerance reigned supreme. As he saw it, opting for a free society did not demand cold-heartedness, or mistrusting the intellect. It was the type of society that was demonstrably best at promoting the material, cultural, and spiritual well-being of the overwhelming majority of mankind, of all those who did not aspire to live off spoliation. Human reason, despite its limitations, was the most precious tool in a man's pursuit of happiness, and it led straight to the case for classical liberalism and the market economy. Other thinkers, most notably F. R. Hayek, had criticized socialism and statism as the fruit of excessive rationalism. For Mises, the planning state and the interventionist state were not reasonable enough. Their intellectual champions were quite simply wrong on the essential question, but rather than admitting the case for liberty and capitalism, these advocates spent their time finding ever new justifications for government interventionism by contesting the very existence of economic laws if necessary. This was not so much an intellectual hubris as it was a moral one. It was not, above all, an empty pretense of knowledge. It was a revolt against reason. This expression is taken from the title of Chapter 3 in Human Action. The chief contribution of human action is to make this point. Ever since its first publication in 1949, Mises's magnum opus has remained for our time what the inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations was for the 18th and 19th centuries, a handbook 
of the Science of Human Liberty, a treatise of the scientific foundations underpinning political liberalism. Just as Adam Smith's work was based on comprehensive acquaintance with the economic knowledge of his day, human action portrays the grammar of modern economics. The foundation of modern economic thought is the theory of subjective value, developed by Menger and others. Mises complemented this theory by a general theory of economic calculation. Its central idea is that economic rationality is logically and historically contingent. Contradicting on this point all economic literature since Adam Smith, as well as fellow Austrians including Visa and Hayek, Mises stressed that calculation in terms of money prices is not just one form of economic calculus, it is the only type of economic calculus there is. It follows that human civilization is the fragile fruit of certain cultural conditions that are necessary for the emergence of money and monetary calculus. Here economics comes again into play. Learning, developing and spreading the teachings of economic science has brought about an unheard of increase of living standards after the 18th century, along with the cultural achievements of a great number of people, who then became affluent enough to dedicate their lives to the arts and the sciences. To preserve these cultural standards, it is necessary not to lose sight of their economic foundations. It is necessary to learn economics. Mises stresses, This is, in our age, the primary civic duty, and he insists that the matter is too important to be entrusted to public education and government expert. Economics must not be relegated to classrooms and statistical offices, and must not be left to esoteric circles. It is the philosophy of human life and action, and concerns everybody and everything. It is the pith of civilization and of man's human existence. In the concluding chapters of his magnum opus, he emphasized the importance of private education. It was an important lesson he had learned firsthand in his long life. Government sponsorship introduces a pro-government bias into economic education and economic research, thus undermining the social function of economic science. He concluded human action with this statement. The body of economic knowledge is an essential element in the structure of human civilization. It is the foundation upon which modern industrialism and all the moral, intellectual, technological, and therapeutic achievements of the last centuries have been built. It rests with men whether they will make the proper use of the rich treasure with which this knowledge provides them, or whether they will leave it unused. But if they fail to take the best advantage of it and disregard its teachings and warnings, they will not annul economics, they will stamp out society and the human race. When he wrote these lines, Mises could look back on a lifetime invested in the development of economics. Little by little he had come to realize that his discipline was the intellectual foundation of modern civilization, and that all people who care about other people and the progress of human civilization had to become acquainted with it. This was not a conviction he had adopted in youthful exuberance when he first came across the writings of Menger and the classical economists. It was an opinion that grew in him, even after he had already reached a fairly advanced age. The passage just quoted is from Human Action. Nine years earlier, in Nationale Economie, Mises could not bring himself to assign economics quite such an elevated place. But then he was only fifty-eight years old. By economics, Mises meant the science that came from classical figures, such as Hume, Smith, Ricardo, Say, and Bastia, that had been transformed by Menger and others 
in the light of the new subjective value theory, which had further been transformed by Mises and others in the 20th century, and which Mises expected to be transformed ever further by future generations. It was the science that analyzed the logical implications of human action dealing with scarce goods. It was the science that demonstrated again and again that government interventionism could not work miracles, but was bound by inexorable laws of cause and effect. This science came to be supplanted in the course of the 20th century, and in particular after the Second World War, by a new discipline that, while being taught under the same name as the old economics, set out to apply the methods of the natural sciences to elucidate phenomena such as prices, income, employment, inflation, and growth. Mises digested the challenges that the various strands of this new discipline raised for the old economics. When he published Human Action, then, it was not merely a summary of his own previous works, but a new synthesis, developed in critical response not only to historicism and Marxism, but also to positivism, experimental psychology and game theory, disciplines that still dominate the social sciences in our day. Ironically, the very success of the ideas that Mises combated in a lonely struggle more than thirty years ago now make for the lasting importance of his own system of thought. Misesian economics is today a strong and fast-growing paradigm, as witnessed by the number of publications that elaborate where he left off, as well as by the increasing attention paid to this paradigm in textbooks on contemporary and historical economic thought. The most surprising aspect of this growth is that it has virtually no institutional backing. Mises himself turned politically incorrect at an early stage of his career, and later on he felt even more out of fashion due to his epistemological views. The colleges and universities shunned him, the political parties in power did not listen, and were certainly glad that nobody else seemed to do so either. Mises enjoyed some personal backing by private foundations, most notably the Volcker Fund and the Erhard Foundation. After his death, his legacy was promoted actively by the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Alabama. But these few and financially insignificant institutions had a hard time competing with organizations that bore the stamp of official government approval. It was, and still is, an uphill battle. Thus the main explanation of the present-day growth of the Misesian paradigm is the extraordinary vigor of the ideas that inspire it. Mises is a classic, but in our day he is more than that. A classic author has given mankind a timeless formulation of essential questions and sometimes time-tested answers. Yet these questions and answers are not necessarily the ones that move us today or are relevant to solve the problems that we confront. Not so in the case of Mises. More than thirty years after his death, his writings still strike the reader, academic and layman alike, as relevant and thought-provoking. His books and articles are still bought by the thousands each year, and, most of all, read. How many economics students today actually read something Adam Smith or David Ricardo have written? Any teacher of economics knows the answer. The same answer holds true for the writings of 20th-century luminaries such as Gustav Kassel or Frank Knight. It holds true even for the writings of John Maynard Keynes, the greatest champion ever of interventionism, is constantly referred to in the classroom and in the media, but few people have ever held one of his books in their hands. In contrast, Mises is still read and studied attentively all over the world, second only to the fashionable textbook authors of our day.
What is it that makes for this continued relevance? Looking back at the end of this volume on the life and work of Mises, many plausible answers could be given to this question. One could single out a substantial number of path-breaking contributions in various fields of economic analysis. One could refer to his personal virtues, entailing admiration and inspiration on the part of many close associates. But we would like to stress another consideration, an aspect of overriding importance that helps explain both the fascination of his work and his place in the history of thought, realist epistemology. Mises's work stands for the idea, or hypothesis, that some aspects of social reality cannot be adequately analyzed with the methods used in the natural sciences and in historical investigation. Yet this layer of the social world can be described with praxeology and economics. There are time-invariant causes and effects in human action. Praxeology is the descriptive knowledge of these causes and effects. It was this idea that attracted Mises to Menger, and that turned him into an economist once he convinced himself that Menger was on to something. It is the same idea that still attracts people to Mises' writings as a radical alternative to the great number of contemporary approaches that, while discarding the realist hypothesis from the outset, seem to fail to deliver the goods. Whoever wishes to engage in the analysis of the causes and effects that prevail in the social world would do well to start with Mises, unless he wishes to go even further back and find his own way from the classical economists or from the school of Salamanca. As things stand today, Mises's writings provide the only continuous link between modern economic thought and the long tradition of realist social analysis that reaches back to Nicolas Oresme in the 14th century. This is not to say, of course, that the Misesian paradigm defines some sort of perfection in the social sciences, but it has given us the most recent system of social thought from a realist point of view, and thus it seems to be at present the most useful starting point to engage in that great intergenerational venture that we call the social sciences. It has also given us a most fruitful intellectual apparatus for understanding the workings of society in all times and places. The Ludwig von Mises Institute hopes that you have enjoyed this audiobook. For a world of free market literature, media, and discussion, visit Mises.org. The Mises Institute dedicates this volume to all of its generous donors and wishes to thank these patrons in particular the Landis Foundation, Douglas E. French and Diana Forbush, Hugh E. Ledbetter, Frederick L. Meyer, Christopher P. Condon, R. E. Fox, Mr. and Mrs. Michael L. Kaiser, Richard J. Cosman, M.D., Mr. and Mrs. R. Nelson Nash, Dr. and Mrs. William H. Peterson, Sheldon Rose, Chris Rufer, Art Schumer, Lloyd Allerback, Wesley and Terry Alexander, Ross K. Anderson, Anonymous, Robert G. Beard, Jr., J.D. C.P.A. Elsie Cage Beakley Mr. and Mrs. William M. Benton Professor Walter Block John Hamilton Ballstadt Herbert Bob, Mr. and Mrs. J. Robert Bost Philip G. Brumder Aubrey T. Carruth Dan H. Courtney Professor Jim Cox 
Mr. and Mrs. Jeremy S. Davis, Mr. and Mrs. Charles F. de Ganal, Michael H. and William E. Denyer, Dr. and Mrs. George G. Eddy, Dr. Larry J. Eshelman, Clyde Evans, Robert S. Ferguson, Mr. and Mrs. Willard Fisher, James W. Freeford, Henry Getz, Stuart B. Gillespie, Brian J. Gladish, Charles C. Grove, Charles F. Haynes, Keith M. Harnish, Mr. and Mrs. John A. Hayes, Jewel R. Herbert, Jr., Dr. Frederick Herman, Dr. James M. Herring, Adam L. Knott, David M. Kramer, Silvio O. LeCourt, Arthur L. Loeb, James Mahana, Ronald Mandel, Mr. and Mrs. William W. Massey, Jr., Wesley G. McCain, Joseph Edward Paul Melville, A. Minus, Jr., Dr. Dorothy Donnelly Moller, Karl-Heinz Moore, the Orcas Bay Foundation, George A. Peterson, Professor and Mrs. Stanley E. Porter, Mr. and Mrs. Wilfried A. Pusher, T. James Reynolds, David L. Richards, Willard A. Richardson, Thomas Ross, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph P. Sherrick, Conrad Schneiker, Norman K. Singleton, Andrew Serkis, Henry Ettel Skinner, Carlton M. Smith, David M. Smith, Mr. and Mrs. Warren C. and Georgia M. Spatz, Mr. and Mrs. Dennis A. Spadudo, William V. Stevens, Richard and Alicia Stevenson, Byron L. Strosser, Charles A. Strong, James E. Tempesta, M.D., Kenneth S. Templeton, Mr. and Mrs. Reginald Thatcher, Top Dog T.M., Chris and Carolyn Tormey, Polly J. Townsend, Lawrence Van Someren Sr., Guy M. Binks Walker, Dr. Thomas L. Wink, Brian J. Wilton, Malcolm F. Wittig, Mr. and Mrs. Walter Woodall III, Dr. Stephen Lee Yamshun, Robert S. Young.